Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tell Us, your host. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on November 29th, 2019. Black Friday. Not Poker Black Friday, but actual Black Friday. The day after Thanksgiving. We had a Black Friday episode that was pretty memorable seven years ago when we had former payment processor Chad Ellie, who spent five and a half months in prison due to his poker payment processing that was against the law. And he came on here and told us a lot about the poker payment processing industry, which was a very interesting listen. Still interesting to hear seven years later if you want to go find that episode in our archives. Anyway, welcome. This is our fifth show of November. And I've been happy to be able to be here every week. And I should be here every week for the foreseeable future. I said, I don't care if this is a holiday weekend, I will be here. I plan to be here, I think, every single week of December, unless something changes. So I will be here to keep you company on your holiday travels or whatever you choose to do with this end of 2019. So we have a free roll going right now. You don't have much time to get in there. It started at 9.15. Late registration closes at 9.40. That's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. We are giving away $70 this week. $70, which is courtesy of a few different people. $20 came from Reno. $25 came from Seabock Softy, who uh, had won this back in March and never claimed it. So if you don't claim your money within six months, it goes back. Make sure to come to me to claim your money if you win. Do not uh, just expect me to come to you because I probably won't. And if more than six months pass, I can at any time take the money. I may not take it on the exact six-month mark, but I will probably take it at some point not too far after that and then roll it back into our free roll. I will not take it for my own Jew wallet. I will put it back into the free roll for others to win. So 25 from Seabox Softy. Thank you to him for that, even if that was not intentional. And $25 from Mickey Krim's Heart Attack. Yes, Mickey Krim's Heart Attack. Mickey Krim is a well-known longtime gambler who roams from casino to casino around the U.S. He's kind of based in Montana, but he goes to casinos everywhere and finds kind of small to medium-sized advantage plays and supports himself that way. And he's been doing this for decades. He's an older guy. I think he's in his late 60s. And he had a heart attack a few weeks ago. And many people, including me, were worried that Mickey Krim might pass away. But uh, he survived. And even though he disappeared from Twitter for some time, which worried people, he survived. He seems to be doing okay. And hopefully Mickey Krim has many days ahead of him. He's a poster on my Vegas Casino Talk forum, but many people know him from elsewhere. So this was not donated by him, but someone who donated, uh, I shouldn't say in honor of his heart attack, but uh, it's kind of a joke that it's from his heart attack. Anyway, $25 from Mickey Krim's heart attack from another Advantage player who listens to the show. And that's our $70 this week. It's being given away to the top three finishers, 35 for first, 21 for second, 14 for third. That's 35, 21, and 14 are the prizes. I will pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, or one other method that you might be able to think of that has been used to pay for things on the Internet for about 20 years now. If you might be able to think of that, then I will pay you. Remember, Poker Fraud Alert is a site that 
has not been turning a profit for many years, nor have we been trying very hard to do so. I mean, if the money fell in my lap, sure. I'm not saying it'll never be a site that ever runs for profit, but I've made little effort to make it run for profit. The only sponsor we have, which isn't really a sponsor, is uh, we, we have an Amazon banner at the bottom where uh, if people see that and click on it, then we end up getting a percentage of the uh, the sales. But uh, other than that, we don't have anything else on here. And keep that in mind, that this site is being brought to you just because I feel like bringing it to you. I'm not gaining anything from this. I'm really not gaining anything. Some people think I run this site as some sort of ego project or somehow to keep my name out there. There's no benefit to doing that. I'm not going to get a poker sponsorship at this point. Uh, Poker sponsorships are very hard to come by. I'm not really the type of player they would want to sponsor at this point anyway. I'm an older male. It's not uh, what they typically like to be the face of the site unless you're like a super huge name like Negranu, which I'm not and never will be. So I'm not trying to keep my name out there. And I'm not trying to promote myself in any way. In fact, you'll see that the the poker site or the poker fraud alert doesn't really have my name on it in most places. More just Dan Druff, you'll see. <laughs> so I'm really just running it because I enjoy running and I enjoy doing the show for you guys. I enjoy running the forum. And please keep that in mind. If there's something you don't love about the site or the forum or the show, please understand I'm just doing this voluntarily. It's not my job. I'm not making money from it, and it's more work than you think. It's not like a full-time job, but it's it's more work than you think. It really is. And the free roll, I thank everybody who donates to that to keep that running every week so I don't have to reach into my Jew pocket to spend the money on that. So thank you to everybody who's donated to the free roll over time. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. That is our phone number. That's always been our phone number. We also have a Mount Charleston line, which we also have always had, and it forwards to me wherever I go. It's an old 70s rotary telephone at the top of Mount Charleston, which is near Las Vegas. 702-430-1808 is the number. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line, a separate phone number you can call into the show. No matter which number you use, make sure to show your caller ID or you won't get through. And you can also text me at the same number as our main number, 775-372-8355. You can text me before, after, or during the show. I may read your texts on the air. So unless it's obvious, please state at the beginning of your text, do not read on air if you don't want me reading it. Now, if it's like an ongoing conversation we're having back and forth, you don't have to say that at every text. But if just you text me out of nowhere, especially during the show, Beware, I may read it, unless you ask me not to. The call to listen line is something I created four years ago. And it's a very simple thing that you can use to listen to the show. And it does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, does not require a computer. You don't need an internet connection. You need none of that. Just any phone in the world that can dial can listen to the call to listen line, and it has a no buffer guarantee. It will never buffer or freeze. It will always play no matter how poor your connection is, as long as you can stay connected to it. You can have one bar. You could have zero bars. As long as there's a connection to the phone number, you can listen to it and it will not freeze or buffer. It, it will never do that, I promise you. 605-313-0736 is the number. 605-313-0736. 
We have the alternate number also, 641-741-1095. Do you memorize that? Probably not. Go to the radio page, the radio page, which is a radio tab, actually, near the top of the screen of PokerFraudAlert.com, and you can see all the phone numbers right there. Every phone number I just gave you will be right up there for you to reference if you need it. The free roll is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It's too late to get in at this point. You have 25 minutes of late registration. It began at 9.15 before the show. But uh, for future reference, it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You need a separate account to get in there. It needs to be validated. And to understand the qualification requirements, go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll is where you learn the rules of the free roll and the qualification requirements to win the free money. Because if you don't follow that, you will get nothing. I will pay you nothing. I will roll it back into the pool. If you're someone who knows me personally, who I've told you you can play, then you don't have to worry about reading that. I mean, it couldn't hurt, but uh, someone I know personally can just assume they've done everything or they qualify. But everybody else, make sure you read that. Uh here's our agenda tonight and we'll get going also we have a chat room if you're listening live you can go to the chat room you need a flash enabled device to listen remember that no iPhones or iPads can get in but every other device pretty much that has flash can get into the chat room during the live show nobody in there during the archives so don't bother oh and one other thing how to listen to the show forgot about that in the archives you can find it on iTunes Google Play Stitcher Tune in, Bullhorn. These are all apps you can use. Then there's also Alexa. You can say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I've got an Alexa in here. It's probably going to play it. Okay, good. It didn't. Let's see. Benjamin's mom put an Alexa in this room. And now I, I was staring. I meant to unplug it before the show. But uh, fortunately, it, it didn't hear me well enough. But you, you tell it to play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And it will play the live show. And if you say the word podcast at the end, if you say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast, then it will play the last full episode that recorded. So it's very useful if you want to use an Alexa device to listen to the show. Then also keep in mind that you can use the TuneIn app to listen to the live show. You can also download the MP3 or play the MP3 of the show directly from the Poker Fraud Alert server. Just go to the radio tab and click on the little MP3 button or just go to the radio forum. Either way, it takes you right there and then you click on the episode and click on the MP3 and it plays. In fact, pretty much every phone made in the last few years, if you just click on the MP3 file, it'll play. It doesn't need any external players. It's a very easy way to listen to our shows in the archives. So I want to make it as easy as possible for you to listen to the show. I want to give you options to where you can listen. If you can think of some other option you'd like us to be supported on, you can let me know, and there's a good chance I can get us on there. No guarantees, but I will try. As long as it doesn't cost me too much money or time, I will do it. We have streaming reruns, by the way, which run whenever the show is not live. If you go to the radio tab, you can hear it. If you go to the tune-in app, you can hear it. If you go to the call-to-listen line, you can hear it. If you... Go to Alexa and say, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio. You can hear it. Whenever we're not on live, it will play just a random rerun it picks from the archives from between 2012 and now. Just play it in full and go to another random one over and over again until we come back on the air. 
Here's our agenda, then we'll connect Trader Ruski, and then we'll get going. Look how much faster I'm doing these agendas and openings now. Not as fast as other shows, I'll, I'll admit. Still, our agenda is longer than some other entire shows, but I've gotten a lot faster. Like last week, I saw we started our first topic at like the 19-minute mark, which is like almost a record for me. There used to be the days we get an hour into the show, I wasn't done with all this stuff. So the top story this week, and I'm going to be honest this week, this is not a heavy news week. This is a pretty light news week. I was, I was struggling for things to come up with, and unlike last week where I came up with like 15 topics when I was struggling, this week I did not. So this week we only have six topics, and then I have three editorials for you guys. So if you want to hear me rant about various non-poker-related things, this is the right show for you. The first topic is that the mainstream media has finally picked up on the Raymond Davis arrest story. Poker Fraud Alert picked up on this story six months ago. We had an extensive discussion about this story six months ago. We had attorney Eric Benzamokin to come on here, and he discussed with me the case of what we knew of it at the time and, and what everything meant and what Ray Davis could expect. And so we extensively covered it with the information we had at the time. And on the forum, there's been an ongoing coverage of it. I haven't given much of an update on this show because it's been moving pretty slowly, as most things do in the court system. But uh, on the forum, there's been a lot of open discussion of it, free of any kind of censorship or anything like that. It was and Anyone who wanted to show up and comment on it did, and I didn't delete anything. And I was participating myself in the discussion of the matter. And, and now, six months later, for some reason, the mainstream media is like, oh, wow, this is kind of interesting. A, a kind of known professional poker player from Las Vegas is accused of having uh, sex, uh, sex, basically sex crimes against minors. And I'll remind you guys of what this whole thing's about when we get to that segment. But yeah, they finally picked up on it. It's finally been picked up by the mainstream media. I'll give you an update on this case and talk about the mainstream media's coverage of it and what I think of that. But up till now, Poker Fraud Alert was the one place, the one place to find it. Speaking of attorneys, I know I mentioned Eric Benzamokin in this next segment. I actually collaborated with a different attorney related to poker this week, uh, Mac Verstandig, who has never been on this show, but I've talked about him before because he always seems to get involved in these poker-related lawsuits representing clients in poker and i actually worked with him on arbitrating a bet a small bet between jason browl and ellen kessler normally i would have suggested eric benzamokin for this job but number one there was no pay i don't think he would have wanted that and number two even if he was okay with no pay uh i was specifically selected before i even said whether i was going to do it or not so i was I was kind of drafted to do this, as was Mac. We were just selected, and we were it. And unless we said no, that's who the two arbitrators would be. So I did my best. I will tell you the results. I'll explain the whole thing that was going on and the Twitter battle about it and all that. America's Card Room claims they have made a breakthrough in detection of bots on their site, and they have closed a bunch of bot accounts and seized a bunch of money. Is this the end of bots on America's card room? I will tell you whether or not I believe their efforts will really result in much of a reduction there, or if the problem is going to still very much persist. Accused 
embezzler and World Poker Tour champ Dennis Bielden has pled guilty in a $22 million embezzlement case. So I'll remind you about that whole situation and tell you what he can expect from here. GG Poker, which Daniel Negreanu recently signed with. By the way, some people who were fans of his didn't like last week's segment. They thought I was too hard on Daniel. They thought I was throwing shade on Daniel. There was, there was criticism of me from certain Negreanu fanboys that I was too mean to him. And I was not. And if you go listen to the last episode objectively, you will hear that I was not. I said several positive things about him in that segment. I did make fun of some things. I did criticize a few things. But no, none of the criticisms were very serious. And the few that were were kind of criticisms we've heard for a long time. But I was not hating on him. I'm just always honest with how I feel, the good or the bad. And with Negreanu, I find there's both. There's good to say about him and not so good things to say about him. Anyway, back to GG Poker. News probably unrelated to Negreanu. They have blocked certain countries from registering on the site due to regulatory reasons. But, oddly enough, they seem to be inviting players to use VPNs to get around their own restrictions. I've never seen that before. So we'll tell you about this weird story when we get to that segment. Last poker and gambling topic is about Phil Galfon and his run at one site. And I know what you're saying. Oh, Druff is going to bash Galfon more. Oh, Druff's going to say about how Phil Galfon's site is a failure. He doesn't know what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. No. Believe it or not, this is a positive segment about run at once poker that Phil Galfon finally did something right. And the traffic, while still nowhere near it needs to be, has improved. So I will tell you what he did that was right and where he may have heard that suggestion before. Three editorials this week. Editorial number one. When you love a business, but when you hate the owner of the business, what do you do? What do you do if you detest the ownership, but you love the business itself? By the way, the reverse can occur, of course. You could love the owner and hate the business. I unfortunately have had that as well, where I think the owner's a great guy, but the business sucks. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about if you love the business, but hate the owner, what do you do? And I'm going to talk about two different things related to that. One is the thing that's been in the news for a while now about Chick-fil-A and many people boycotting them because of their support of charities that are seen to not be supportive of gay people. And I'm going to talk about a much smaller business that a friend of mine has recently been battling with on Yelp. There's no one most of you know. It's not a Poker Fraud Alert poster or anything. And I will give you my opinion about that particular situation, which I will describe to you. Number two, editorial number two. Should the government protect us from being ripped off? Or is let the buyer beware a better policy? That is, if there's a company that's not behaving all that ethically, is it really the government's business to get involved and say, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, this is wrong? Or should just, is it the consumer's responsibility to make sure they're not being ripped off, that they understand what they're buying and how much the price is? And should the free market just take care of this? Or should the government get involved? That'll be editorial number two. Editorial number three. 
The University of California, where I went, by the way, the University of California is about to dump the SAT. They haven't officially decided to, but they have been strongly leaning in that direction. And it looks like soon the SAT will be irrelevant for the University of California, which includes iconic schools like UCLA and Berkeley and several others. So is this a good idea to get rid of the SAT? Or are they doing it for the wrong reasons and will they get a bad result from it? That'll be our third and final editorial. I will call up Trader Ruski, who told me he is awake tonight. Last week he was uh, a bit of a bit tired, to put it chari- charitably, which is fine. Yeah, he doesn't have to work his life around this show, but he was tired. He lasted to about midnight last week. This week he claims he is wide awake. Feels like midday to him. What's happening, Truff? Trader Ruski, you still feel awake? Wide awake. Good, good. I, I feel awake now too. So good. I th- I th- last, I'll you know I'll confess something. I felt kind of tired by the end of the show last week. I, last week's show was less than four hours, and I felt like I had just done a seven-hour show. I was like, I can't believe I've done more than double of this before, because I really felt like I just did a long show when I did not. I just was tired. I was worn out. My throat kind of hurt. So I was happy the show was ending when it did. This show tonight probably will not be long either. And that's just the way it goes sometimes. Sometimes they just don't have as much to say. So. Yeah, last week I was up at 4.30 that oh, okay, for a okay. day trip up to the Bay Area. Well, so it was a long day. That is a long day. I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know you took a bay trip, uh, day trip to the Bay Area. Wow, a day trip? You, so you went all the way to the Bay Area and back? I know you're further north than from, I am, but. From, yeah, it's the best one I'm at now. So, yeah, three-hour drive each way. Yeah, that's true. Days. That's true. You're, you're pretty far up there. That, you know, the first time I drove to San Luis Obispo, I was only 18 in 1990. And I, I just had pictured – I was coming from the L.A. area. I had pictured it's just a little past Santa Barbara. I'm, I'm like, oh, no, it's like 150 miles past Santa Barbara or something. It was real – wait, is it, is it 150 miles? I think it's 150 miles, right, or 125? Uh, no, not, no, not past – well, yeah, maybe 120 no, not even that, because it takes about an hour and a half after Really? I thought, it, for some reason, I thought it was like 125 to 150. I remember being shocked. I want to look at this up right now. Santa Barbara. So I got to Santa Barbara. I thought I was close to there, and then I couldn't believe how much farther it was. And I'm in Arroyo Grande, so it's a little a little south of uh, SLO. Okay, so it's kind of uh, between what we were saying. It's it's 107. That's still a lot farther than I expected. I kind of expected it's like 40, 50 miles past. Okay. Uh, did you get any snow near you? No, no snow, but it definitely rained quite a bit. California had some unexpected snow, and it caused some trouble. Did not come to the L.A. area, the snow, but there was snow in Palmdale. Pretty deep snow, in fact. And more importantly, there's snow over the Cajon Pass, which people drive. It's on I-15 between L.A. and Vegas. And Cajon Pass is what takes you between San Bernardino and Hesperia and the Victorville area. Well, some people got stuck. The snow came down hard and fast, and there were accidents. And the CHP came and shut it down and said this isn't safe to continue. And everybody had to pull over and not move. The CHP blocked the road and closed it, and there's no way out. 
Some people reported being stuck there for as much as eight hours, which is crazy. And this was supposedly southbound. I think northbound was closed also, but not as long. But southbound was a disaster, and they closed it uh, because it wasn't considered safe. Southbound is also going downhill, which is probably more of the reason it was closed, because it's easier to slide, obviously. And I saw a video of a friend who drove it, and I, I, the video was crazy. It was about 1.30 p.m., heavy snow coming down, and then the traffic very slow, as you'd expect, and a car ahead of him just starts sliding back. And I heard his wife saying, no, 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 and then the car got control. Wow. Yeah. So it's a lot of snow. Also, the the grapevine on I-5 going north of Los Angeles towards Bakersfield got closed. That that happens more often than the Cajon Pass getting closed. But I actually have experience with the Cajon Pass closing. I was never stuck in such a thing, but I was aware of it and was watching for it. Because in 2001, early 2001, I was dating a girl from Victorville. And the first time I went to see her, there was snow. Not falling, but when I went to see her, as I'm walking up to her apartment door, there's snow on the ground. I'm going, what the hell? I can't believe I'm dating someone where snow is. And then the following week, she couldn't come see me because the Cajon Pass was snowed in like it was uh, yesterday. And uh, that wasn't an excuse. It was really closed. And I'm like, I had no idea the Cajon Pass gets snowed in and you can't drive it. So we were watching closely because this is January and February. We were watching closely at the Cajon Pass before making plans to see each other. And that fortunately that was the only weekend it stopped us from seeing each other. The whole relationship lasted about two months and then she moved. But that was my first knowledge of the fact that the Cajon Pass sometimes does snow in. So if you drive between L.A. and Vegas, make sure that if there's rain in the forecast that it's also not going to snow at the Cajon Pass if you're driving during the winter or late fall or even early spring. Because it can happen, and you'll either be stuck on the pass, which is the worst, or you can just end up stuck at the beginning of the Cajon Pass, either in Hesperia or San Bernardino, depending on which way you're going. But uh, something to watch out for if driving to Vegas. The last time I went that way, there was a fire, and I just beat it. I guess a half hour or so after I... After I kind of passed it and got to Victorville, they shut it down because of the fire. It was oh, kind of like remember, going across the freeway. Yeah, I remember some of them got closed. I remember there were some closures due to fire. What, what year was this? Was it this year? No, I think it was like maybe 18 or 19, or eight, 17 or 18. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've seen some pictures of fires there, and that's that's happened too, where they'll close it, and then you can't get out. And I, in fact, it looks dangerous because I... I've seen it where the fire's like raging towards the freeway and you can't just turn around and drive away like on a surface street. This is a freeway and you're stuck. And I saw people like getting out of their cars and just running because <laughs> what do you do? Oh, yeah. They come fast. Too. Yeah. So I saw winds people, yeah, going I, up the mountains. Crazy. Right. So I saw people. It's like, like this huge firestorm ahead of them. I'm, I'm watching videos of people like getting out of their car, just running. That's crappy, too. And you got to watch for that, especially in October and November when there's a lot of fires in Southern California. That is pretty tough, though. I, I felt bad for those people. I'm actually a member of a Facebook group about the Cajon Pass, and there were a lot of people on that group who talked about horror stories yesterday, many of whom were trying to attend Thanksgiving dinner and never got there. That's pretty bad. Anyway, let's get going here. The first topic, 
Ray Davis. And this is something that has perplexed me for a long time in many ways. This is a very weird case. And one of the weird things right off the bat is the fact that nobody was covering it. Even though Ray is fairly well known in poker, he's been around a long time. He runs Real Grinders, which has 18,000 people. And 18,000 real people, I'm not talking about uh, bots or uh, anything like that. He's got 18,000 real poker players in his Real Grinders group on Facebook. It's one of the biggest Facebook uh, poker discussion groups. And I was surprised that no one, and when I say no one, I mean no one. No forum, no poker news site, no gambling news site, no mainstream media, nothing. No one discussed it up until this week. Prior to this week... If you were to Google Raven Davis or Raymond Davis Arrest, the only site covering it was this one, PokerFraudAlert.com. And honestly, I, I have a friend who listens to the show sometimes, and this friend told me, wow, you cover everything. Because they're like, oh, have you heard about this? I'm like, yeah, here's a link to it. Like everything they could think of, I kept just giving them a link to something we already covered. Something's recent, something's in the past. Just to, We really do cover a lot of things, including a lot of obscure things. And we're not afraid to cover anything. And we don't shy away from discussion of anything, even if it seems like a small topic, which I don't think this is, by the way. I, that's what surprised me. This seems like a pretty big deal to discuss. But for some reason, nobody covered it. And now it's getting covered. I didn't bother to try to get it covered elsewhere. It's not my job to do. I... Uh, Poker Fraud Alert covered it very extensively, both on the radio show and the forum. And in fact, the forum had constant updates on what was happening with the case. But the case itself has so many strange elements to it, some of which have come to light more since we had our segment back in May about it. And this, I can say honestly, not just because I know Ray, I can say honestly, this whole situation is the weirdest criminal case I have ever seen in my life. The weirdest. I can't think of one, even among people I didn't know. And you can say, well, Jeffrey Epstein. Well, that's that's kind of a whole different type of thing. But I'm talking about like a, a regular criminal case involving a regular person that's not really famous. And Ray Davis is known in poker, but he's not really famous. So any criminal case I've ever read about that involves just a, a regular citizen, I've never seen one this weird. Here's Here's... I mean, I, I, I don't even know where to start with all the weirdness with this one. So let me review again what happened. There is a complaint made against Raymond Davis, who runs Real Grinders and has been part of poker for a long time. There is a complaint made against him by two females. I think first one and then her friend corroborated it. That Ray had committed, quote, sexual assault against them a number of years ago. And that both of them were under the age of 14 when it happened. I, I don't know how old they exactly were. I think maybe 13 or something. But that, uh, or I think I think one was under 14, one was under 16. But these were brought up, I don't know, about uh, maybe two years after they were supposed to have happened. I'm not exactly sure the exact date of when the alleged assault occurred. But that's not that important. And this case was started and an arrest warrant was issued for Ray Davis in September of 2016. September of 2016. 
for, quote, sex assault against a child. The actual allegation, sex assault, is very broad. Um, some people think that means rape. It can, but it, there's a lot of other things it can mean. Uh, for example, if you just walk up to a woman and, and smack her ass without her permission, that's sexual assault. And obviously that's wrong to do, and I've never done it and wouldn't do it, and you shouldn't. But obviously that's much less in severity compared to rape. So in this case, the sexual, the sexual assault that was alleged is actually not forcible in that Ray was not said to have forced his way onto these uh, two girls, but because they were underage. And by the way, the age of consent in Nevada is 16. So had they been over 16, there would have been no crime. But both were under 16 at the time they were alleging this happened. And what they were alleging was that, uh, number one, he paid, uh, I don't know if it was one or both, but at least one of them for oral sex, and they did. And number two, that uh, he paid them to uh, let him watch them shower while he jerked off. And those those were the allegations, to my knowledge. Okay? I only heard about the oral sex thing more recently. I had thought before it was just about the shower thing. Uh, there was no physical evidence, to my knowledge. I don't think they had any kind of direct proof this happened. Of course, that doesn't mean it didn't. I'm just saying that uh, there wasn't any direct proof. But there was the allegation from one girl and the second girl, at least I know the two claim they were together in the shower during that shower incident, the two girls. So both girls claimed it happened, and the police took it serious enough to issue an arrest warrant against Raymond Davis in September 2016. Okay? This is all standard stuff so far. Some minor makes an allegation that seems credible enough to where they want to arrest the adult it is alleged against, and they issue an arrest warrant to arrest that person after an investigation. Okay, that's that's all standard. But here's where it gets weird. How come we didn't hear about this three years ago? Remember, this is September 2016 when the arrest warrant was issued. So the investigation was done at least enough to where they felt they could arrest him. Ray Davis was not arrested until April of 2019. Now, how does that happen? Wouldn't you think that these charges are serious enough to where they would want to get someone like that off the streets if it's if this is what he really did? If they if they think that Ray Davis is likely enough to have done this to where he needs to be arrested, if they've come to the conclusion that he probably did and they, they're going to arrest him, wouldn't you think that they would want to arrest him right away rather than let two and a half years pass. And if he really is a danger to society, he could do this to others. And when I'm saying he, I don't even mean, I'm not even speaking from the standpoint of like that Ray would have or did do this to others. I'm just saying in general, anyone who's accused of this where the police want to arrest them for it, why would they take two and a half years? But they did. They took two and a half years from September 2016 to April 2019, and by the way, don't think they came and arrested him on April 2019. He had a traffic stop, and the officer ran his identification, as they do with everybody during traffic stops. And it came up, there's an arrest warrant, so they arrested him. That, that's what got the wheels in motion. He, he may still not be arrested if he didn't get pulled over for some kind of minor traffic stop. So why did it take so long? Why did they not arrest him for something this major? This isn't like an unpaid parking ticket. Or something else that's 
pretty minor that you understand why they're not going to get the person. You may say, well, maybe Ray wasn't easy to find. Well, of course he was easy to find. Ray Davis has been at the same address for a long time. He has been in Las Vegas the entire time. To my knowledge, he hasn't even left Vegas in years. He has been very public about when he'll be appearing at the Real Grinders Lounge. If you Google his name, if you Google Ray Davis Poker, it's uh, or even just Raymond Davis Las Vegas, a whole lot of things would come up about him if the police were interested in finding him. I mean, there, there's a million ways they could have found him. He definitely was not evading arrest in any way. He was he was definitely making himself very publicly accessible and very was very open about his whereabouts. He he played World Series events where you have to register. I mean, definitely he was not hiding. No matter what you want to say about him here, he was not hiding. He claimed he was not aware of the arrest warrant against him. I think that's possibly true, that he was not aware of it. It's the, the weirdest thing. How can this go on for two and a half years, and then he only gets arrested finally when there's a traffic stop? So that, that's, that's weird thing number one. That's weird, really weird thing number one, but it, it goes way beyond this. Okay, Weird thing number two. The district attorney is of the belief that Ray Davis is not just Ray Davis. He's not just the Ray Davis we know. But he's also several other Ray Davises who have been committing felonies around Nevada. That he's been using phony identities, all Ray Davis, to commit these crimes around Nevada, and therefore he's more of a danger to society than everyone realizes. (laughs) Now look, look. Regarding these original allegations against him, I can understand why those can be believable, especially because he had some similar allegations that he ended up not uh, – I, I think that ended up being dropped. But there was some similar allegations involving uh, sex and a minor from 15 years ago. So when lightning strikes twice with something like this, you've got to wonder, Okay. So it's very fair for anybody who thinks, hey, it kind of seems like Ray Davis is guilty. But I highly doubt that he is a bunch of Ray Davises around Nevada committing all these different crimes. And not sex crimes necessarily. Just the, all these different crimes, they, they, they claim, they suspect that a lot of these Ray Davises are him. Which doesn't make any sense. If you're going to commit crimes under a, a false identity, you don't do it under the same name. In fact, I've never seen that before in my life where... Someone's alias is their name just with a different social security number. So that's that just seems to have been said with I, I, I can't even understand where they're coming up with this. I was told by someone else and this person is a friend of his, but still I was told by someone else that uh, one of the Ray Davises that he was accused of being is five foot three. <laughs> and, and Ray Davis is not a tall guy, but he's nowhere near five foot three either. So it's I, I don't believe any of that crap. It's just. Weird. Next weird thing. Ray Davis is currently sitting in jail as we speak, waiting until his February 2020 trial. And he will be there until 2020. Why? Because his bail is $500,000 now. $500,000. Let's review. $500,000 bail. Yet, they didn't feel the need to arrest him for two and a half years plus. And as far as I know, there were no new allegations that have come to light, other than the stupid identity theft thing, during that time. 
So it's not like they arrested him and found a bunch of new really damning stuff and raised his bail. That's not being contended as far as I know. The original bail of 25000 which he made, that's why he was still appearing on Real Grinders. He, he disappeared for a little time when he got arrested in April. Then he appeared again. He was active on Facebook and was going around town and everything. You know, he was around everywhere still. And then he disappeared again in September when they uh, raised his bail from 25000 to 500000 so why did it go from 25k to 500k, which is often a higher bail than murderers will have to put up? I'm not even kidding. Now, what he was accused of is pretty bad, I'll admit that. I'll admit that uh, paying minors to do these things is a serious crime, and there should be some substantial bail for that. But 500000 is excessive. It really is. If you compare it to other accused, uh, other people who are accused of similar crimes of, of this extent. It was originally twenty five k, which seemed more in line to me, but jumped to five hundred. Why did it jump to five hundred? Here's the next thing that didn't make sense. So Ray Davis started out with an attorney. Then at some point, he fired his attorney and decided to represent himself. Not clear why he fired his attorney. Not clear why he thought it was smart to represent himself in such a serious criminal case against him. But he did. I still don't understand that. But that's what he did. And not surprisingly, he managed to piss off the DA and the judge to where... His bail rose from 25k to 500k. I'm going to play you a news report about this, by the way. We'll get into that shortly. But that's probably why his bail is so high now, because he got the DA personally angry at him and the judge personally angry at him while he was representing himself. And then sometime after that, he thought, hmm, Maybe that isn't very smart. Maybe when you're facing serious criminal charges involving sex with kids, maybe it's time to get an attorney again. And then he did. But too little, too late, and that attorney could not reverse the damage. And now he's in the slammer until February awaiting trial, which is quite a long time. He's been there since September. That's five months he's got to sit in jail. He will get credit for time served if he gets a sentence, so... If he does end up getting sentenced for this, at least this won't be totally wasted time. It'll be time served. But still, if he gets either less than a five-month actual sentence for jail, or if uh, he gets off of it completely, then this five months he spent in jail, he can't get back. So he didn't represent himself, which doesn't make any sense. Then there is the judge. Now... I don't see that there's any contempt charges against him. He just really pissed off the judge with erratic and outrageous behavior in the courtroom, supposedly. And I can see where the judge is pissed, and I would advise if any of you are ever before a judge, whether it's a civil or criminal matter, you uh, are very soft-spoken and respectful. Don't argue. Even if you're, even the judge is pissing you off, you hold it in. Don't ever accuse the judge of anything. Just 
got to roll with whatever's happening there. Ray Davis should have followed that advice, but he did not. But still, it does seem like the judge just overly punished him with this 500k bail, which really does seem kind of like a reaction to what occurred in the courtroom. By the way, he was sent for a mental health evaluation after that whole incident in the courtroom. And then another thing that isn't making any sense, and that is, on my end, I'm getting contacted by these weird accounts. Weird fake accounts are contacting me on Poker Fraud Alert and on Facebook. And trying as hard as they can to goad me into trashing Ray and to really aggressively covering this and making a big like personal crusade out of it. They, they want me to like go on a uh, spread the word about Ray Davis crusade. And these are not just regular people who are approaching me saying, hey, you know, here's why we don't like Ray. Uh, here's some other things that we think he, he's done that uh, you may not know about, and, and here's why you should be saying a lot more about him. Nothing like that. No, I get these phony accounts that are created that pretend like they're real, and they pretend like they're just regular concerned citizens, and they're clearly not. They're clearly people who are, already have an existing personal dislike for him. And then they try to lie to me and manipulate me into uh, behaving differently about this. And I haven't defended Ray. I, I, as I said, on my forum was the only discussion on the internet about this for six months. So had I covered this up for the last six months, there would have been no discussion. They were deleting it on Real Grinders. For whatever reason, nowhere else was this discussion taking place. I don't know why. My forum had an open discussion, which I was taking part in. And not to defend him, but to give honest and clear analysis of the situation I had attorney Eric Benzamokin come on here back in May to give his analysis of the situation, which wasn't all that favorable to Ray. Clearly, I have not been covering anything up or taking his side on this or making excuses for him. I have just been neutral and reporting the facts and saying, let's let the court system uh, do its work and let the facts come out and then we'll figure out what happened. That's... All I've said, and I've been reporting the facts that they've been happening, as have other members on my site. And I'm sure Ray Davis would have been thrilled if I just said, hey, Ray, we've always gotten along. I'm going to do you a favor here and delete the thread. No. The only site covering this. Look it up. You won't find any coverage of this prior to this past week on any other site of any kind except Poker Fraud Alert for six months. And, and I think that's why I was getting contacted by these fake accounts, because they wanted me, for some reason, to bring greater awareness to this and go on a crusade against Ray over this. They thought this was my job or something. And they, they weren't approaching me honestly. And I'd even say to them, look, obviously you've got some gripe with Ray. Why don't you tell us what your problem is with him? Obviously, it's not just this. You, there's something you didn't like about him before this. If you if he's done something wrong to you, let us know. Post it. Post it on Poker Fraudler. I I invite anybody here who who has any kind of gripe with Ray Davis, or had a bad experience with him, to post it on Poker Fraud Alert in that thread. I won't delete it. And you know you should post all the evidence you can. If you just make accusations, we won't know if it's true or not. But yeah, post it up there. I won't delete it. 
but what I'm not going to have are fake accounts showing up trying to manipulate me. I had one on Facebook, like this, this supposed female from Europe, supposedly. I don't even believe the person's from Europe. With a fake picture that I reverse image searched back and found from a different source. A picture of some like, pretty blonde girl that clearly was not that person. Uh, very generic looking Facebook account. And it was trying to tell me, oh, I'm from Europe. I just happened to see this story on KLAS Channel 8 and on the web. And, and, I, and yeah, I'm curious what you have to think about it. The whole thing was so phony. The person was trying so hard to trick me and manipulate me, but it wasn't done well at all. You guys, have, If you're going to trick me, try harder at least. I've been online for over 30 years. You're not going to trick me, okay? You have to really, really put together a convincing story and persona to trick me. These, these generic fake accounts are not going to do anything. They're not going to even slightly trick me. I, like there, there was never any doubt from the very start that all these accounts have a very clear agenda. So I can't trust them. I'm not saying Ray is an angel. I can't, I can't trust these enemies of his because they're not coming to me honestly. And I haven't had this before either. I have had people come to me before and say, hey, let me tell you about such and such person that you know. Let me tell you about such and such person that posts on your site. Let me tell you about such and such person that I know you've been uh, talking to lately. And I go, okay, I'll listen. I don't just blindly believe everything said about everybody, but I, I say, look, you got something to tell me about someone I know? Yeah, tell me. I'll listen. But every time someone's come to me, it's always been just a discussion between two adults where they come to me in a normal and straightforward fashion. They don't hide who they are. They don't make phony accounts. And they just tell me what they want to say. But no, all, it, all these Ray Davis haters are making fake accounts on my site, on Facebook, and trying to convince me of something. And I said, and these people don't even seem like they're scared. It's not even like, well, I've got to tell you this anonymously because I'm afraid of what Ray will do. It's never that. It's they, Even when I tell them, look, I know this is a fake account, just be honest about it. No, 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 I'm real. How dare you think of this of me? Like They won't even admit it when I say, and I can tell this isn't because they're afraid. They just, they think they're tricking me. They think they're manipulating me. They, they think if I believe some person from Europe just happened to see the report and is giving commentary to me on how I should be handling this, that I'll take it to heart. But all this does is piss me off when you approach me in a dishonest fashion and lie about your identity and lie about who you are and lie about your motivations. And I can see through it. And I just dismiss you then. Nor do they tell me anything really concrete. It's not like they've got very credible accusations against Ray, but they won't tell me who they are. They just It's, it's just a lot of stupid generalities that mean nothing. So uh, that's really weird, too. And I don't know why they keep coming to me and I keep telling them I don't believe you. I keep telling them I, you're not real. I can tell you're not real. And therefore, anything you say lacks credibility. That's very weird, too. Now, maybe you think that I'm just looking at this in some sort of biased fashion, or maybe I'm just dumb and can't understand what's going on, or maybe I don't know the court system very well, and therefore, if someone else with more experience were to be analyzing this, they would understand it, and it would make more sense to them, all the stuff I just told you. So, Okay. That might be a good point. Well, since we have some other media now looking into this, why don't we look at what Channel 8, KLAS in Las Vegas, a longtime TV station there, what do they 
have to say about this because they actually did their own investigation into this entire situation. This was called I-Team Exclusive Delay in Child Sex Crimes Arrest of Poker Player. And they actually have a report they did, which was the result of their own investigation on this entire situation with Ray. Because just as I thought it was weird, they thought it was weird. But unlike me, who can only just look at what I can find online and talk about it, maybe hear a few things from Ray's friends, of course, the, that'll always be biased. But the, the iTeam, Channel 8 in Las Vegas, they have access to a lot of things I don't. They can get comments from a lot of law enforcement organizations that I can't. They should be able to explain this, right? They've, If they look into this whole thing, if they take an interest and they look into why there was a delay in his arrest and why his bail went up from 25k to 500k and what's really going on here, they should be able to come up with it, right? Well, let's listen. Let's listen to what they came up with. Oral sex at his home on several oh, occasions. On. No, let me. I started the wrong place. Here we go. Two and a half years, despite a warrant. Turns out he's a high-profile poker player. So why did it take so long to take him into custody? The I team's Vanessa Murphy tries to find the answers and has an exclusive interview with the defendant himself. Raymond Davis is in a Las Vegas jail, a much different setting from his poker days. I'm a world-class poker player. The 52-year-old man is accused of committing sex crimes against children. He faces nine charges. Metro police say an underage girl claimed he paid her for oral sex at his home on several occasions after they met on Facebook. And at one point, her friend said he paid them both to take a shower while he watched. Have you paid underage girls for sexual acts? Never. Never. I, ha- I have been to massage parlors, I admit that. Uh, I have uh, picked up girls off Craigslist, I admit, admit that. But I have never, never in my life paid a girl, an underage woman, girl, for sex. Before I continue here, that's interesting that he admits that he has gotten prostitutes off Craigslist, presumably ones that are selling their services which were not legal because some people don't know this. They just assume that all prostitution is legal in Las Vegas. The answer is no, it is not. There's no prostitution that's legal in Las Vegas. There are counties in Nevada where there are legalized brothels where you can go, like in Nye County where Pahrump is located, but and uh, I think a few other counties in northern Nevada, but Clark County where Las Vegas is located prostitution of all forms is illegal there are plenty of prostitutes in las vegas as you know but it's technically illegal now is this a major crime that he has gone to girls from craigslist no are they going to prosecute for him for that no but again i don't know if that's smart to be admitting at this point this is kind of a thing like an attorney will tell you a criminal attorney will tell you and he has a criminal attorney so i uh, the criminal attorney probably isn't very happy to see him admitting to this to channel eight but attorneys will tell you when you're accused of a crime to never volunteer anything, that you should always say the minimum when you're accused of a crime. Because really everything you say can be used against you, even if you think it's not going to be or can't be. You just keep to the absolute minimum, unless it's something that is pertinent to your case that can get you off. If there's something you can say that would uh, make you seem less guilty, then you can say it, something that directly 
would go against the charges against you, but just saying, oh, yeah, I, I get girls off Craigslist, but they've never been underage. <laughs> that already paints a picture. Yeah, but, Drop, he said met girls, though. I didn't take that automatically as prostitution. Maybe, maybe. It could be found, a, you know, like a dating thing. No, they did away I with that. I think that could be interpreted different ways. Yeah, they, they did do away with that a few years ago, but I guess he could claim that's what he meant, that he just met girls off Craigslist that uh, but didn't pay them. Yeah. Okay, well, let me go on here. He insists there are several flaws in the criminal case against him. Part of the case is sealed, but what the I-team can confirm? The warrant for Davis was issued in September of 2016, but he wasn't taken into custody until a traffic stop in April of 2019. I made an effort to come to my house. They never came to my store. I'm very high profile. Anybody, a 10-year-old boy scout can find me. Davis runs Real Grinders, which has a website, a Facebook group, and storefront on Valley View near Twain. He was active on social media while he was a wanted man. I got a big following. I'm on social media. My whereabouts is there. I got a custom custom red Camaro with my name on it, RG, my business RG on it. In court? Yeah, that, that part's right. That part makes no sense. He definitely made no attempt to hide. The Metro detective who worked the case testified he didn't personally try to arrest Davis. The criminal apprehension team was assigned the case one month after the warrant was issued, and the information was entered into a national crime database about seven months later. If they would have sent me a subpoena saying I had a warrant, I would have just went to I would have just went downtown. Or turned myself in, went to court, paid bail, whatever. Davis's bond was originally set at $25,000, which he posted. But after he tried representing himself in court, requested a new judge, and made allegations about the judge and prosecutor, his bond is now set at half a million dollars. Judge Jacqueline Bluth referred to inappropriate behavior by Davis in her courtroom, three previous felony convictions, and more. I'm not sure what the three previous felony convictions were, but obviously the judge was insulted by his behavior in the courtroom and what she called inappropriate and also the demand that that uh, he get a new judge. Supposedly he was saying that they're conspiring against him, that they're trying to uh, convict him based upon non-evidence and that they're, the, that this, they're not giving him a fair trial here basically is what he's trying to say the judge is in on it the da is in on it that they're just looking to screw him and he made those allegations in court apparently and then the wanted a new judge and the existing judge got insulted and now his bail's up to 500k which to me is insane i mean if if he was that out of line slap him with a conviction uh with a contempt of court charge but to raise his bail from this doesn't make any sense According to prosecutor Stacy Collins, he has several different aliases, which Davis denies. From day one, it has been total bias against me. If I had arrest worn out and I was a danger to community, why wouldn't they come and get me? The I-team reached out to Metro Police to find out why it took so long to arrest Davis. A spokeswoman said there is an ongoing criminal investigation, which doesn't really answer our question. <laughs> Vanessa Murphy... Eight news now. <laughs> we can also tell you that a trial is set for Davis for February. This doesn't really this doesn't really answer our question. Yeah, you think? Here's my theory on that, by the way. Here's my theory on 
what took all this time. But before I give my theory, Trader Ruski, do you have a theory as to why it took so long to arrest him for something this serious? I just think, yeah, they, I'm sure they just thought it was maybe some jilted girl. I don't know. They obviously didn't take it too seriously. I, I Okay, so I think it's a combination of those two things. First of all, I think they – so Ray Davis, when he was first uh, arrested, was saying – part of the defense was that the two girls who are accusing him are gang members. They have a criminal history of their own. Uh, one of them had tried to get a job at the Real Grinders Lounge, and they didn't give it to her, but that showed that she wasn't actually bitter towards him about anything, that she – liked him enough to want to go get a job at the Real Grinders Lounge this past summer, and I think I think she's like 19 now, so it, uh, uh, this one's not a minor anymore. So I, I think maybe those, at the time, first of all, they thought these girls, even though they were underage, were kind of street smart in the first place, and this wasn't necessarily uh, a predator going out to, to pick up you know, young underage girls, but he happened to meet girls who were underage and they paid them for sex, which which is a crime, which you shouldn't do, which is which is bad. But that might have been part of the reason they didn't see a super urgency to run out and get him. But I think the second thing is that there was just incompetence, and what they said to Channel Eight would kind of imply that. Where they said that, so the detective who worked on this case said that he handed this off to a different department to actually go make the arrest. And I think there was probably some kind of disconnect there and it just slipped through the cracks. I think it was just incompetence where this case just was forgotten about, as strange as it seems. I think they really just lost it because because there was more than one hand in this cookie jar. Had it just been this detective, then obviously he knows the with the case of whether he's made an arrest or not. But since he handed this over to a different department to actually make the arrest... Something got lost there. They may have actually physically lost it. Who knows? But uh, they have so much coming on their desks because Las Vegas is a lot of crime. So probably this particular crime was forgotten about or lost in some way. And yet it was entered into the system. So eventually when he got a traffic stop two and a half years later, there was this arrest warrant. And then they got everybody's attention again at the police department. Like, oh, yeah, we forgot about this. Okay, well, yeah, yeah, uh, Ray, you've got to answer for these crimes. So I think I have a feeling that's what happened, and that's why the police don't want to comment on it. They'll they'll sound terrible if they say, "Yeah, this uh, accused child sex for money case." Uh, yeah, we we kind of forgot about it. We kind of shoveled it between two depart- departments, and we kind of didn't arrest the guy and forgot forgot for over two and a half years. <laughs> I mean, that that'll look awful. So right now they're hiding behind. We can't comment. It's an ongoing case. I want to see what comment they have when the case is finally over, which will happen at some point. I, I would love to know what excuse they will have, how this possibly could have happened. I don't think it was intentional. Because if they thought it had no credibility, they would have just dropped it. They would have told the girl, sorry, not enough evidence, goodbye. They thought it was enough credibility to issue an arrest warrant. So I think it was one of these things they didn't think it was serious enough to drop everything and run down and get him. But I think that it was serious enough to where they thought, okay, it's credible enough to where, okay, we've got to arrest him and go through the motions here and charge him. And then it just didn't happen because of bureaucracy shuffling between the 
department of the detective who does the investigation and whatever this department is that actually uh, does the arrest. Pretty embarrassing for Las Vegas police. But even worse, or I don't know if it's even worse, but additionally, it's so weird this whole thing is going on with the DA and the judge. I just, I'm not hearing good reasons in there for why the bail should jump from 25K to 500K. If 25K was the wrong bail for the, quote, three previous felonies, why was it set at 25K in the first place? Who set that bail? Wasn't that the same judge? It doesn't make any sense. But I've always had the feeling that there's kind of a, a corruption to Las Vegas, the Las Vegas criminal court system. And by corruption, I don't mean that they are just charging him here when he's not guilty. I'm not saying that this these charges are not legitimate. But I've seen corruption the other way. I shouldn't say I've seen it. I've suspected corruption the other way. I've mentioned that there's certain attorneys there that you can hire in Vegas, and they just get tremendous results for you. Tremendous. And I've thought to myself, how are they managing that? Maybe they're great attorneys, but boy, they're getting tremendous results for their clients. They're very expensive, these attorneys, but boy, they're getting tremendous results. If I was ever accused of a crime in Las Vegas, that's who I'd hire 100%. But something's a little bit weird of how good their results are. And Vegas has a known history of corruption in its criminal uh, proceedings back when it was run by the mob, basically. But it's not a mob town anymore, so you'd think this wouldn't be going on at this point. But there may still be an undercurrent of corruption that's existing, even though the mob is not in control anymore. Just maybe something that got kind of embedded in the culture there, maybe kind of like Chicago in a way, which is full of corruption in many aspects. Maybe Vegas has its own version of that. And maybe Ray is experiencing the other side of that, rather than having the superhuman attorneys who can just get you a slap on the wrist when it looks like you're screwed. He's got the other side of the coin where he has no attorney, and he pisses off the judge, and then he gets slapped with a higher bail than he could ever imagine. And is stuck, in, and suddenly he's being accused of these phantom identity theft things that it didn't seem like he really did. Maybe that's their way of saying, "You don't behave this way here. You don't fuck with us here," or "This is what happens." So he may be getting the negative side of uh, possible corruption, or even if it's not. Corruption being the correct word, maybe just uh, improper use of the judicial authority. Now, maybe there's something I'm missing because I wasn't at the courtroom. I don't have full knowledge of this case. I'm commenting as an outsider who only has limited information. And this is why I was hoping this iTeam exclusive from Channel 8 in Las Vegas would shed some light upon it. But they are shedding no light. And the I-team at Channel 8 thinks this is just as weird as I think it is. 
They don't understand the bail jumping up from 25k to 500k. They don't understand the two and a half years to arrest him, and he only got arrested because of a traffic stop. They don't understand either, and they cover things like this all the time. They know Las Vegas and its criminal justice system much better than I do. So something's weird here. Even if gay, even if Ray is 100% guilty, then there's something weird here. There really is. Something just so off about this case. So I don't know how it's going to end for him. This will be in February. It's not good that the judge already hates his guts. We'll have to wait till then. I guess that's a cautionary tale that if you're accused of a crime in Vegas, you, you be careful what you say and do in court. And you don't represent yourself. What a mess. I think maybe this is kind of a perfect storm of a number of things coming together that are unrelated. Maybe the incompetence and bureaucratic error on the part of the police department. Maybe a DA and judge who both are personally angry at Ray for the way he behaved towards them. Or maybe even some incompetence there in wrongly believing he was guilty of this identity theft. And by the way, I guess there's a chance he's guilty of this stuff, and I'm just not aware of it. There's that too. Maybe something will come out later that he was using different identities to commit other crimes. At which point I'll feel like a fool for saying these things. But I, my gut feeling is that this is not true or even something that a reasonable person could believe. And it's so weird to be throwing this on top of everything else. Because the allegations against him involving these two teenagers are serious enough. It's not like you've got to throw other things on the pile to make the crime of paying underage girls to have oral sex with you taken more seriously. That's serious enough by itself. So it's just really, really weird. And regardless of the seriousness of the charges, and regardless of whether or not he's guilty... And regardless of the fact that he was accused of something similar 15 years ago. And that would also influence a reasonable person's belief in his guilt. This whole thing is proceeding in a very, very non-standard and peculiar fashion. Now, if you're listening to this show, and you've got something to tell me about Ray Davis that I don't know already, you can tell me. I will listen with an open mind. But you've got to be honest with me. No fake accounts. No phony pictures. No lying to me. Because if you do that, I'm going to tune you out. I'm not going to take anyone seriously who's going to approach me in a dishonest fashion. I just can't. And I feel that's a very reasonable position for me to take. And we will see where this goes. I don't want anyone to misconstrue this segment that it's me saying that he's innocent or didn't do it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we should see what happens, see what evidence comes out, see if he gets convicted. I'm sure more will be found out as time passes. Then we can make our judgment. And then we can go from there. But the whole thing is weird. And I don't know what to say about it at this point. 
If you want to follow along yourself, by the way, there's a poker news article about it too, but it pretty much just says the same thing as this 8 News Now report I just played you. But if you want to follow along, it's a little bit difficult because there are two different cases involved. It got transferred in May to district court. So the case you'll probably find when you search for Ray Davis will just end in May and you're going you're to go, what the hell's going on? So if you want to search for a case, you've got to search for this one. C-19-342-9400-2. Once again, that's C-19-342-946-1. And that is the case number that you need to search. And by the way, don't bother emailing your friends with a link to the case information on Ray Davis because the Clark County Court system doesn't work that way. There is no way to have a permanent link to anybody's case. You actually have to search it new every time. There will be a link that works for about 15 minutes and then stops working. So you might as well not bother. <laughs> they, I don't know why they do it that way, but they make you do a new search after like 15 minutes. So just jot down that case number and keep checking it every so often. Don't bother bookmarking anything except for the search page itself. If you want to have a link to the search page, go to page 7 on the Raymond Davis thread in the Flying Stupidity Forum of Poker Fraud Alert. And at the top of that, you'll see the case number and the search page link. And you can click it and follow along for yourself. And you can also keep checking that thread, and there will be various updates as they come along. There been various people updating that thread, including me. And if you have something to say yourself about it, Come say. Come speak. Poker Fraud Alert is a site that does not cover for anybody or hide information. If there's something that you want to reveal about things like this, you always can. I know 2 plus 2 will sometimes say, oh, this topic isn't appropriate. I don't know if they ever had a post over there because 2 plus 2 is pretty much dying. So that's part of the reason, too. But sometimes they'll delete this type of thing when it's posted there for whatever reason. I don't do that. The only way I would delete a thread is if it appeared someone was creating a thread to make a completely false accusation to like trash their name on Google. So let's say let's say there's a poker player named John Smith and someone came to Poker Fraud Alert and said, John Smith is a child molester and has molested 100 kids. I go, okay, that's pretty serious accusations. Can you point us to some source that would make us uh, believe this? No, 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 I just know it. Well, I'm not going to let that thread stand because then when you Google John Smith's name, even if, t- take a name that's less common than John Smith, but I'm just using that as a generic name. If you Google that name, that thread will come up and people will think very bad things about this person, which are probably not true. So if some serious accusation is made against someone without any kind of believable evidence, I don't, it doesn't have to be ironclad evidence, but at least something believable, then I, I would delete it, but other than that rare exception, I let everything stand. And I think it's important for people to have a place that they can post about matters that concern them, about people that concern them, as long as they're willing to be open about why they're making the accusation and what evidence they have that it's occurring. So the rest of us can follow along and see if it's true. But aside from that, yeah, just... Come post what you want. And that's what I even told these fake accounts. I'm like, I, my site's been 
covering this more than anyone, and my site is completely open to anyone who wants to say anything about it. So what more could I do? No one can say Poker Fraud Alert has been covering anything with this one. And the reason there's some people suspect that is because I had a decent relationship with Ray prior to this whole thing. And Real Grinders was supportive of Poker Fraud Alert and, and vice versa. And some people thought, oh, okay, well, you know, Drop's not going to want to cover this one. Well, we covered it back in May. I'm covering it now. And it's covered on my forum. So there you go. And I've covered everything. From the 505, a text message, based on the unnecessary Craigslist admission by Ray, I'm not surprised he failed at defending himself in court. Yeah, I, I agree. I was going to say, it probably wasn't a good idea to reference the uh, 10-year-old Boy Scout in his interview, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. When you're accused of anything involving minors, you should just like never make any kind of analogy that also involves a minor. I, I like when uh, Jerry Sandusky was being accused of uh, all his terrible crimes against uh, young boys. And when he actually went on an interview with Bob Costas, and they're like, are you attracted to young boys? And instead of just like quickly saying no, he's like, well, what do you mean? You mean like, like, like sexually? Or is that what you mean? Like, like I'm attracted to young people in general, but, but not, not sexually. Like, <laughs> what kind of terrible answer is that? The answer to the question, are you attracted to young boys? No. Like, that's, that's what everybody would say. Like, I, I, can't, think, yeah, well. I, I can't think of anybody else without that. That's just like a reflex reaction. If somebody came up and said, hey, Todd, are you attracted to young boys? Immediately, the answer would be no, not one bit. <laughs> not well, what do you mean? Well, I'm attracted to young people, just just you know, not sexually. <laughs> what is he talking about? That guy was so guilty, but uh, that was that was a whole mess in itself. I mean, the Penn State, the way that was covered up and mishandled, and they really valued their football program above everything else, and let this go on for so long because they didn't want to ruin the program, didn't want to ruin the donations to the program and the prestige of the program. So it was amazing. It was a pretty amazing story. And I, I felt bad for the kids that, that what they went through at the hands of that guy. And he even uh, adopted kids and abused them. I mean, it was just awful. Anyway, we'll see where this goes. Obviously pretty serious accusations. And Real Grinders has finally started allowing discussion of this. In fact, they've made statements on Real Grinders about this. But they, oddly, on the statement they actually made, they didn't allow replies to it. They made it just an announcement that can't be replied to. And the group kind of died just because they started moderating posts. If they didn't start moderating posts, the group actually wouldn't have been that affected, believe it or not. But what seems to have really slowed down the group is the fact that all the posts are moderated now. So this is what was posted by Terry King, who's a moderator on Real Grinders, also a friend of Ray Davis. She's an old-school poker player and dealer dating back to the 70s. I met her in person in February. She wrote, Raymond didn't want anything posted till now, as he didn't want the group flooded with his personal issues. But all you deserve to know what's happening. He agreed to, this, to the interview. He, think, he thanks everyone for the support. His pets are being cared for. Hopefully his attorney can at least get his bail reduced and he can get out. PMS if he wants. Thanks, everyone. Here's a statement. 
As many of you know, Raymond Davis is involved in a serious court case. It's public record. He didn't want anything posted until now, as he doesn't want to flood the group with it. He denies the charges and knew nothing of the 2016 warrant until arrested in April. That part, I believe. Facing over 100 years, he said they offered him straight probation, no jail time, if he'd plead to a Class E felony. That's interesting. I don't see evidence of that anywhere else, but it might be true. Uh, And registered as a sex offender. He refused. He pissed off the judge, and she threw him in jail for over two months. Now the DA pulled up five random guys that apparently have nothing to do with Raymond. She says they're his aliases with phony social security numbers. She used their crimes to up his bail to 500000 The media went to go interview Ray Davis downtown. They whisked him off to North Las Vegas jail. Media found him, and the interview aired on Channel 8 at 11 p.m. last night, November 26th. He also has gone to FBI twice about this case. He, he said that while sympathetic, they wouldn't get involved. That doesn't surprise me. The alleged victim asked, for, asked him for a job at the lounge last year. Very interesting. Also, C.C. O'Hare showed up at his first court appearance, took pictures of him in handcuffs, and posted them all over the Internet along with his warrants. I understand she printed them up and passed them out at home poker games. Now she's apparently one of their star witnesses. Seriously, if he's guilty, he should pay for his crimes. If not, the damage is irreparable. I personally just want the truth to come out and justice be served as we all do. So this is from Terry King the official statement from her about it. C.C. O'Hare was a friend of Ray's up until maybe a year and a half ago, maybe two years, something like that. She's like a 50-year-old woman, and she used to post in Real Grinders. She was a friend of Raymond somehow. Then they had some big falling out, which I never quite understood, and she was banned from Real Grinders, and then she moved to other groups with people who didn't like Ray and they were bashing him. I never understood the whole thing. I never tried to understand it. Like it just seemed like stupid drama to me. and I didn't care. I didn't take any sides in it. I just didn't care. I just kind of ignored this CC O'Hare drama, but it is true that she seems like very much in the forefront of following this case and spreading it around to everybody. It wouldn't surprise me if she was one of the fake accounts that was showing up on my site and on Facebook, who knows? He said something about CC that he was staking her and she was losing and then he cut her off and she got pissed. That's what he, he claims is the problem. I don't know. I, you know that some, some falling out happened between the two of them. And Ray did have a lot of different people he ended up enemies with over the years since he started Real Grinders. Like just a lot of enemies kind of popped up who were once friends of his. And some of them have come to me too. Not so much recently, but in the past... And say, hey, you know, Ray Davis is really shady. You should know that. I go, okay, I'm listening. Tell me what. Okay, I'll, I'll message you tomorrow with all the information. Go, okay, I don't hear from them. A few months later, hey, so, you know, Ray Davis is really shady. Oh, yeah, you told me that before. Can you send me the information? Oh, yeah, okay, sure. Nothing. Like, I, I'm, I'm waiting for them to send me something. <laughs> I never get anything. And one of them said something to me the other day about it. And I said, again, go ahead. I'm listening. They still haven't sent anything. I don't know what the hell to say. I don't know what the hell to say. I'm telling you guys the truth. I'm not covering up. I'm not. It's not like they sent me things and I'm making excuses for it. They, no one's sending me anything. They're, they're saying they sent me something and they send me nothing. It's weird. The whole thing's so weird. Whenever anyone has allegations against anyone else, I say, okay, show me. Whether I know the person they're accusing or not, I always say, show me. I'd like to see it. And then we'll go from there. That's always what I tell everybody. I can't just blindly believe accusations. And at the same time, I can't blindly say that accusations are false. I have to see the full extent of the accusation and then use my best judgment. But if 
the people accusing will not send that to me or promise to send it and send nothing, then there's nothing I can do. Very weird. All right, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355, the phone number to the show. Also, you can text me at 775-372-8355, always your text number, and I will respond to you at some point, probably not during the show. I may respond to you on the show, but the text back will come at some other point. Moving on to our next subject. We only have six poker and gambling topics. That was our main story tonight. On a much lighter note, let's move away from accusations of child sexual assault and move on to something that's much less controversial, but nevertheless a controversy. It involves Alan Kessler and another poker player named Jason Brawl, B-R-A-L. And this has to do, it's a very important topic, something that we all need to consider. We, we can't take for granted anymore. The very important definition of the word overlay. <laughs> yes. What does overlay mean? Well, to you, overlay may seem like a simple concept. If you know anything about tournaments, that if there's a guaranteed tournament where there's a guaranteed prize pool, no matter how many people register, where there's a minimum guaranteed prize pool, and if they do not get enough entrance to normally reach that prize pool and the, and the casino or the poker room has to add money to the prize pool anyway in order to make the guarantee basically out of their own pocket, then that is considered an overlay, which of course is good for the player because you're playing for a higher prize pool than there should have been thanks to the guarantee. Once the guarantee is reached, meaning that the normal buy-in process reaches that prize pool anyway, then the guarantee doesn't matter anymore and the prize money is distributed normally with nothing added. So poker players are always looking for overlays, those that play tournaments, and sometimes poker players will play a tournament just because there's an overlay when otherwise they would not have played. An extreme example would be, let's say there's a tournament for $500 buy-in, and there's a $100,000 guaranteed prize pool. So to reach the 100000 mark, they would need... 200 entrants, because 200 times 500 is 100,000. Well, let's say the tournament was a complete flop, and they got 37 entrants. So, ignoring what the house rake is, the prize pool would normally be uh, 18,500. But instead, it's 100,000. So the casino, in that case would have to add over $80,000 to the prize pool out of its own pocket. And that's great for the player. That's incredible value, even for the average player in the tournament. That's incredible value. Because they're paying out way, way more than was taken in. However, in real life, it doesn't happen that way. In real life, you don't get overlays like that. Occasionally online... It's found on some obscure sites that this happens. But the reason this doesn't happen is because word gets around, whether it's a live tournament or an online tournament, the word gets around and people hear about an overlay. And if you heard about such a tournament with a 100,000 guarantee where there would only be 18,000 normally in the prize pool as registration is closing, you would make sure to play it, even if it was a tournament that you really weren't planning upon playing. 
You would, in fact, probably go through great lengths to play this tournament within reason because of the tremendous value. Now, if there's a small overlay, let's say there's 100,000 guarantee and the prize pool without the guarantee would have been 98,000. Well, that's a small overlay, but that's not a whole lot of additional value. It's about 2% extra value, big deal. Nice, but not anything worth running down to the card room for if you aren't going to be there anyway. That's what an overlay is, and that's what we've all known an overlay to be for many years. But Alan Kessler always finds a way to, I don't want to say complain, though that too. He does find a way to complain. But he does find a way to find fault with things, often reasonable. Often he finds fault where others have just overlooked the fault. And other times he kind of over-complains. And this comes from a guy who is not shy about complaining himself. Overall, I think Alan Kessler is good for poker because he does speak out on behalf of players when uh, when poker rooms or casinos are not acting properly. And he has gotten things changed for the betterment of players because he's spoken up. And you can't overlook that. Even the times that he's wrong, he's definitely been a net positive for the community, even if you don't care for his personality. But putting that aside, uh, he's had issues over the years with tournament director Matt Savage, whom I like. I like both of them. I like Kessler and I like Matt Savage. And I, I believe both of them like me as well. And then uh, Justin Hammer, former Commerce Tournament director, who got let go for unknown reasons recently. But uh, Kessler would criticize them a lot. And some people felt he was disproportionately criticizing them, like actually looking for reasons to criticize them where he let other rooms off a little more easily. That he just enjoyed being able to criticize Matt Savage. Or anything associated with Matt Savage. So, a situation came up recently where he complained on Twitter. And he brought this complaint to me and I said, no, I don't agree. His complaint was that they were advertising that there's no unlimited re-entries. And that there's no re-entries at all, but... You can re-enter, you can re-enter on different flights. So there's like eight to ten different flights for an event. And you can't re-enter any flight, but you can re-enter different flights. So you can still fire like ten bullets at it if you play all ten different flights. So Kessler's saying, oh, come on, that's, that's dishonest. You can't, you can't put no re-entry. And then in reality, there are like nine re-entries you can do if you just wait to do another flight. And he, I think he talked about this on the show when we had him on recently. I felt that as long as it was clear, which it was, they were very clear about it. Unlike a lot of tournaments where they try to bury things in the fine print, they didn't do that here. It was very clear. It said no re-entry on same flight. Now, I agree it's kind of dumb terminology to say that, no re-entry on same flight. It's kind of a pointless thing to even have. And I think as Kessler either brought up on this show or brought up at the time he and I discussed it, I forget when, that this actually hurts recreational players who would like to do a same-flight re-entry, but probably don't, they don't have the time to keep coming back day after day after day to do this. The only ones who do are, are pros. So he's saying all this does is hurt the recreational players who would re-enter more if they could, but the pros still can't, which I kind of agree also. But putting that aside, he was saying this is unethical for them to even write no re-entry, even if they put on the same flight, clearly on the same flyer. I don't agree with that. If they, whatever a poker room wants to do, if they're very clear about it when they're doing it beforehand, as long as it's not breaking the law or anything, 
if they're very, very clear about it up and very upfront to where everyone understands when they read the flyer, and I don't mean the fine print, I mean the main flyer, the main thing advertising the tournament, then it's fine. And that's what happened here. They said no re-entry on same flight. Very clear. So Commerce did nothing wrong. Matt Savage did nothing wrong. I felt Kessler was being petty with this particular criticism, even though I've agreed with him with many of his other criticisms. Well, this somehow morphed into a completely different but sort of related discussion. And that was because there had been a claim at some point about an overlay that Kessler didn't feel was an overlay. Justin Hammer, who now works at a different place, tweeted this on November 23rd. The added money seems to follow me wherever I go. $22,960 overlay at the TV poker room. I'm not sure what that is. Main event. Players love it, but it's getting tougher to find work. Kidding, of course, but it is great to work for places that always honor their guarantees. Hashtag overlay tournament director. So he's kind of joking around here saying, oh, look, wherever I go, there's an overlay. I'm going to get fired everywhere. (laughs) Because poker rooms don't like overlays because it means they lose money on the event. But he he was advertising that there was an overlay of almost 23000 at this new place he's working. So then Kessler responded a day later, November 24th. Come on, there were 356 players putting in 1500 each. The guarantee was 500000 That means 534000 was paid in players, not counting revenue from all the mega satellites. This is not an overlay, although a good deal for the player. The players actually paid a reduced rake of $96.00 with 1404 going to the prize pool. So basically what Kessler's saying is, this isn't an overlay. Stop lying about it. Stop bragging about an overlay. The reason rooms brag about an overlay is because it makes people want to participate in future events thinking that there's overlays frequently happening there. That's why poker rooms love to say, oh, look, an overlay, look, an overlay, because they want to get more people down there, both at this tournament, if it's still registering, or at future events, if it's not registering anymore. So it's to their benefit to advertise that overlays have occurred or are about to occur. So Kessler's saying, look, you're not being honest about this. This is not really an overlay. If the guarantee's 500K and you guys took in 534K, there's no overlay. It reduced the rake, but there's no overlay. Now, what what does he mean by reduce the rake? Okay. Each tournament has a buy-in and entry fee. And this is true of all tournaments everywhere. The World Series is like this. Uh, every tournament's like this. Some of them break it out into different parts when you're buying in. So they'll say like uh, like 300 plus 65, meaning 300 goes in the prize pool, 65 the casino keeps or uses for, mother, for some other purpose. Or sometimes it'll just be a flat buy-in and then they'll have somewhere in the fine print on the structure sheet of where exactly the money goes. So, like, the World Series is like this. You just play a, a $1,500 event. Well, all 1500 of what you buy in doesn't go in the prize pool. They take out, uh, in those events, the 1500 I think they take out 10% or maybe 8%. I know, I know the thousands take out 10%. The, the 1500 may ta- take out 8%. Whatever. They take out some percentage like that, and then some of it the house keeps, some of it they use to pay the dealers and, and other staff, but uh, that part doesn't make it back to the players. And this is all very standard. I'm not criticizing anyone here or any organization here. And it's even fine for them to just state a buy-in amount and not break it out. It's it's actually nice when they break it out so you can see exactly how much is coming out of the prize pool. But they don't have to. You can look it up. And that's that's good enough, in my opinion. 
And Kessler wasn't even complaining about that. What he was complaining about is the fact that they were claiming an overlay just because their normal amount of fees they're collecting, you know, the portion that they take out for the entry fees, that that gets reduced because they were saying that uh, for an overlay not to occur at all, what Justin Hammer was basically making the point of is that we have to collect enough entries to where not only does the prize pool get up to 500000 but that we also collect the entry fees in full without having to give some of that back. And so what Justin Hammer is saying, yes, we collected 534000 but of that 534, 500 has to go into the prize pool where normally it wouldn't because our fees are actually higher than that. So we actually have to take a smaller percentage of fees in order to make the guarantee. That's basically what he's saying there. And Kessler's saying, come on, that's not an overlay. An overlay only really is when you don't take in as much money, period, as much as your guarantee is. And that's it. It doesn't matter how you break it out with entry fees, buy-ins. If you say the guarantee is 500000 you don't collect 500000 there's an overlay. Otherwise, there's no overlay. That's what Kessler's saying. Jason Brawl, who argued back with Kessler, said, no, what happened there at Justin Hammer's new room was an overlay. Because they still had to subtract from their entry fee, it made the rake cheaper, therefore it's an overlay. So that brought up the question. Okay, what does overlay really mean? And that's something I hadn't really thought of before. Of when can they actually declare an overlay? Well, before I saw any of this was going on, the following tweet was made also on November 24th. Hey, Jason Brawl. I'll use this event for our prop bet. You and Justin Hammer claim an overlay. I say it's only reduced rake. The arbitrators are Mac Verstandig, who's an attorney who often takes cases related to poker, and Todd would tell us. If both agree to either side, one of us wins. If they disagree, it's a push. Any amount up to $1,000. Wow. One little problem, though. He had not discussed this with me. I had no idea this was going on. I had not agreed to be an arbitrator. <laughs> As a typical Alan Kessler, and he meant well, and what he was basically saying is, I trust Mac Verstandig, and I trust Todd Wattellis. I, I really trust these two guys, and I really trust them to be fair to both sides. And, and he meant that. He wasn't trying to pick guys he thought were going to side with him. I think with me, he kind of was, actually. I think with me, he thought I was going to, I was more likely to side with him. But I, I think, like with Mac, I, I know he probably had no idea which way Mac was going to go. But basically, Alan came to this conclusion, and really his main thought was, I'm right, I'm meaning him. You know, he's thinking to himself that he's right. He's thinking, who are two logical guys that I know who are honest, who will analyze this and come to the same conclusion as I did, and won't lie about it, and won't be biased, and they'll just... You know, and, and they're smart enough and logical enough to figure this out. Who, who can I think of like this? So the first two names that came to mind were Mac Verstandig and me. And he just nominated us to do it. He didn't say, hey, I'll ask them if they can do it. He's like, oh, the arbitrators are these two, <laughs> which, which is typical Alan Kessler. Like like most other people would say, let's see if they want to do it. Alan Kessler's like, oh, that, these guys are the arbitrators. Haven't asked them, but they're, they're just going to do it. And keep in mind, we're not being hired to arbitrate here. You heard the ad I, pay, I play for Eric Benzamokin if you need an arbitrator or mediator about anything, that he can do it. And I still recommend him for that. But uh, this he, that's actually a commercial service that he does for you. 
Um, this, this is to be a free job, a free arbitration job, which is especially offensive for Mac for Standig because at least I'm not an attorney. Okay, at least I, uh, I'm not someone who does any kind of legal arbitration. But uh, Mac for Standig, this is what he does for a living. So he's being asked to basically do uh, free arbitration work, and in a way I was too, but at least that's not my profession. Well, Mac agreed, and I decided to agree also. I said, I, I don't want to be a killjoy in this whole thing. Everybody wanted to see what we'd come up with, everybody involved in the Twitter discussion. They want to see what we'd come up with. And you might wonder... How well did I know Mac Verstandig? I've talked about him on this show a number of times because he always seems to be involved in these uh, poker cases where there's some poker player gets screwed in some way and then he is the one who ends up representing them. In fact, he's the attorney involved in the Stones case with Mike Possel. But even though I've talked about him a lot, I really have not talked to him prior to this whole thing. I've, I've responded to a few things he said on Twitter But we haven't even had a back-and-forth conversation on Twitter in public, nor had we ever talked in private before. Uh, We didn't have any problem with each other. We just hadn't really gotten to know each other or talked. But we were both aware of each other's existence. So since we both agreed to this, then we got to know each other then for the first time. And what he did was, and I was impressed by this, he actually wrote up a rough draft of what looked like an official uh, arbitration between the two of them. Like he didn't just type, oh, I think this person's right. I think that person's right. It wasn't just like a quick informal answer. He typed up a whole document that was like eight pages long and sent it to me and said, this is a rough draft. Let me know if you agree with me. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. But uh, we'll have to incorporate that in there. And if you do agree with me, you know, let me know if there's something you want to change here. So I read this, and again, this is, this is something he's doing for free. This is an attorney who, who wrote this whole eight-page document for free just to arbitrate this matter involved. No, sorry, ten-page document, not eight-page, a ten-page document. I'm selling him short. He even put a, a phony case number on it, um, 19-CV-001-TW-MV. Now, I can decipher some of this. 19 is probably the year. CV, I don't know what that is. Uh, 001, I don't know what that is. But then TW is my initials, and MV is his initials. So that's the fake case number. And it, it starts out with, in the, court of po- in the Court of Poker Arbitration, Alan Kessler, Chainsaw and Claimant, Versus Jason Brawl, agitator and claimant. And then it, it really looks like a, a authentic legal document as if this is a professional arbitration. But then it's, if you read it carefully, you can see there's a lot of jokes and uh, inside references that wouldn't normally be in, in such, such a document. So the whole thing's kind of... It, it was taking the matter seriously, but also was treating it for being as absurd as it really is because look they're, they're trying to have an arbitration over the na- the the definition of overlay it's one thing to discuss that but actually to bet and have an arbitration over the definition of overlay is pretty absurd so this is kind of a half parody half serious document so i read it and 
I was glad to see by the end that he and I basically had the same opinion independent from one another. Because before receiving his document, I looked into it and I was like, wow, I see both sides of this. I'm having a hard time coming up with a decision. Because I can see, first of all, there's no real obvious definition of overlay printed anywhere. It's not like this is some very, very concrete definition that has been known and accepted over a long period of time. There's just been kind of a a term that was used that was never all that well-defined. And I think whoever came up with that term didn't even think of the situation. And it's just been used all these years. And this question hasn't really been asked before. And I could see on both sides why each person feels they're correct. Jason Brawl feels, hey, an overlay is just if there's a guarantee and the guarantee helps the player. So if the poker room has to take money out of what they were normally going to collect for themselves and put that money back in the pool, that's an overlay. Even if all the money collected exceeds what the guarantee is, if the poker room has to reduce their rake, essentially, to in order to meet the guarantee, then it's an overlay. I can understand that. And I can also understand Alan Kessler saying, no, it's not an overlay. An overlay really should be if they don't collect enough money compared to what the guarantee is. That's the bottom line. That's very simple, the way Kessler sees it. That, and I'm not saying simple in a bad way. Just saying he's cutting through the BS and is going, look, you guys say 500000 guarantee. You collect the less than 500000 It's an overlay. You collect more than 500000 It's not an overlay. You're just charging less rake. So I could totally see both sides. I'm like, crap. How am I going to decide this one? Unlike most things that Kessler brings up where I say either he's right or he's wrong, with this one, I was like, ah, oh, I, I can see both sides. I wonder what Mac's going to say about this. Well, I get his document... And he feels the same way. <laughs> that there's, this is very tough to decide and that there really isn't a concrete definition, definition for overlay. So the document starts out... Well, actually, before I get to that, I'll tell you my part in this whole thing beyond whether I concurred with Mac or not. Now, remember, this is something we're both supposed to be arbitrating, not just him. I'm not just supposed to get a document from him and say, yeah, I agree, here's my rubber stamp. I'm part of this process, too. And I was happy he got the ball rolling by writing this long document. But uh, I wanted my opinions in there. And I also wanted to see if the document could be improved at all. Because, yeah, this isn't his actual job. This is something he's not getting paid for. And he probably hammered this out pretty quickly. And I thought, okay, I, I, I should read through this. I'm sure out of 10 pages I can find things to improve. Or things that I may want to put in that I want to say that he hasn't said. And sure enough, I found a a lot of them. And so I changed the document somewhat while keeping its general structure and general points. And keeping a lot of what he had there. But I also clarified some things that I felt weren't all that clear. Or added things so the reader would understand it better. Especially those that uh, don't understand legal language as well. I also tried to keep to the general tone of the document. I didn't just write it like I was writing a forum post. I was writing it as if I was writing a legal document. And I'm pretty good at imitating an attorney when I write these documents. Now, if an attorney read what I wrote, I'm not talking about this, but like if I, if I try to write 
a legal looking document, I could probably fool the average person into thinking an attorney wrote it. I'm, I'm pretty good at doing that. But if an attorney read it, they could probably see that I made some mistakes that a real lawyer wouldn't make. But I'm for the layperson, I, I could get it by most of them because I'm, I'm pretty good at doing that. So I was perfect for this job here because I was basically editing his document and adding things of my own in the same legal tone. And I'm good at writing that way. Like probably better than most or the vast, vast majority of non-lawyers at, at writing that way. So... I modified things, I added things, I deleted a few things, but not many. And I felt I clarified some things. I just, I changed it somewhat. The majority of it stayed as is. There was not much I outright deleted. And of course, since it was a collaborative effort, it wasn't like I was his boss and I could just change what he wrote. Of course, I had to send my changes back to him, and he might say, hey, no, I don't like this. I'm going to change it back, and I thought we'd have that process maybe. But, of course, this isn't a very serious matter, so I didn't think he'd be going overboard with that. And I sent it back to him, and I was very happy to hear that he was, quote, a big fan of my changes, he told me in our private conversation, that he thought I did a very good job, that he thought my version was uh, improved the clarity, and that uh, he even thought my legal language was good. Surprisingly good. So he liked very much what I did. I told him I liked very much what he did in the first place. And that uh, he wrote a very good and funny document. And that I only had to change some things. That uh, I was very happy with what he produced. And that uh, I had the easier part. So it was a good collaboration there. I thought between us, the, between his initial 10-page document and, and then my modifications, we came out with something that was pretty good and pretty funny, especially for those that understand the whole issue at play. Like, like for someone who totally knows nothing about poker, this might not be as entertaining, or those that don't know some insider things that have happened in the poker world, which we make reference to, it wouldn't be as funny. But if you just have general knowledge about overlays and about Alan Kessler and about uh, different controversies in the poker world over the years, you'll probably get all the jokes. And you should read it. Now, where can you find this document? Well, you can find it on my Twitter, at Todd Wittellis, that's T-O-D-D-W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S. Or if you don't want to search through my tweets, you just go to the Poker Fraud Alert forum, go to the Poker, Funi- the poker Community Discussion subforum, and look at the thread called I was one of two people selected to arbitrate in a, an argument between Alan Kessler and Jason Brawl. And then scroll down to post number three. And you can click on the PDF. And you can see the PDF of the whole thing. And re- really, I recommend you read it if you have even a slight interest in this. Because it's a it's a 10-page thing, which may sound overwhelming, but you can get through it pretty fast. And it's 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 not written – it's written in kind of legal language, but it's written also to be entertaining. And make sure to read all the footnotes. Like, this is not intended to be like a boring legal document. This is something that's like an enter- entertaining pseudo-legal document. But what was our conclusion? What, what did we come to? Who did we rule for? And by the way, they only ended up uh, betting a hundred dollars, not a thousand. A thousand would have been better, but uh, Kessler says a thousand, and then I, I think Brawl actually agreed to a thousand. Then Kessler's like, "No, how about we do a hundred? Something like that." <laughs> Kessler decided he didn't want to bet a thousand, 
And I think they both agreed they were going to donate whatever they win to charity. So it was in good fun. It wasn't a a bitter bet or anything, and they were really doing this for charity. And we went through as much as we could, and you know what? Mac and I both realized that there was no way to rule for either of them because the word overlay just was not established well enough. It just was not established well enough, and there is there are really two different ways to look at it. And there was no real source that defined overlay well enough other than like quick entries in a glossary, which was on some poker sites, which still didn't define it enough to separate when an overlay is and when an overlay isn't in a very specific way like is required here. So what we ended up doing was, and this may sound like a pussy move, but what we ended up doing was calling it a draw, saying that this is impossible to rule upon, and that it's basically a tie. And Mac wrote near the end, which is probably disappointing to those who trudge through the ten pages. Thanksgiving is this Thursday. This is released on Wednesday, by the way. The day before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is this Thursday. Anyone who read this far thinking we were going to anoint a clear victor at the expense of one of these two fine gentlemen is genuinely a fish. And in poker simple and in poker circles, we are satisfied that the word fish is without any de- definitional ambiguity. <laughs> so it's basically insulting the reader at the end. Ah, you got all the way to the end, and you're a big fish to think we we're going to rule against either of them. But th- this wasn't done to like as an fu to everybody. It was really. The truth was, and we discussed this privately, the truth was that there was really no way to decide this because there was no real definition to this. And it was very reasonable to see either way. However, it was noted in the document that if forced to pick a side, that we would have gone with Kessler. We kind of both slightly leaned towards Kessler, but that not enough to where we could rule for either side. And then also a suggestion was given to redo the term overlay to where any overlay where just everything collected by the poker room falls short of the guarantee, everything combined, including the entry fees, falls short of the guarantee, will be known as a chainsaw overlay, where an overlay that only comes out of the poker room fees, but does not, uh, but, but where they've collected overall from the players more than uh, what the guarantee is, that would be known as a brawl overlay, where it's simply reducing the rake. So that's a suggestion, that we don't just have overlays anymore. We have, this is a chainsaw overlay or this is a brawl overlay. And that will clarify it. So if it's a chainsaw overlay, you should probably get your ass down there and play. If it's a brawl overlay, ah, it's nice if you're there anyway, but not worth coming for. I mentioned... In my modification, you, you, in the document, it's just written by both of us. You can't see who wrote what part, but I'll tell you I wrote this part. I wrote, if even one penny is collected which is not returned to the player pool via prize money, the tournament becomes less than a zero-sum game for the players as a whole. All the players combined only walk away with a cumulative profit if the guaranteed deficiency exceeds the total entry fees collected. Basically meaning that all the money that was collected has to be less than the guarantee combined, or otherwise all the players together. If you add everybody's results up together, they still lose. Because let's look at this one. 534000 was collected. 500000 is paid out. Well, 
all the players combined lost 34,000. And that'll be true of every tournament where there's not an overlay. So I'm, in my opinion, if forced to rule on this, I'd say, look, if, if all the players combined are not making money, then it's not really an overlay, even if it reduces the rake. One thing that Mac wrote was that if the average player's EV, that is expected value, in the average tournament, on the average day, in the average poker room, will only turn positive if a guaranteed deficiency exceeds cumulative entry fees. So basically, you're a completely average player, and you're wondering what is your, what's your expected value in this tournament? What if you play this tournament a million times against the same people in the same room, and every time you're the exact average player skill-wise, and you had average luck? then would you win over time or lose over time? And in the brawl overlay, where more money is being collected than the guarantee, you will eventually lose. You will end up losing money in the long run if you're completely average and you have completely average luck. Whereas in the chainsaw overlay, the completely average player in an average circumstance with average luck would win money over time. So that's why we would slightly rule towards Kessler's favor. But at the same time, it is reasonable to say, look, if there's a guarantee and the guarantee is affecting what is being added to the prize pool and that happens, then why does it matter where the money comes from? Why does it matter if it comes from the entry fees or if it comes from the, the buy-ins? Where, why does it matter where it comes from? If the casino is putting in extra money, which they are in the brawl overlay, overlay situation, then shouldn't you be able to claim that's an overlay? Shouldn't an overlay just mean that the guarantee is taking effect in some way? So we can totally see it on both sides. And that's why we didn't want to award either side. Jason Brawl said that he is willing to donate the $100 anyway. He said he enjoyed the document, by the way. Jason Brawl said he is willing to donate the $100 anyway to a charity of Justin Hammer's choice. Not Kessler's choice, but Justin Hammer's choice. Even though this was considered a tie, Alan Kessler did not make the same offer, to my knowledge. So, as I said You can go to Poker Fraud Alert In the Poker Community Discussion Forum And you can click on the PDF Mac Verstandig also posted Like screenshots of this In like three tweets Where you can read it that way But I found it kind of difficult to read that way And it also wasn't very sharp on my device So I said, just go to the PDF And uh, I put the PDF on the forum, and it's actually being hosted on PokerFraudAlert.com. I'm not going to give the URL because it's pretty long, so I won't bother giving you that, but it is actually hosted on PokerFraudAlert. And it looks just like a legal document. And thank you to Mac Verstandig for all the time he put into this. I know he's a busy attorney, and he did this all for free. And I, I like the whole tone and a lot of the, the jokes he put in and a lot of references he put in, it was it was I, I found it very entertaining. What happened is I he told me he's gonna send me mail and I was tired. Mail meaning email. I was tired, so I fell asleep. I took a nap during the day. Uh and then he sent it and like five hours later I woke up and saw it. So the first thing I did actually before even getting out of bed was opening it up on my phone and reading it. And I, I was laughing several times, like, oh this is a funny document. So I really, I really liked it, and then I thought, well, okay, he's written a 10-page document. Now now what do I do, aside from agree or disagree? And then I read it more carefully on my computer. I go, okay, I have, I have some things I can change here. I have some things I can add. I have some things I can clarify. And 
So I, I, had, I actually spent a, more time on this than I should have. <laughs> I think I spent like two hours of this thing. It felt kind of weird. I spent like six to eight hours on the show every week, so I guess that's nothing compared to that. So anyway, it was fun. I enjoyed it. And it was nice getting to know Mac Verstandig. Seems like a nice guy. And uh, we worked together on this very well. Maybe we'll have him on the show at some point. Uh, but uh, kind of an interesting experience. And that's why I agreed to do it. And I just didn't want to... I didn't want to come back in this whole thing and go, oh, man, you you guys... Uh, like... I, I didn't want to say, no, guys, I didn't agree to this. F you, I'm not taking the time for this. I mean, like, I, I, I didn't want to be that guy. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I actually didn't think I was going to be spending two hours on it, but I spent two hours. Actually, two hours plus the... Conversing back and forth with Mac for standing too, which took some more time. I, I I shouldn't even try to think of how much time I spent on this. It's gonna kind of ruin the whole thing for me if I realize how much time I wasted. Trader Risky, how do you feel about uh, this controversy? Whose side would you have been on, or would you've come to the same conclusion as as uh, we did? I mean, I I would have said it was an overlay because I think you know the casino has expenses to put on things, so if if they made 536k, the expenses were 50,000 to run it. They're now giving up 14,000 plus losing out on any profit they would have made. So I just think that expense number has to be factored in somehow. Like if so say the expenses were 50,000. It was 500k guaranteed, right? Yeah. So if the expenses were fifty k, or I mean, if the if the if the juice, I guess they were making on it fifty k. So call it ten percent. Or how much do you think the expenses are that they'd be? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean maybe nine percent, you know? but yeah, they definitely gave up some. They definitely gave up some of that money back. And and yeah, I no, I know your point here because I actually made it. That I didn't read this part, but I'll, I'll read it since you brought it up. That the house actually actually Mac made the point too. We both made the point, and this is kind of like a portion that we both listed uh, in a sense whether a guarantee deficiency exceeds cumulative buy-ins or not is of no moment the poker room is compelled to reach into its figurative pockets to place monies into the prize pool and more pointedly it may often be the case that the monies placed in the, in the prize pool by the poker room from entry fees are not simply a reduction of profit it is likely that a portion of the entry fees are earmarked for dealer compensation or other per diem expenses, and such obligations may not be whimsically avoided or clawed back to satisfy a guarantee deficiency. Thusly, it is often, albeit always, uh, albeit not always true, that some portion, if not all, of a guarantee deficiency is made whole through the application of dollars booked as marketing or promotional expenditures. So, what promotional expenditures? What is at the end there? So. Yeah, it's basically saying what you just said here, that the casino has expenses and that they can't just say, well, because this is the part out of our entry fees, we're just going to pay the staff less or we're not going to pay the electric bill or we're not going to pay the security bill. They have fixed expenses they have to pay. And just because the portion of the overlay is coming from the entry fee portion that doesn't go back to the players doesn't mean that it's money they can really afford to give back. So, uh, But they have to anyway. So that's we're, – we're not just taking away from profits is what was being written there. And that, that paragraph is written by both of us. 
So, yeah, I, I see that's why I understand the Jason Brawl side of it. But I also kind of understood the Kessler side of it, that a player, an average player is not positive expectation unless they really take in less than the guarantee is. So that's why I couldn't come up with it. I can see why you feel that way. And that's why when I was trying to decide, I'm like, hmm, I can totally see it both ways. I I kind of want to side with Jason Brown. No, no, I want to side with Kessler. I kept going back and forth. And so, like, crap, how do I decide this? And I was so happy when I saw that Mac Verstanding felt the same way. So that was a, a fun little thing to do. And if you have any interest in this at all, go read it and... Um, actually, I didn't read you guys any of the funny parts. The, the stuff I just read you there was like a serious analysis of it, but there's there's funny little things thrown in. Make sure to read all the footnotes. Even Justin Hammer, or is it Savage? Either, either Hammer or Savage, who both like the document, they said to definitely read the footnotes. Okay, let's talk about something else now. America's Card Room. America's Card Room's had a lot of issues lately, and the biggest problem they've had, the biggest form of criticism that has been levied against them has to do with the proliferation of bots. There's a lot of bots on America's card room and there have been a lot of bots for a long time. Chicago Joey did an expose about that and it seemed like they were not taking the bots seriously enough. The site has been overrun with bots. They had an embarrassing situation where a bot got all the way heads up in a tournament and then malfunctioned and it was clearly a bot because by the way it was playing and every time it seems like they're doing something about the bots then they kind of don't follow through. Like they were saying, oh, we're going to be transparent. We're going to not only confiscate bots' money and and, uh, return the money to players and and be transparent about how much we're giving back, but we're going to list each bot that we closed, how much we took from that bot on the date it happened, and like they said, we're going to list all this. So they listed this for a few weeks, and they they stopped doing it. So they, they, they don't follow through with a lot of what they say. And CEO Phil Nagy, who is sometimes very engaging and very open with the players, other times just hides from everybody and won't answer anything and disappears. So the last few months, Nagy has been very difficult to find. He hasn't been answering anybody. The bot problem's been getting worse and worse there. And people were getting really frustrated with America's Card Room for this and other reasons. Well, Nagy popped up again on November 22nd and put out an update Now, this update was not written by him, but it looked like Nagy basically gave the instructions to the writer of what to say. This was written by someone named Bob Garcia. I don't know who that is. But November 22nd at 5.41 p.m. Pacific time, this was written. And this is on America Cardroom's own website. Yesterday on Twitter, a customer asked me for a status update regarding poker bots on the winning poker network. That's the network that they're part of. The main room is America's Card Room, but there's other skins that are also within that network. Here's an update as to our as to how our war against bots is going, what we've done in the past months, and its effectiveness. We've devoted some manpower in analyzing exactly how bots work and how they interact with the poker client. As a result, a major discovery has changed our approach and how to attack them. Our security teams discovered that both commercial and private bots process information at a poker table with what cards they have, what position the bots in, etc., by reading the graphical pixels. We found this was a common trait among the bots we tested. And what he's saying here for the non-technical people among you is that 
bots actually have a hard time reading the screen. For you, it's very trivial. You look at a poker screen, you can see what cards you have, you can see how many opponents are at the table, about what position you are to act. These, these are the very simplest parts of poker. In fact, uh, Benjamin, who's nine years old, I, I could teach him how to do this within a few minutes, and he could do it very effectively. However, this is actually much tougher for a bot. It's much tougher for a bot to read the screen and understand what it's seeing than a human who instantly can take all this in. So he's saying here that uh, they have figured out that these bots are mostly understanding what they're doing by reading what's displayed on the screen. And he said, as a result, we found that if we change the graphics within the poker client, it renders them useless until the new layout is solved, taking considerable manpower on their end in order to remap the table. Over the past months, we've made four graphical updates to the poker client in order to break the bots. So that's pretty straightforward. He's saying we changed the graphics on the site. Now the bots can't read it anymore. Unlike a human. If they, if they change the graphics on the cards, for example, as long as they still look like cards, you'll know what cards you're seeing. For a bot, no. A bot specifically looks for things, he's saying. And if the cards slightly change, even to you it's obvious that there's a ten of diamonds and jack of clubs on there, the bot can no longer see that until it's reprogrammed. So he's saying that the updates they did were on the following dates. May 20th, September 5th, October 15th, November 14th. If you notice, the last three have been occurring approximately once a month. This proved considerably effective in slowing them down as the programmers of the bots then had to remap the table, which often takes weeks or even months. Here are screenshots from some commercial bot messages to their clientele. From Shanky Software, the winning poker network, America's Card Room, Poker King, King, Black Chip, etc., just changed software and requires that we resupport them. It's a top priority and we're on it. Then from the Warbot, W-A-R bot, this is a post on their own forum. Yes, seems like Winning Poker Network decided to change fonts every one to two weeks, which is a problem. Another problem is that their bet fonts have become so blurred that scraping is not reliable anymore. Seriously thinking about abandoning this network. So this, I, I saw that post before and I knew America's Card Room was going to be proud of that. So the blog goes on to say, we then further staffed a customer analysis team to specifically evaluate the gameplay volume of both new and existing accounts. Specifically, they would look at the gameplay before and after the dates the bots were broken because of the graphical update, and then flag players who were playing consistently high volume before the update and considerably slowed or stopped their volume altogether once the new graphics were introduced. So that's, that's actually pretty clever that they change something to temporarily break the bots, a normal player shouldn't be affected by this, whereas bots would go from playing a super high volume to just stop playing until they can get themselves working again, and then they resume the high volume. So if a super high volume player abruptly stops playing every time you change the graphics, then you know it's probably a bot. Okay, going on. Once these players were flagged, they are then requested to complete a bot protocol. These steps involve producing a video of playing and recreating a session with the same amount of tables and length of time that they've been consistently playing. We then compare the player stats of the recreated session versus the stats of the historical session to determine whether they're a match. For those who pass the bot protocol, their accounts become reinstated. For those that do not, they are banned and added to our refund list to those players who have been affected. To date, we've banned and refunded 46 discovered bots and refunded over $450,000 to affected customers. We have more banned accounts and refunds to credit to our database. Since our update, we are still having problems accurately importing historical data, which is a reason that the refunds have been delayed. 
We want to ensure that the data is correct and every affected player gets his fair share of the refund. Let me stop right here. Well, actually, I'm going to read one more sentence and I'll stop. They are coming and every, bot and every dollar credited will be publicly posted as per our transparent and verifiable policy outlined here. Okay, that's where I want to go to. So let's look at their policy as far as reimbursement. Now, I, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I do want to mention one part of it. WPN's reimbursement policy. We, re we reimburse money from players by accounts proven to be breaking WPN's fair play policies. We use the following methods for reimbursement. WPN reimburses up to a cap of 25000 per offending player. What? Why? Why is there a cap? The reimbursement should be whatever you seize. If you cannot seize very much, if the person has cashed out everything or lost everything back by the time you discover what they're doing, oh well, then there's nothing you can do and you can't reimburse very much or at all. But whatever you capture from these bots when you close an account for being a bot, whatever is in the account, whether it's a dollar or $500,000, you reimburse the players that in a proportionate and fair manner, which it's, it's not – you're not able to make everybody whole. But you do it in the fairest possible way, and they, they have a way laid out. They do that, and I'm fine with that. I haven't really thought of it that closely, but it seems generally fine. But the part that's not fine is the cap of 25000 per player. Why? So if they catch a bot, let's say he has 100000 in his account, and they confiscate it. twenty five k goes back to the players, and seventy five k stays at America's card room? They just keep it as profits? Why? That's totally unethical. That's just stealing from the players. So you figured out that a player has been cheating, and you keep his money. Don't let him cash it out, which is great, provided you're correct. But then you keep whatever amount is over 25k. Why? Why do you guys get to keep it? So they they just say that like it's no big deal. No, we just we reimburse up to a cap of 25,000. They don't explain why. Just that's what we're doing. So imagine if like someone broke in your house and stole 100,000 from you. And you report it to the police, and the police say, good news, we caught the culprit, and we've recovered your $100,000. None of it's been spent yet. We have all 100000 back. Okay, great. Uh, when can I get my 100000 back? They go, no, no, no. Uh, you can get 25000 back. The other 75000 the police department's keeping. <laughs> uh, can you imagine what you'd say then? That'd be a tremendous scandal. So, so why, why is this fair? And they, they can't explain it, and they won't explain it, which is... One obnoxious thing. But going on. Within the client, we've also added a CAPTCHA service powered by Google Technologies that automatically prompts the player to correctly identify images. The CAPTCHA is displayed to the players after hitting certain milestones of hands played. Any players not present while their bot is running will fail the CAPTCHA test and have their account suspended for further review. Our next step is to implement graphical changes on individual hands and individual players while live play is happening. This way, the bot will will break that specific hand and will be able to spot, check, ban, and investigate players immediately with irrefutable evidence in hand. Okay, so these are both good ideas, but let me tell you, CAPTCHAs can be solved. They can be. I know a lot of people are borrowing the Google one now because Google's pretty good at what they do, and it's harder to solve that one than some other CAPTCHAs that have existed over time, but bots can solve CAPTCHAs. Uh, bots also don't have to be running with the owner not present. Especially knowing that this stuff is happening, a bot can run with the owner just sitting there. Or they could hire some minimum wage person to sit and watch it and just enter the capture when it pops up. 
So that doesn't mean that the that a bot isn't playing just because someone is at the keyboard. Uh, but I, I do think that definitely the whole thing about changing the graphics in the middle of people playing can be effective. But they, they would actually have to program the software to do that. They can't just push an update and force it to update in real time. But what they could do is they could actually have a few different graphic schemes loaded in and at a certain date and time just abruptly switch. And I think that's what they're talking about. And yes, that would be pretty damning if the second that switch hits, that bots stop playing while everybody else plays just fine. So that's a good idea. But I'll tell you shortly why this still all falls short. They go on to say, this is and always will be an evolving battle. As we get better modes of detection, bot operators will attempt to find workarounds. Regardless, we will continue to implement the solutions above while developing more tools to make our gameplay environment the safest on the internet. We will keep you posted as our progress continues. Well, there's one big problem that they're ignoring here. And this was brought to my attention by a guy who's actually called in before who has talked about the ACR bot issue. We had him on the show sort of recently. He was a caller. And he said, this is privately to me, but I'm going to read it anyway. The article Nagy put out is total horseshit. They know damn well that these bots don't use screen scraping. The tournament director even alluded to that seven months ago. Whatever the reason is, Nagy wants the bots to be there and he won't get rid of them. And he sent me a link about how the bots actually get the whole card information. Because I asked him, I asked this guy who's really been following the ACR bot situation, where I haven't followed it as closely. I said, look, I've seen that screenshot of that bot that they're thinking you're not supporting anymore because it's having trouble with these graphic changes. So maybe that is the solution. Maybe that is how the bots are using it. He said, no, no, no. Those are the crap bots. Those are the shitty bots. Those are the bots that are bought by people for $99 each. But the sophisticated bots, the ones that are used by these large networks of Europeans, the ones that are really making the big money, the bots that are really infesting the site, are much more advanced and aren't screen scraping. That the best bots, of which are the ones mostly infesting, the ones mostly that are infesting the site, are not reading the screen at all. And what they're actually doing is reading the RAM of the computer, that they figured out that uh, how to read the memory that's being stored by, uh, by the poker client when cards are being dealt. And pretty much everything that's going on in the client, they figured out how to read the client's memory without having to look at the screen. And that's how they're doing it. So changing anything on the screen is not going to help. In fact, it'll give America's card room and its players a false sense of security. And there's a YouTube video which explains this called uh, Party Poker Inspires Black Hat Software. And this is actually not about America's card room, but it's something similar. And it's showing something that uh, can do this that is was criticizing Party Poker's decision to uh, uh, not show hand histories. And they're saying why this is so important so they can detect bots. 
and that uh, so that's what this was put up back in July. But this also was showing that this can be done for not just party, but it, if this can be done with party, this can be done with other clients. And that the um, on America's card room, these clients really are just reading the memory, and they're not reading the screen. So that's very interesting. So that's, it sounds like either America's card room is ignorant to this or they're willfully ignorant. And they say, like, they probably know that there are some lousy bots on the system that they can hatch this way and they can confiscate their money and say, oh, look what we're doing. I think they're also just figuring out certain bots are bots from certain other data and are closing them, especially if they fail to complete that little bot test where they have to play on camera and basically play the exact same style without the, the bot's help. And then when they can't, then they confiscate their money. I think that they're touting these suspensions, or not these account closures and refunds that they're giving as proof that they're handling the bots when in reality the main bots are still running wild. So I have to agree. I'm not 100% sure that the analysis about the bots operating are they they're reading the the ram instead of reading the screen i don't know for sure if that's true but that's what people are claiming and it is a little bit hard to trust phil Nagy given his recent behavior and even with this the shady thing with keeping the money above 25k so i wouldn't be trusting american card room just yet they do pay out still. So if you play on American Card Room and win, you probably will get your money, much like on Bovada Ignition. But there's problems. There are big bot problems on America's Card Room. And don't think you're going to beat the bots. You're not. They're going to beat you. So this is something to really watch out for. Here is a comment from someone who messaged me during the show. Not about this, but about the previous subject. With your interest in law, why have you never considered getting a law degree? I'm not sure if you read about it, but at some point, Kim Kardashian decided she wanted to become a lawyer. And I'm not sure if this is just California law, but you apparently can get sponsored by an attorney who will tutor you to pass the bar exam without going through the three years of law school. You should talk to Eric Benzamokin about doing the same thing for you. Well, I don't want to burden Eric with something like this. And, and also... I heard the California bar exam is actually pretty tough. I don't know about Kim Kardashian, but uh, I don't follow her. The only good thing Kim Kardashian did, she's done one good thing for society. One and only one good thing. And that is she has made big asses come into fashion. Because I always liked big asses, but the thing is uh, a lot of people didn't until Kim Kardashian made it uh, fashionable. And now a lot more girls have big asses than they used to. Like in the 80s when I was growing up, there weren't that many big asses around. In the 90s, there weren't many big asses around. There's way more big asses now. And it's not just because the country got fatter. It, it really is that uh, women feel less pressure not to have a big ass anymore. In fact, some of them try to have a big ass. I don't like the fake big asses where they get surgery to get implants there, which I believe she has gotten done. But uh, And I'm not really attracted to Kim Kardashian. But uh, that, that's the one good thing she's done. I don't know about her being a lawyer, though. I, I don't follow her that closely. Um, I, I have had many people tell me that I would have 
been a good lawyer and that uh, my, my whole general demeanor goes well with that and my whole thinking process goes well with that. And I agree. I probably would have been. Uh, that wasn't my interest at the time that I was in school. And even had I, even if I went back in time and did that, it's it's a tough profession, especially in California. In California, there's a lot of lawyers, and a lot of people get out of law school. And unless you're in the very top of your class at a great law school, it can be hard. And there's a lot of lawyers who take a lot of crap jobs, like, there's lawyers who get out and they have dreams of, of making millions and then instead what they're doing is uh, representing people for minor traffic violations and getting points off their record and crap like that for basically peanuts. Obviously, that's not going to be a high-value case. So there's a lot of lawyers that will do crap work for very little money. And I have to imagine regret all the time and expense they went through an effort, considerable effort to uh, go through law school and then pass the bar exam, which I heard in California is not easy. Uh, the, the, the biggest reason I wouldn't do it at this point is I'm just old. And, like, I, I'm, I'm close to 48 years old. And it's just not something that I would want to start with now. So, I, I do think this is something I could have been good at. And there's a with Benjamin's mom, she's actually very good at uh, diagnosing medical problems. She's someone who could have been a doctor. And she's done this for me before. She's like, she's the one who figured out I had shingles before anyone else did. I told her back in 2010, like when she was pregnant, and ben, her water was just about to break, but we didn't know it. But the day before, I told her that uh, my back was hurting. Oh, no, no, I told her that, that I, what I told her was that where the band of my underwear goes, and on one side, it's been hurting, but there's nothing there. There's no rash, nothing. It's just It just hurts there. So at first, she's like, okay, that's weird. The next day, I said, you know what's weird? There's that, and now my back hurts. But there's still no rash. No, that, I look down where the band is that's supposed to be hurting, and, and it hurts, but there's there's nothing there. It looks fine. And now my back hurts, too. And just from that, she goes, oh, you have shingles. And I had shingles. I, I, then it eventually progressed to a rash, and at that point it became much more obvious. But she called it way before that. She's also called a number of other things that she's found with me before I think most doctors would have. And she's done that for herself, too. She figured out something she had that the doctors couldn't figure out. And then when she figured it out, it was obvious, and then like the doctors confirmed it. So she would have been a good doctor. But isn't? And then she says, I would have been a good lawyer. But I'm not. So I'll, I'll stick to being a fake lawyer. Anyway, moving on. A World Poker Tour champion turned out to be playing with funds that he stole to enter the event. And in fact, he stole much more than that. He embezzled from his employer. $100 billion. No, but it probably felt to his employer like that's what he did. It was $22 million he embezzled. The name of this player, Dennis Bleeden, B-L-I-E-D-N. And this is a pretty fascinating case. We talked about it before on this show, but I have an update regarding his legal situation. 
he's only 30 years old now. He was actually younger than 30 when he did this. And he worked for a company called Style Hall. They were based in Hollywood, and they, they worked with influencers and stuff like that. I don't know that much about them. But what is important is that he embezzled over $22 million from them in order to gamble and spend wildly. But what's even more interesting than this is that he realized at some point that the hammer was going to come down, and he kind of just sat there and let it happen instead of trying to get away. And you may say, well, the hammer's coming down. Maybe he didn't want to get away because he'd have nowhere to run and nothing to do and no money to do it with, but that's not true. He actually did one thing smart, and that was he converted a lot of this money into cryptocurrency. So he had many millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency that obviously is very easy to hide and then flee the country and then retrieve the cryptocurrency. And if you're in a place where there's no extradition agreement, then you will have millions of U.S. dollars to live on while you avoid going to prison. But he did not do this. Even though he was fired and he knew they were onto him, he just sat there in Las Vegas and they came and, they came and got him and then eventually they seized the cryptocurrency too. So he was arrested in Las Vegas and extradited to Los Angeles where the crimes occurred. He was charged with 11 counts of wire fraud, one count of aggravated identity theft, and two forfeiture accounts. That was to get this stuff back that he'd stolen. He ended up plea bargaining here to one count of wire fraud and one count of aggravated identity theft, and the other counts would be dismissed. He could have served as many as 22 years in prison. And often, given the amount of money that was stolen, $22 million, he actually could get something near that. Something they'll say, oh, someone could get sentenced up to 300 years, and in reality, they wouldn't see more than five. But, but here, even though the maximum is 22, there were similar cases where the thief got the maximum because the sum of money was so large. So there was a big fear on his part that he was going to end up in prison for 20 years or so. And it looks now like he'll probably get away with only a few years in prison, maybe even less than that. And then they'll get all his assets and that'll be it. Uh, He technically actually could have faced, based upon the different counts altogether. There could have been up to 200 years, but there's no way that was going to happen. But 22 could have been realistic. So, looks like he's going to get off pretty easy. He is going to be sentenced on March 20th. And he stole this 22 million over a period of four years from 2014 to 2018. Here is a statement from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Former Hollywood digital marketing executive and professional poker player admits embezzling $22 million from employer. This was dated November 22, 2019 from the U.S. Attorney's Office. A former executive at Style Hall Incorporated, a digital marketing company that represents influencers on Instagram and YouTube, pleaded guilty today to federal criminal charges for embezzling more than $22 million from his employer and then using the stolen money for personal expenses and cryptocurrency gambling. Dennis Bleeden, 30 of, formerly of Santa Monica, now resident of Cincinnati, 
pleaded guilty to one count of wire fraud and one count of aggravated identity theft. According to his plea agreement between October 15, October 2015 and March 2019, Bleeden was the controller and vice president of accounting and finance for Style Hall, a digital company once based in Hollywood, but which relocated to London earlier this year. As part of his job, Bleeden had control over the company's bank accounts, and he abused this authority to wire company money to his personal bank account, according to a plea agreement. Bleeden then used the stolen money to pay for personal expenses and to fund his cryptocurrency accounts. To conceal his scheme... Bleeden made fraudulent entries in Style Hall's accounting records, falsely representing that the illegal wire transfers he made were authorized payments of money due to Style Hall clients. Bleeden also falsely indicated on one of Style Hall's bank accounts that wire transfers of Bleeden's personal bank account were, quote, equity draws that the company owed him, according to court documents. Furthermore, Bleeden created fictitious wire transfer letters that purported to be from Western Union, which were designed to make it appear that he had caused wire transfers from Style Hall to pay money it purportedly owed to a client, the plea agreement states. So he just faked all this stuff. He made fake Western Union reports claiming that like, he was wiring money to then Western Union. In reality, the wire was just going to him. Uh, but he, he'd show that, hey, look, I Western Union this client. So he, he was claiming all these clients were getting paid money that was owed to them. These were influencers that were due money that they were collecting on behalf of these, these influencers. But in reality, he was just stealing it. Uh, what, what I'm still missing here is... Like, the influencers obviously didn't get the money he stole, so I guess maybe he exaggerated what they were supposed to be paid and then just took it, took the difference. It says, Bleeden also his fraud, disguised his fraud by creating a fictitious lease in May 2018 for the rental of a condominium in Rosarito Beach, Mexico, which bore a forged signature of a Style Hall executive, according to the plea agreement. Bleeden admitted that he illicitly transferred 230000 of Style Hall's funds by falsely re- representing that the condominium was being rented for business purposes for Style Hall's clients and employees. The conduct forms the basis of the aggravated identity theft charge. So he basically admitted that he forged someone's signature at the company to lease something at Rosarito Beach, Mexico, and then sent money to pay for this, uh, this condominium. Bleeden, who has entered and won professional poker tournaments, also frequently engaged in online gambling with cryptocurrency he purchased with embezzled money, according to court documents. During the course of the alleged scheme, Bleeden used money he stole from his employer to write uh, $1.2 million in personal checks to poker players, uh, $1.13 million to pay off his credit cards, and uh, $8.4 million was transferred to Bleeden's cryptocurrency accounts, according to court documents. On February 21st and 22nd, before his dismissal from Style Hall, Bleeden entered into two poker tournaments where the buy-ins amounts were $52,000 and $103,000, respectively, court paper state. United District Court Judge Andre Birat Jr. scheduled a March 20th sentencing hearing, at which time Bleeden will face a statutory minimum sentence of 22 years in federal prison. Or maximum, not minimum. That's the minimum? Statutory maximum sentence of 22 years. Okay, so that's... That's the statement. I still wonder the personal checks of the poker players. Are they going to try to claw that back? Or are they going to go to the poker players and say, you were paid the stolen money, give it back? They do not mention that here. But I wonder. Presumably the checks of the poker players were either to buy cryptocurrency from them or because he was playing them and at high stakes games and losing and he was writing checks to them to cover the poker losses. I'm guessing it was the latter, but who knows? Could have been a combination. I had seen that some of the betting he was doing was on Nitrogen Sports, which is a cryptocurrency sports book. 
I don't play on there, but it's been around for a while. And he bet on some crazy things, which I guess you can do when you're just stealing the money. He actually was betting, of all things, on the New Zealand lottery. (laughs) (laughs) Or the Australian lottery. One of those two. But, uh... No, it was the New Zealand lottery. So, (laughs) he bet on uh, the lottery, the odds of seven balls drawn that would include the number nine on November 13, 2018. And apparently he got pretty bad odds on it, too, and won. The, the number nine actually was drawn, so he won that one. Uh, in that case, he actually won... Uh, he, he bet 3.6 Bitcoin, and he won... It says to win. I, I, I don't know if this means including his original bet or... Not, but it says to win 17.26 or 23 Bitcoin. And that's a lot of Bitcoin, if you think about it, even though it's not as high as it once was. It, it was still, you know, what is that? I, I don't know. What was it in November 2018? It's not as high as it is now, but I think it was, what, like $4,000 or something then? So he was betting for probably like. $14,000 or something on whether the New Zealand lottery would be drawing a nine of all the numbers it drew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he got uh, only plus 479 odds. I see that. So he, he got worse than five to one. I don't know how many, how many balls are in the New Zealand lottery. I got to see this now. New Zealand lottery. Let me see. I want to see how many balls are in this. I've got to figure this out. Okay. So, the New Zealand lottery. See, this is what's confusing. The caption says it's the New Zealand lottery, yet it says Oz Lotto, and Oz is usually referring to Australia, so maybe it was labeled wrong. Maybe it is the Australian. Because New Zealand lottery is listed as Lotto NZ. Let's see Oz lottery. I think that is Australia. See, I was right. It was Australia. It, it was captioned wrong. Can't blame me for this one. It is Australia. Oz Lotto is the Australian lottery. Let's see how many balls they have there. Um, trying to figure this out quickly without putting you guys. Uh, how many balls? What doesn't say here? Let's see. Is it? See, I can't even see any balls. Right? I, I have to Google this a different way. I want to find out how bad his odds were. I just, I've got to find it out. Let's see. Um, Ozlotto. Ozlotto is a national lottery game. It's out of 45. Okay. So they have 45 balls. So he was... And they're, they're picking six numbers. Uh, actually, they, they they pick a seventh number. They pick seven. So seven out of 45. 
and he's only getting plus forty nine, plus uh, four seventy nine, which is pretty bad odds. Because the actual odds, um, well, it's, it's kind of a little hard to calculate on the fly here, but approximately would be. Let's see. Approximately would be, I think, about one in six. Yeah, one is like one in six point four. A little bit better than that, because each time they draw a ball, then there's fewer balls to draw from. But it's 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 somewhere between one and six and one and six point four, and he was getting less than five to one pay. So not very good odds. Not horrendous, but not very good. But he won that one. They drew the nine. <laughs> so that's the type of crap he was betting on. He it wasn't even like he was betting on sports or something. He's he's betting on the freaking uh, Oz lottery in Australia for tens of thousands of dollars. That's insane. That is insane. So he he did the plea bargain, and it looks like he may get off with a few years. I I don't know why they took that unless. Don't think they think they could have gone. It looks like they had him dead to rights. Like, how is he going to get out of this? I. Sometimes these guilty pleas kind of surprise me. Because you would think that the state is willing to do these guilty pleas more when there's a chance they're going to lose. Even if they know the guy's guilty and they can probably prove it, you think you think if they have the guy dead to rights, they're just going to say "f you," unless he takes some sentence that's only a little bit reduced, but. Here it really does seem like he's going to have a, a sentence that's much less than he would otherwise would have gotten. So, if he does get away with a few years, then he's lucky for twenty-two million. I don't know how much money they eventually got back. I don't know how much cryptocurrency they were able to seize, but I know they didn't get back most of it. So that's the update. I'll tell you in March what sentence he ends up getting. I think March twentieth is the date. Let me look again. March 20th? Yeah, March 20th. I will let you know on the show following that what sentence that he will have to serve. I don't think we'll be seeing him in high-stakes poker games, though, after that. I think his high-stakes poker career is over. You can forever say he's a World Poker Tour champ, but that's about it. He won it with stolen money, but he still won it. I think he legitimately won it. He just won it with money he should not have had to enter. I guess you can't completely call that legitimate. The poker game itself was legitimate, but his winning was not. By the way, I want to let you guys know something. Ignition was having some issues today, and as far as I know... Yeah, it was down for a good two hours. Is, is it back up? It's back up now, but seems to be a little funky. Yeah, I can't log in. Before I was asked by somebody, can you log into Ignition, and I tried and I could not. And I just tried now, and it's just like ignoring my login. So, yeah, it, were you getting like it just an error when you tried to log in? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, it's that's disturbing because like you have money on these sites, you don't want to see just error. That's scary to see. You never know when they're just going to seize your money and accuse you of something. And the more money you have, the more nerve wracking it is. Fortunately, I heard about this error thing before I ran into that. Otherwise, I would have kind of flipped out. Because a lot of times, error just means we've closed your account. Like, when they closed your account... Oh, yeah, I was able to log in. I was able to log in, but it says I have no balance. That's that's a problem. (laughs) 
No, actually, I literally have a zero balance. This this is really disturbing. I I have no balance. Oh my gosh, I have no I have no balance. Imagine you log into freaking ignition and you you have no balance when you normally have a fairly large balance there. That's disturbing. That's I just went on their poker client is at zero. Let me go on the main client. Yeah, I have no money. You have money there? Yeah. And did you go to, did you log in through like the web, through the website? Like for sports betting? Sometimes it'll give you the, ba- it'll yeah, give you the balance. Yeah, there. no, I went there. I have no balance. Now the good thing is I went to my, I went to my transactions and the transactions are correct. So it doesn't show what happened to the money I had. It just shows like it was there and now it's just not. So at least it doesn't show like someone was on my account chucking it off or someone withdrew it. It doesn't say that. There's there's no transactions beyond what there should be. It just says no balance. That's just disturbing. But I I guess I'll give it a day because I know they're having a lot of trouble today. But I, I can't see it. I have I have no balance. It's still unnerving. I don't want to think about this. That I have no balance there. I'd rather I just couldn't log in than have no balance. Crazy. If anybody else is logging into Ignition or Bovada and has no balance, please let me know. Like if you're seeing if you're seeing a zero balance when you should have a balance, let me know. Because this this really sucks. I I'm in kind of a down mood because of that. I think it'll be okay. I'm not like panicking, but it just sucks to see, you know, because you never know. They can basically do what they want. The the only again the only positive to this whole thing is I can see in my transactions that nothing's happened. But I, I have actually a zero balance. You're lucky. You're lucky. You have money. Let me tell you that, traders. You're you're fortunate that you have money on on Bovada or Ignition because I don't. I should, but I don't. I should. Not, I should not be. Yeah, un- and I did. I did just log out, log back in when you said that, and I still have my balance. Yeah. So hopefully they'll fix it soon. <laughs> I have no money on there. I should have. I should have plenty of money. Let me. Tell, I'm not going to tell you guys how much, but I should have more than enough to be playing with. Not anywhere near having to make a deposit right now. That is not good. That is not what I wanted to see. So I, I want misery to love company, though. I want you guys to message me if you're logging into Ignition or Bovada and have a zero balance when you shouldn't. Now, if you're just broke and you're a degenerate and shot off all your money there, then don't message me. But if you should have money there and don't, then tell me. It'll make me feel a little bit better. But be honest, though. Don't just say it to make me feel better. Be honest if you really have a zero balance. Okay. Uh, 775-372-8355 is the text number and the main number to call the show. Seven seven or 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. Okay, I think I'm going to take a break in a second here. To play Eric Benzamokin's ad. And if you want a real arbitrator or real mediator, don't go to me. I'm a, I'm a fake arbitrator or mediator. If you want a real one, who I don't think will work for free, but he will he will respond to your email for free. As you'll hear in the ad. He still does that. He's a nice guy. He's a genuine nice guy. But Trader Ruski has met him. I like Eric Benzamokin very much, and not just because he gives money to the free roll. It's easier to like him for that reason. I'll say that. Just the, the money he gives to the free roll, it does make him easier to like, but that's that's not the only reason. That's it's one of many. So I will play that. I'm going to take a break. 
I have the heat turned way up here and I'm boiling hot. Because there's this cold spell in Southern California. There's a freeze warning tonight where I am. It may actually be in the 20s tonight, believe it or not. Ben is excited, but Ben wants to wake up to the ice in the backyard. We had that in February. On uh, We'd be getting ready for school, and i go, Ben, come out. And he'd come out, and there's ice all over everything. He was very excited. Um, I don't think it's going to happen tonight, but there was a warning about it. But the problem is, like, then you don't know how much... Like, you turn up the heat, but the problem is the heat's not uniform throughout the house, so it gets too hot. Oh, good, I got it. A message from the 641, no balance for me. Okay, thank you, 641. We can we can both fear Bovada stealing our money together. That's good. I just don't want to be the only one. I want, I want them to steal from others, not just me. Is that so wrong? I want others to suffer with me. I want others to experience the panic I'm experiencing tonight. I want others to go to sleep dreaming about Bovada stealing their money. That's what I want. It's not fair, it's just me. So I'm glad, uh, even though Trader Ruski is not going through this, I'm, I'm glad that others are. So thank you from the 641. It's 39 where I am right now. I don't know if we're going to get to 32. The low happens around like 6 a.m. So we've got five and a half hours. Anyway, I've got to turn down the heat because it's roasting in here. Got to use my dry mouth rinse to refresh my throat so I can do the rest of the damn show. And we've got two more poker topics, then three editorials if I feel like doing them. And uh, then we will be done. show is actually going to go longer than I expected, because each topic's actually been a little longer than I expected. Last week we just did like 15 rapid-fire topics. Bang, 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 bang. The whole thing was over like three and a half hours. Couldn't believe it. But all right. I will be back very shortly. Trader Ruski. How are you feeling as far as uh, how awake you are? I'm good. I got I got some fuel in the tank. Okay, good. Okay, we'll have some time. Okay, we will be back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew, and it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with, or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun, but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, 
Eric at eblawfirm.us. That's Eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. You know what I was thinking as I was taking this break? I was thinking that you guys are spoiled because I was recently a guest on another show, another internet show. Nothing having to do with poker or gambling. But I was over there and they took a lot of breaks. Like like every so often they would just go take a break and play some music. And then they'd come back for another 20 minutes and play another song for another five minutes and that they would do that throughout the show, which is about three hours long. And that's actually the standard. Whenever when poker radio first started, that's what MyCon and the other co-hosts, I wasn't part of it then. I called in sometimes, but I wasn't one of the hosts. That's what they would do. They would just take these breaks and put on music for a while. I don't do that. I, I just do the whole thing and take one break for two and a half minutes. And some of you have the nerve to complain Oh, this is the same ad you've been playing for a long time. Well, sorry, it's a two and a half minute ad. It's the only break I take. And the show can be like eight hours long. At minimum, it's like three and a half, usually well over four, often over five or six. And there's people who have the nerve to complain about this one break. It's it's tough. It's tough. You just sit here talking, talking, talking for all these hours with no break, no no bathroom break, no voice break, nothing. Except this one, this one for two and a half minutes that I do. You guys are spoiled, I tell you. And since you're so spoiled, I'm going to torture you with a second ad for myself. So let's say you want to buy cryptocurrency. Let's say you want to sell cryptocurrency. How do you do it if you're in the U.S.? Well, you have to use an exchange, and the best things to use are the legalized and regulated exchanges in the U.S., but the problem is they all seem alike, and most people just default to something like Coinbase, maybe Gemini, because some friend recommends it and they go there and the fees are terrible. You'll notice as soon as you do an exchange, they're going to be keeping 1% or 2% in fees. So I had this problem and I went out to look about a month ago, what is the best option for people in the U.S. to buy and sell Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency? And I found one. And this is not a sponsor, what I'm about to tell you about. This is actually something that I'm telling you myself from what I found, and yes, I have an affiliate link. That's the reason I'm bothering with this segment. I'll be honest with you here. But I would not be advertising it if this wasn't something that I use myself, if this wasn't something that I honestly think is the best option in the U.S. to buy and sell cryptocurrency. This is called Binance, B-I-N-A-N-C-E. It's like finance, but with a B, Binance. And they are now legalized and regulated to be utilized in 37 of the 50 U.S. states. So there's certain states you can't use it, but 37 states, including California and Nevada, you can use it. So this is Binance.us. Now, it's very important. I've advertised this on like one or two other shows, and I forgot to mention it's not Binance.com. It's Binance.us. It's the same company, 
But the .com is for the rest of the world. The .us is the U.S.-facing version of it. And if you try to go to .com, it won't let you sign up. So don't go to .com. Binance.us. And if you use this referral code, you will get $15. That's one five fifteen dollars right away as soon as you verify your account. You don't have to deposit. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to risk any money. Just sign up, get verified, and they will give you $15 to trade with. And I will also get $15 if you sign up. So definitely go sign up if you want to help this show and you want to help yourself. And also you want to be a member of the very best, and honestly, in my opinion, it's by far the best cryptocurrency exchange that's licensed and regulated in the U.S. Here's my referral code, 350-29165. Here it is again, 350-29165. Make sure you type that in exactly as I said it, or otherwise you won't get the $15, and I won't get the $15, and I'll be a very, very disappointed Jew, and you'll probably be disappointed in yourself, even if you're not a Jew. So make sure to go to Binance.us and sign up, and in the space for referral code, enter 350-29165 for the referral code. The fees on buying and selling cryptocurrency, get ready for this, 0.075%, not 0.75%, It's actually less than 0.1% for every buy or sell you do. Can you imagine that? It's way less than the other exchanges out there. And that's what I was looking for. That's why I went to go bother to look for this. And then after I had a good experience there, I'm like, okay, I'm going to use their affiliate link that they gave me. And they're going to give you one too, by the way, so you can refer your friends and get $15 yourself. Unless you want to help me, you can give my code. But uh, you will get your own code at that point to refer friends. But I would not do this if I didn't believe in it. And it's licensed. It's regulated. It has a good reputation. This is a much, much better alternative than Coinbase, Gemini, or any others out there in the U.S. Now, there are 13 states where you cannot use it. Alabama, Alaska, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, New York, North Carolina, Texas, Vermont, Washington. Those are the 13 states where it can't be used. If you didn't hear your state named there, then you can use it. So if you're California, you can. Nevada, you can. New Jersey, you can. Uh, Most of these other states, you can. 13, you can't. 37, you can. So that's the only restriction here. Sign up, get verified. You get 15 bucks. 350-29165 at Binance.us. You know what? Why am I wasting five minutes on this show about an affiliate code? I should be contacting them and begging them to be a sponsor of this show. Then I'll get more Jew gold in my pocket than your stupid $15. But hey, give me the stupid $15. I want it. Okay? 350-29165, Binance.us. Sign up, get verified, get $15. Let's go on to our topic about GG Poker. Not about Negranu, though. You think it's about Negranu because he just signed with them. I'll, I'll quickly say something I referred to at the beginning of the show during the agenda. But... There were some complaints about my Negranu GG Poker segment last week. That was too hard on him. You know, screw off. I was not being too hard on him. I was being honest. And I said good things about him. And I said some not so good things, but nothing too terrible. I said the video he put out, he didn't put much effort into, and he should have redone it. And that he should have listened to what he said so it didn't come out sounding like super user-friendly, which is what it sounded like. And you couldn't hear parts of the video because there's background noise and there's no excuse for that. And these are all true. But I did say it was a good signing. I said that Negranu had a good World Series. 
that I didn't think he was anywhere near broke, that I thought his finances were just fine even before this. And I've even stated before that I thought the way he handled the whole player of the year controversy was just fine. And in fact, his blog about it was very good. So, you know, when, when Negreanu has something criticism worthy, I will openly criticize it. And when he's doing the right thing, I will state that too. I'm not his friend. I'm not his fanboy. I'm not his enemy. I'm not a Doug Polk who hates him. I'm just a neutral guy who's going to state the good and the bad. And that's what I did. I, I stated both good and not so good in that segment. And if, you're a fanboy of his and can't take it. Tough luck. I know someone actually wanted him to comment on me and what I said about him. I don't think he's going to. If I were him, I wouldn't. I mean, it's a stupid thing to comment on. I wouldn't even say anything that bad. Anyway, this is not going to be about Negreanu, not, to, not because I'm scared of anyone and how they're going to perceive it, but this just isn't about him, even though it's about GG Poker. GG Poker has decided that they are going to block, but also not block, 12 different countries from registering on their site due to regulatory reasons. So GG Poker has really blossomed in the last two years or so. What Negreanu said in his video was true. They really have grown. They have rapidly ascended the ladder of online poker sites. They're not available to be played in the U.S. That's why a lot of you haven't heard of them. But uh, they're very Asia-focused, and they're already one of the biggest online poker sites in terms of traffic of any site in the world. They're behind PokerStars, they're behind the IDN network, but then they're like in a three-way tie for third place in the world, which is pretty damn good in the time they've been around. And I've mentioned before they have a number of different skins. Uh, Natural 8 is probably the best-known skin that isn't their own skin. Their, their main skin is, their, is themselves, GG Poker. The other sites are part of what's known as the GG Network, which are, they have the same player pool as GG Poker. They're just a different way in. Natural 8 is probably the best one known of those skins. And the GG Network, not just GG Poker itself, but the GG Poker Network, known as GG Network, has announced that they are going to be blocking users from registering from the following site, the following countries. Belgium, Bulgaria, Czech Republic, Georgia, I'm not talking about the state of Georgia, but the country of Georgia, Greece, Lithuania, Netherlands, Poland, Romania, Slovakia, Switzerland, and the one that doesn't really belong with the rest of them, Colombia. I'm not sure why, but it's Colombia and 11 European countries, as I just listed, for a total of 12 countries. The head of GG Poker, Jean-Christophe Antoine, said the GG Network will be withdrawing from these nations due to regulation, and we are looking to into either acquiring licenses or partnering with local locally licensed operators. He has said that when they can figure out how to return to these countries, they will, but they want to do so legally. So basically what they're doing here is they're trying to make their things as legal as possible so they keep themselves out of hot water. And that would sound reasonable on the surface, and it is, but 
here's where it starts to get unreasonable. And I, I don't have proof this is really happening, but it seems like it's probably true. Someone who's from Colombia posted on 2 plus 2 a response he got from customer service because he's saying, hey, I'm from Colombia. What do I do? And this is the response he got back. Dear customer, GG Network partially blocks access from some territories due to the specifics of the law. We regret the inconvenience. However, this lock does not apply to the account. Our players use software that changes the IP address to access the game. Good luck at the tables. So they're saying, well, you know, you can't play from Colombia, but hey, we just want to let you know we're not shutting down your account. We're just like making it you can't log in from Colombia. So how about you just use a VPN? Then it'll show you're from somewhere that's not Colombia. Good luck at the tables, friend, who's supposed to be banned but isn't. Can you believe customer support wrote that? Now, this guy posted a screenshot. We don't have proof. The guy could have fabricated this, but people are assuming that it's real. It's, it seems pretty authentic. It's funny. I mean, that's that's pretty ballsy to be telling players to do this. The whole point of what they're doing is they're saying, we're, we're not banning you. We're just banning your country. So if you want to go somewhere else and play where we're not banning those countries, that's fine. We're not banning your account, just your ability to play from where you are. But not to say, oh, but if you want to go on an IP address that isn't from that country, even if that's where you really are, uh, we're cool with that. That's crazy. It's one thing not to enforce it, but it's another thing to advise players of this. That's really stupid. Uh, Also, apparently they are not blocking existing players anyway from playing from these countries. They're only blocking new accounts, but that's supposedly... Eventually, a full block is going to come to where they're also blocking those IPs. So, last I heard, people were still able to get through from these countries, but that's going to change soon, supposedly. Uh, A potential problem they might have is that GG Poker actually has obtained a UK Gambling Commission license. And they're also working on other licenses from other countries in Europe. And the UK Gambling Commission has been particularly aggressive against uh, gambling sites or poker sites that have been operating in other places where they don't have permission to operate. So... The UK Gambling Commission isn't only concerned that the sites operating legally in their jurisdiction get a license through them. They also have been clamping down on sites that are operating legally in the UK, but operating illegally or partially illegally in other places. They say either be completely legit or get out. We not, Don't just be legit with us, be legit with everybody. That's what the UK Gambling Commission has been saying to online gambling and online poker sites that have licenses through them. So this could be a big problem if the UK Gambling Commission finds this out, that they're telling people to just VPN in and get around the restriction. Uh, It seems like the GG Network is investing money. So they have two high-profile sponsored pros. One of them, of course, is Negranu, 
who just signed. And then they also already had Bryn Kenny, who's a very high-stakes player and plays you know, super high-stakes tournaments, as you guys probably know. And they're probably paying him good money, too. Not as much as Negreanu, I'm guessing, but he's probably being paid good money as well. So they've been investing a lot, and I'm very surprised they'd be taking this risk just to have these customers continuing play. Uh, you may wonder, why would they block new registrants from these countries but still allow at the moment them to play if they have existing accounts? Well, that's actually more common than you think, and that is because a lot of times the way this gets caught is by regulators attempting to log in from those countries and seeing what happens. They just try a test. Okay, can we sign up and play on GG Poker? Yes? Okay, well, then they're violating it. Oh, no, it says we can't from our country. Oh, well, I guess we can't. So a lot of times it's it's kind of a, a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing like, okay, if you've got an account, uh, you can still do it. Just don't say anything about it. They don't tell you that, but they just assume if you can still do it, you're not going to say much, which I think is a little bit reckless, but, but I've seen this before. And sometimes even if the uh, regulation knows about this in these other countries, they if they can't prove it by signing up a new account and actually playing at least one hand of real money, if they have a hard time proving it because they can't create a new account and do it, then they don't even bother. And that's actually true of the U.S. That's why, like, for a long time, you couldn't have a Bovada account if you lived in Nevada unless you already had one. So you couldn't create a new one if you already had one and keep playing because they just didn't want... Nevada authorities to create their own accounts and start playing. And that's actually more effective than you would think because they, it, otherwise in order to prove it, they have to find someone who they know plays on there and is willing to cooperate with the investigation and do this. And that's actually harder than you think. Not impossible, but the, a lot of times that little hurdle just stops the whole thing cold. So right now they're only stopping new players. The supposedly natural eight has already dropped players are from these countries. They don't want to screw around. Natural Aid has informed players, hey, you're from the wrong place. We can't support you anymore. Cash out and get out. The rest of the network apparently is more lax about this. I think the funniest thing is about the VPN. They actually advise someone of this. <laughs> I can't wait till the UK Gaming Commission asks them about this one. They'll probably blame it on a stupid rep. This was a customer service rep. This wasn't like a manager of the company, but still. Looks pretty bad. That is pretty bad. Uh, Bobby Orr said in chat, the reason I don't have to take breaks is because I don't smoke weed. It, it is true. People who smoke weed may feel like they need to do that to continue and take weed smoking breaks. But that's not always it. I mean, the show I was on last week... Uh, those people didn't smoke weed. They just took breaks and sat in the room and played when they played music and just kind of talked amongst themselves. Went to the bathroom, whatever. Final regular topic. I want to talk about Phil Galfon and that he finally did something right. Phil Galfon's Run It Once poker site has been underwhelming to say the least. I've covered it many times on this show. I've probably done more Phil Galfon criticism segments than any show. In fact, I'm sure I have, than any show in existence. Not because I dislike the guy. I don't. 
Not because I have an issue with him, I don't. Not because I want him to fail, I don't. But because the whole thing was mismanaged from the start. He didn't want to listen to his customer base. He was offered a lot of good and free advice on 2 plus 2, which was all ignored. And the whole way, it was pretty much my way or the highway, but in a very nice, albeit passive-aggressive way. It wasn't, hey, you guys suck, you don't know what you're talking about, I know you don't. It was It was like, oh, thanks for your feedback, it's very important, thank you, I, I'm glad you guys let me know, it makes us better. And then he'd implement nothing that they suggested. So, you can give all the all the props you want to people giving you advice of you know how, how nice it is to hear from them, but then if you don't take any of that advice and continue moving forward and keep failing without trying anything others suggested, then all you're doing is, is showing that you don't really think any of their advice is correct. And there was one blog he put out that I've made reference to that was very passive-aggressive and was basically blaming the customer, saying, well, you know, this really is our failure because... We thought that the grinders on this site would realize what a tremendous opportunity this is, but big miscalculation on our part for you guys not knowing that. It was like, it was really like, it's my fault for not realizing how stupid you guys were. That that was his apology, which is pretty bad. But and, and that actually made my opinion of him drop a little bit. I don't think he's a bad guy. I just I, I thought much better of him until I went, read that one blog, which maybe I can chalk. Up to just frustration, but I found that very off-putting. The it's my fault because I thought better of you guys. Like, uh, yeah, it's very bad to read. But he finally did something right, and I'm going to give him credit. I've I've bashed his decisions up till now. I will give him credit for a good decision, though it is one that may have come too late. Uh. He had this, what he called, rake-back scheme called flash, Splash the Pot. And we discussed this on here before, and we even were going back and forth as to whether we thought he had the right to even call it rake-back. Because he didn't actually give any real rake-back. He had a promotion where every so often it would drop a lot of extra money on the table, and then whoever won the pot would get it. And so 51% of all rake collected was going to be dropped back onto various tables through this Splash the Pot promotion, which I think is pretty much all luck, at the, especially at the low limit, because the what they splash into the pot is way bigger than the typical pot's going to be, so of course everyone just goes all in blind. But eventually when bigger stakes go there, then it'll stop being like that, and people will actually have to adjust to... Uh, how they should play differently when there's that extra money already in the pot. But but anyway, he thought this was going to be a great thing, the splash of the pot, because it's exciting for recreational players. It's almost like a form of a jackpot. And at the same time, he figured that the better players will realize, especially at the upper stakes, where it's not just obvious to go all in the second you see it, no matter what your two cards are, that the better players will be able to figure out the optimal way to play it, and he'll actually be satisfying both ends. And you could tell he was patting himself on the back so hard. He probably has a, a handprint permanently etched in his back from patting it so often. From thinking, oh, this is such a genius idea. The wrecks are going to love it. The pros are going to be able to see the optimal way they can do it, and they're going to love it too, while the wrecks think it's just something that's fun and gambly. Oh, everyone's going to be so happy, and it's going to be seen as 51% rake back, which is higher than all other sites, and everyone's going to say, Phil, you're such a genius. Why didn't anyone else think of this? 
Well, of course, that's not the way people saw it. The regular grinders complained it had too much variance, that they liked being able to count on rakeback, that they liked knowing that if they play a certain number of hands or a certain amount is raked, that they're going to get a certain amount back in their account no matter how they do at the tables, that the rakeback they would get would have nothing to do with luck. It would only have to do with volume, and they liked that. So there was, it was predictable, and they hated the unpredictability of Splash the Pot because they figured they were already dealing with luck factors in their poker play. They don't need luck factors involving their rakeback. So a lot of them didn't like it for that reason. Uh, there was also some controversy about whether this really was rakeback, which yours truly brought up, but it's a good point. That isn't rakeback. Rakeback really means that they give you rake back from what was raked. They give it to you directly. And yeah, there's different ways of calculating rake back, which I won't get into, but in general, if you play a whole lot of hands, you're going to get a lot of rake back, whether you win or lose. If you play very few hands, you're going to get very little rake back, whether you win or lose. And I was saying with Splash the Pot, it can be all over the place. You can play very few hands and, and get a whole lot of rake back. Or you could play a ton of hands and get no rake back if you don't get any of these splash pots. You not only have to be there when a splash pot happens, you have to win it. So I've said this isn't rake back. This is a promotion. This is like a jackpot. What they're basically doing is doubling the rake and making half of that a jackpot drop and returning it to the players. That's, that's all they're doing. It's just like a jackpot drop, I said. But a, but a bigger one. Usually a jackpot drop is like a dollar per hand. Here they're like when the rake is normally five bucks, so it's an extra dollar for the jackpot drop. Here it's like doubling the rake and making half of that the jackpot drop. And I said, that's crap. That's that's not rake back. That's just increasing rake and uh, putting half of it towards a promotion. I, I had a whole show. Well, not a whole show, but it was a show where I went into that for a while. Well, the truth is that a lot of people saw it this way. A lot of people did not see that as rakeback, regardless of what Phil said. I, I thought it was dishonest to call it rakeback, but regardless of if it was honest or not, they just didn't like it. There were a few people who liked the Splash the Pot. A few people thought it was a kind of a cool thing, but at the same time, they said, I, I just want rakeback. Just where, where's the rakeback? <laughs> your rake is high. We don't have any rakeback, and we have to count on the Splash the Pot. We have to count on getting lucky with this to get any kind of relief from your high rake. It sucks. So Phil had a little thing here and there, okay, you know, in the next three days, get uh, 30% real rake back put into your account, or not. he called it direct, not real, but I called it real, but he'd have these, but then they'd only last for a few days, and I was saying at the time, this is so stupid, come on, Phil, why don't, why don't you just put in a real rake back program, obviously everybody just wants this, and someone said on 2 plus 2, I quoted this, I think, last week or two weeks ago, that there, the, the sad thing is that all people really wanted with this site was a better version of PokerStars with better customer service and a proper rake back and a proper rewards program, referring to rake back. And that's so true. That's all really everybody wanted. And he didn't give that. He gave a, a, a lot of crap, a lot of stupid gimmicks that nobody wanted, and lacked a lot of functionality. Well, finally, after losing money, hand over fist of his and his investors, month after month after month. Phil Galfon had a light bulb above his head. He said, Eureka! I have figured it out. People want rake back. Brilliant. Where has that been said before? By me, on this show, on 2 Plus 2, countless other people on 2 Plus 2, countless other people everywhere. 
Finally, Phil realizes, ha, Splash the Pot by itself is not rake back, and this is pissing people off. This is keeping grinders away, and we don't have many marketing dollars to spend right now, so we're not really getting recreational players, so we need these grinders, and the grinders won't come because we have no rake back and our rake is high. Huh, well, why don't we offer a traditional rewards program? Why don't we base real rake back on how much someone plays to where they earn more rake back, a higher percentage rake back, depending on how much they play. And then we'll also do Splash the Pot. So we'll have both. So those that like Splash the Pot will still have it. And those that want a real rewards program will have that as well. Oh my gosh, for once, a good idea from Phil Galfond. The second he mentioned that, Michael, finally... <laughs> So what they did is they reduced the splash the pot rake back from 51% to 30. Well, it's, it's not a real rake back, but they they reduced the percentage that's going into it of 30% from 51% of all rake collected to 30% of all rake collected. And then they added a real rake back program where you can earn quote up to 45% depending upon which tier level you earn. So it's just an old school tier level type rake back program very similar to what PokerStars had before they introduced all their recent stupidity. And he dialed back the splash the pot thing, but didn't eliminate it, just made it a little bit more than half of what it used to be. So great. This this was actually the right decision. The splash the pot innovation that people will find fun is still there, but that's not the only way people can count on getting great back. Very good. Bravo. So what has it done? Has it helped? Well, believe it or not, yes. As soon as they changed that, they had their highest traffic ever. Once they rolled that out, they had 164 players on at one point, which doesn't sound like much and isn't much, but compared to what they were getting before, was tremendous. And I think they even went as high as like 204 players in one particular day. I'm going to look at their history right now. Uh, Today they had 146. Yeah, so this is since they rolled it out on the 25th. We're, We're not talking about a lot of time here. We have four days that have passed. On the 25th, they went up to 164. As a peak. On November 26, 207, which is their all-time peak. Uh, November 27th, no data for whatever reason. I think that's just an error by Poker Scout. November 28th, 176. And November 29th, 146. So, maybe they're starting to slip again. Maybe it's just variance. But still, way better than any of the other numbers where they had not had 100 players on the site in ages. Here they got 164 right off the bat, then 207, then 176, then 146. Big improvement. Even Phil Galfond took to Twitter to brag about this. Galfond was very proud of the increased traffic, which is funny to think about after all the money they invested in this thing and all the time they spent that they're bragging about 200 peak players. But he's very proud of it because it's the first time he's ever seen any kind of progress. He wrote, this week, we've seen the highest traffic of the last six months. The Legends program, which is this rateback program, is the first product upgrade that has had an impact this significant. Seeing users react to something you and the team have created is the most thrilling part of business. Love run at once poker players. If it's that thrilling, then why don't you ever give them what they want? Why, why, why is it taking till now? Why, why did it take this long to do one thing that people asked for? See, this is what happens. You have a free focus group, uh, 2 plus 2, that's constantly giving you feedback. Your own player is saying, hey, Phil, we want to help you. We want you to succeed. Here's what we think you should change. No, you guys are wrong. I don't think so. No, thanks for the information. We're going to stay. 
Uh, we'll consider it. What do you know? You try you try something that's been suggested. Oh my god, it works great. Wow. This is why you're in business. This is why it's fun. Yeah. It took you this long to figure out that you listen to your customers and give them what they want. Well, at least you finally learned. So maybe you'll see more down the pike. The, the next major thing he should do, and I don't know why he's holding back on this. This, this should be proof to him that you change something. This isn't even the biggest thing people complain about by far, but that you change something they don't like and make it to something they do like and traffic doubles. Just like that. So what does that tell you? It tells you people are staying away because your idea sucked. So what next? How about fixing the thing that has the biggest problem? That is the anonymous tables. People hate them. I, I don't see anybody saying, Phil, great job with the anonymous tables with those uh, avatars that have emotions. That's great. I'm so glad you have them. No one. Everyone says it sucks. Everyone either says nothing or says it sucks. So people have been begging him to take away the anonymous tables. I think that's the next thing he does because I think he's real. I think he's developed some humility finally and realized that these brilliant ideas of his were terrible. And the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the numbers. And now he's starting to get the feedback from his own numbers, seeing that, well, you do what the players have been asking for and people start coming back. Amazing. Amazing concept of business. I never thought before that if a business did what its customers were asking for, that the customers would be more loyal and frequent the business more. Phil has just proved an amazing new concept in business. It's amazing to me how poker players just have such a little clue about life often beyond the table. Some of the smartest players at the table, which he is. He's a great poker player. A very thoughtful poker player. And yet, you step away from poker and he's managing this business and you just see the most boneheaded gaffes and you can't believe it's the same person. And I've seen this time and time again with poker players, not ones who just take a risk on what seems like a good business model and they lose their money. That can happen. But to just make boneheaded mistakes that everybody else is screaming at them, no, 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 and they still do it. At least he's learning. Maybe too late, though. Let's trade a risky. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. Well, time for an editorial. We're done with our poker content. I could just quit because we've, we've been on for uh, close to four hours. I could just shut the whole thing down. Kind of be equivalent to last week's show. But no, I will continue. And I will do my editorials. Editorial number one out of three. don't think I've ever done three editorials before. Editorial number one is when you love the business but hate the owner. What do you do? I'm referring to any type of business. Not just poker, not just gambling, not anything that's necessarily something we talked about. I'm talking about just any business in the world that you enjoy. Any business you frequent, any business you think highly of. Maybe it's a restaurant, you love its food. Maybe it's a gym you like going to. Maybe it's a casino you like. Maybe it's a store. Maybe it's an online site that you use and spend money on in some way. Maybe it's an online shopping site. There's many, many businesses that are out there. And let's say a particular business, you have nothing good but good to say about the business itself. But let's say either you learn some things about the owner you don't like, 
or your personal interactions with the owner are not good, then what do you do? Because you're conflicted. On one hand, you love the business and you want to keep using the business. On the other hand, you feel weird about giving business and giving profit to an owner who you hate or at least strongly dislike. You may feel he doesn't deserve your money. But what do you do? Do you say, well, I just don't like the owner. I'm not going to come back here. You can. It's your right to do, of course. But is that the right thing to do? And my answer is, it depends. Now, let's take case number one, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has dealt with controversy for years because they are they have a Christian ownership, a religious Christian ownership, which gives money to Christian charities. And some Christian charities are not very friendly to LGBT causes. And they some of these charities do not approve of gay marriage. And a lot of these charities are negative towards the entire concept of homosexuality or bisexuality or transsexuals or whatever. And especially in modern times where there's been much greater acceptance of gay people and gay marriage and transsexuals and bisexuals and all that. Much greater acceptance of people in those communities today compared to even 15 years ago. A tremendous difference. You you bring someone from 2004 and drop them in 2019, that will be one of the diff- biggest social differences they'll notice. The biggest technological difference, by the way, is smartphones. But... As far as the social difference, the biggest social difference in the last 15 years, a tremendous difference is the acceptance of gay people. So, a lot of people feel that Chick-fil-A is behind the times and that uh, they should not be donating to any charity that discriminates or thinks badly of or doesn't support the gay community doesn't think gay people should be able to get married. Now, mind you, Chick-fil-A has never been accused of any kind of discrimination themselves. So if you're gay, if you're openly gay, let's say you're a guy and you walk into Chick-fil-A holding your husband's hand, uh, they're not going to refuse to serve you, and there's been no cases of that occurring. Let's say you apply to work at Chick-fil-A and you tell them straight out you're gay and you're married to someone of the same sex. There has been not a single accusation to my knowledge that they have discriminated in employment against people who are gay. Some people who are gay don't want to work there for the reasons I stated. But if you do want to work there and you're gay and you are open about it, they will let you. They're, they're not going to hold that against you. And there's not one reported incident like that. So the only issue here is whether they should be giving money to charities that are non-supportive of the gay community and gay marriage. And just recently it was announced that they're going to stop giving to certain charities that are like this. They're going to continue giving to other charities, but not to these ones that tend to be anti-LGBT. And of course, it's up to them who they want to donate to. Uh, Some people on the right were very unhappy that they made this decision, that they shouldn't be caving in like this. But let's go before this decision was made. This decision's kind of pissed everybody off. It pissed off the right, 
a lot of people on the right saying that the Chick-fil-A is caving. And a lot of people on the left are saying, this is too little, too late. Uh, We're not impressed. We still hate you. (laughs) So nobody's happy. But we're not going to discuss whether that was a good decision or not. We're going to discuss before that even occurred. Should you boycott Chick-fil-A if you feel very strongly about LGBT rights, such as gay marriage? And when I say very strongly, I mean it strongly enough to where their position on it upsets you. Not just you disagree with them, but if you disagree with them and it upsets you that they have uh, been donating to charities like this, should you stop going there? Well, first of all, of course, you can stop going there, and it's every right of yours to stop going there. And I don't blame you if you stop going there. It's up to you where you want to spend your money, and I've always said that. But at the same time, I think it should be up to a business where they want to spend their money. And I think if you're going to start delving into the politics or the religious views of the ownership of every company you frequent, you're going to end up abandoning most companies you do business with because you're always going to find some fault. You're always going to find something about the ownership that pisses you off. Even if they're on your same political side, you're going to start seeing hypocritical things they do that don't uh, align with what they claim to believe. You're going to find something that upsets you and you're you're going to want to boycott them. So I've always said, when it comes to what the ownership of a business is doing in their private lives, the you sh- except in super extreme cases. Let's say you let's say you found out that the owner of a, of a business is uh, a serial child molester. You don't want to go back to his business and, and, and patronize it. Okay, I, I agree with that. But aside from something very extreme like that, if a business owner just has a political view you don't agree with, or anything else in their private life that doesn't affect the business at all, that you don't have any knowledge of when you're at the business aside from hearing things in the media about them and it doesn't affect the business itself and if your experience at the business is good and if you're always treated well there and if the ownership treats you well you have if you have contact with the ownership I know at Trick-fil-A you don't but if if all that's true then I feel you you shouldn't get involved with what the ownership does behind the scenes in their private life barring something something, something extreme Otherwise, believe me, if you had visibility into everything, you would probably patronize no businesses. <laughs> That's the truth. And you shouldn't have to worry about that. Let everybody be themselves. Understand, not everybody's going to think like you. Not everybody's going to agree with what you think. What you hold dear to your heart and you're so convinced you have the moral high ground. You are the one who's correct. The other side is is so amoral or stupid or ignorant. If only they could think like you. You can feel that way, but you know what? There's a lot more valid reasons than you think for why they feel the way they do, even if they're wrong. And I always keep that in mind when dealing with people on the other side politically. I don't say, oh, look at this idiot person on the left or look at how crazy they are, or how stupid they are, or how ignorant they are, or how evil they are. I don't say, well, this person disagrees with me. They see it differently than I do. They may not be able to convince me of their side, but I, I, I can understand why they see things the way they do. And, and I understand that a lot of these are very complicated issues 
and that it can't just be the way I see it is the only way to see it. And anybody who doesn't see it that way is bad. I, I don't ever see political or social issues that way. And for that reason, I don't hold it against anybody for having a different political view than I do. And I hope they don't hold it against me. So I treat businesses the same way. I don't even care. I don't even look into which businesses are uh, right-leaning or left-leaning. or what they're doing. And it doesn't affect me. If I see some business do something stupid that I think is left-influenced, it doesn't make me less likely to use their services or buy their products. I kind of chuckle at how dumb it is but uh, or how misguided it is or whatever but I don't I don't stop utilizing the services or products of that company what would change me from utilizing the products or services of that company well number one if they're just no good anymore if they just go downhill they're what used to be good isn't good anymore from that company then I will stop number two if I just don't need what they're offering anymore for example, I don't buy baby formula <laughs> because I don't have a baby anymore. Uh, number three, and we're going to get to this in the second part of this editorial, if the ownership or management doesn't treat me with respect. And that's where it's different. When something the owner says or does involves the business and involves how they treat you, or even if you witness how they treat other customers, it doesn't have to be you personally. I'm getting people going, oh, well, you only care if it affects you directly. No, no, I've witnessed owners mistreat other customers, and I never come back when I see that. Number one, because I think it may be me, and number two, I think this guy's just kind of a shitty person in the way he runs his business. I don't like his business philosophy here. I don't like the way he treats customers in general, even if it hasn't happened to me yet. So F him. I'm never coming back. I, I have done that before. I have been somewhere, seen a customer get mistreated, especially like a small business where the owner mistreats someone else, and I have nothing to do with it, and... And it turns me off, I never come back. So if the owner's mistreating you or another customer, even if you read a review on Yelp and it seems very credible about another customer being mistreated, then I think that's a very good reason to not come back to the business. I'm not saying you have to. It's, again, up to you how you spend your money. If you want to keep coming back after being mistreated, I don't think that's very smart, but you can. It's up to you how you want to spend your money. But if you are not treated with respect by the business, either the employees or the management or the owner, then you shouldn't come back. Now, if you're treated with disrespect by a, a low-level employee, that's when you take it up to a manager. You don't go say, oh, I'm never coming back. When I ever, Whenever some low-level employee misbehaves, I don't go, I'm, get, I'm gone. I'm never coming back here. I go to the management. And I tell a true and correct version of what occurred. I don't try to get anyone fired. I just tell them what happened, and they, they decide what to do. I tell them a very honest version of what happened. And then I see how the manager handles it, or how the owner handles it, whoever I'm talking to. If it's handled well, I come back. If it's not handled well, and I'm basically told it's my fault or they don't care, then I don't come back. Usually they care, by the way. Occasionally they don't. Occasionally the rotten the rottenness goes all the way to the top. But when it affects how the business is operating, that's when you can hold it against the owner. Because part of dealing with a business is customer service and customer relations. And if the customers are treated like crap, even if it's not you, if you witness customers being treated by crap or read credible stories about a customer being treated like crap, that's a good reason not to come back. 
because it is affecting the business, because that does change the quality of the business. Chick-fil-A donating to anti-LGBT charities, which, by the way, these are not charities that are dedicated to fighting the LGBT community. These are charities that use most of the money to do good things, that everybody would agree are good things. But then they also have a general position that they don't agree with LGBT issues or things like gay marriage. So that's it's a big distinction here. It's not like they're giving to charities specifically to combat LGBT. They're giving to charities that just don't believe in that stuff. But the money you're giving is really going to do good things. It's just you're giving to an organization that doesn't believe in, in good things, in, in the LGBT rights, basically. So, again, you can boycott whoever you want, but I would suggest only boycotting businesses where the owner mistreats you, where the owner mistreats someone else. I have a friend. Most of you don't know this person. This is a person in poker, but most of you don't know this person. And this person does not post on Poker Fraud Alert. They don't even have an account on Poker Fraud Alert. This person doesn't listen to the radio show except every once in a while. And they had an incident recently at a restaurant they were going to. Were they, they just kept noticing the owner had an attitude. The owner was always there. So a small business, the owner's always there. And every time you ask for something or, or, or give some kind of constructive criticism or, or uh, mention something you don't like that much, the owner gets very snappy and kind of passive-aggressive, semi-sarcastic, uh, while pretending to maintain friendliness, but you can tell is is being said to you to be nasty. So you'll give some kind of constructive criticism or say there's something you don't like very much and, and say it in a very polite way, and it'll come back with, oh, yeah, you know, I understand everything you're saying. It just sounds like our place isn't for you, so maybe maybe you shouldn't come back here. And he says this with a big smile on his face, like he's being friendly, like he's giving you just good advice, and eh, we're just not for you, maybe just don't come back. But he's really saying... Get the fuck out of here. Don't, you know, don't tell me these things. Get out. You can't criticize me. Get the fuck out of my place. That's what he's saying to you, just in a nice, fake, sweet way, which makes it even more offensive. It would actually be better if he just said, get the fuck out of here. So this person was witnessing this happening and, and finally kind of got tired of it and wrote a Yelp review where they aired their gripes about uh, how the owner just behaves this way and aired the, what they weren't happy about. But a lot of the review was also positive where they mentioned they really liked the food and this one specific dish there is excellent. And they wrote a lot of good things and they wrote some bad things too, which were about how the owner treats people. Well, the owner came back and banned the person from ever coming back into the restaurant. But the owner couldn't even ban them in a way that was just honest and straightforward saying, hey, you talked trash about me. It wasn't really trash. You know, you, you, you criticized me on Yelp and, and you can't come back. No. The person complained, among other things, that uh, they were promoting something that was healthy when in reality it had uh, certain ingredients in it that weren't that healthy and that they didn't think that was very honest. So the owner said, we've consulted with our legal team and because of these food allergies that you have and because these ingredients are in everything we make – uh, we've decided we can't serve you here anymore in order to prevent you from having anything bad happening because of your food allergy, which there was no food allergy mentioned. It was very clear it wasn't a food allergy. This person very clearly laid out 
They're saying here this is healthy. Here's some ingredients in it. This is why we think it's not that healthy. That's it. They didn't say we can't have these things. They didn't say we get sick if we have these things or we'll have an allergic reaction if we have these. No, nothing. Just like you're claiming it's healthy and it's not because it has such and such ingredients. And he said, oh, well, in order to accommodate your food allergies, we can't do we, – we have to stop serving you. Our legal team gave us that advice. Just a really snarky, nasty thing the guy put there. Instead of just like we we just prefer not to serve you anymore, it looks like it's not a match. He actually had the nerve to put the legal thing in there. So it backfired, and there's uh, – uh, what's funny is there's like a back and forth on Yelp where they each keep – this person keeps – the reviewer keeps updating the review, and then the owner keeps updating his response, and they keep updating it towards each other's responses. It's actually kind of entertaining. I, I don't want to say – which restaurant it is or how to find it because I know you guys are curious, but I, I don't want to say it because I don't know if this person wants me to publicize all this. And some of you might know them. Most of you don't, but some of you might possibly know them and I don't know if they want all this known. So whatever. It's not that important. But what I'm saying here is the, the owner from reading other reviews just seems like a jerk. I've seen so many other reviews where he responds by telling people not to come back. Sometimes not outright banning them, but by saying, uh, well, it sounds like this place isn't for you, so uh, good luck in, in finding another place and, and have a great holiday or things like that. I go, I hate people like that. If you don't like me and you're pissed at me, just be honest or say nothing. Don't tell me at the end, have a great holiday when you hate my guts. Um, so uh, anyway, uh it's been backfiring, and there's been a lot of people now writing other reviews, bashing the owner, like they're going to really open the floodgates. And I'm sure the guy's regretting it that he did this, especially because he banned this person because they wrote a negative review. Which The funny thing is the review is actually four stars out of five, which it didn't really read like a four-star review. It kind of read more like a two- or three-star review. But uh, after this person got banned, they changed it to one star. And... Then there's this back and forth. And by the way, advice to business owners out there, don't go back and forth with your customers on Yelp. You almost always look bad. Even if you're right, you look bad. You can post like one response if the customer's like totally off base and accuses you of something that didn't happen or they totally change everything. Like, uh, let's say someone came in there and was really, really obnoxious and like took a swing at one of your employees and you threw them out and banned them. And then they go on Yelp and say, yeah, well, I was banned because uh, I'm because I'm 22 years old, and they don't want young people in this place. So all young people stay away because they'll they'll ban you because you're 22 and they have no respect for you. Then as an owner, yeah, you can come back and say, no, we didn't ban you for being 22. We th- we banned you because you took a swing at one of our employees. Like that, that's fine to put, but usually it's not that cut and dry. And usually when you respond, you end up kind of looking like a jerk, even if you're not one. So if you own a business, you really just shouldn't respond to Yelp reviews. You just like. As much as it bothers you, as much as you want to give an answer, you usually just shouldn't. You should just say nothing back. And the last thing you ever want to do is like a protracted back and forth because you end up looking like a real jerk. And the bigger problem is that a lot of these owners actually are real jerks, so that especially comes out in the back and forth. Usually when the customer does come out and puts like a a bad, detailed one-star review, usually it's correct. Once in a while I read it and go, this customer sounds like an asshole. But but usually the customer is actually mostly or all correct, and it is the owners of the problem, especially at a small business where a lot of the owners don't really understand the point of customer service, and all they can see is like they're king of the castle. Unfortunately, there's a lot of ego involved in owning small businesses, and sometimes these owners will really shoot themselves in the foot. They'll shoot themselves and their businesses in the foot because of their own ego. 
They can't put their ego in check. They they see more like I'm the king here. No one can insult the king than well, I've got to actually be more polite than if I'm working for someone else because this affects my bottom line and my my own business's success is more important than my ego. If you take that attitude, there's a much better chance you're going to succeed than if you take the soup Nazi attitude and kick anyone out for the slightest perceived slight. Unless, of course, your soup is so good that you have a line out the door anyway. But that's usually not the case. So, in this case I'm talking about here, you should not go back there. If the owner is nasty to you, if the owner actually bans you, of course, you can't come back. But even if he undid the ban, I wouldn't come back. Even if it wasn't about food where you had to worry about how they prepare it and screw with it. Like even if it's something they can't really screw with, like packaged products or something. Anyone who owns a business and mistreats me or treats me with disrespect, I do not want to continue frequenting their business. Now, I'm not overly sensitive myself. I realize some people have bad days. I realize some people have idiosyncrasies. I'm not looking for tip-top friendliness. It's nice, but if an owner's just kind of cold and business-like, but I don't have a problem with them, I, I will keep using their business. Even if there's some disagreements I have where I think that they're making some dumb decision or something that's not really valuing my business, I'll sometimes decide ultimately to keep going if most other things are good and the, and it's kind of hard to replace the place. Sometimes something you're going to, you can't just say, oh, I'll go to something else down the street. Sometimes that's the only thing in the area like that. But you really should try to avoid going to any business that does not appreciate your business, that does not see you as more important than you see them. You know, the customer's always right. I don't agree with that so much, but the customer should always be valued. And the business should not take the attitude of, we're doing you a favor to serve you. The attitude should be, you're doing us a favor by being one of our customers. And once they get away from that, there's big problems. That doesn't mean you should let a customer take advantage of you, but it's that you need to leave your ego at the door and you need to be very careful to not mistreat customers and also to make it right when you screw up. And if you don't, the customer will leave. And then even worse, they'll write a bad review for you on Yelp. So it's not like in 1985 where you lose a customer, but aside from their close friends and family, no one's going to know about what happened. Now everybody knows if they write a bad review. And that can sink you. That's another big reason to not piss people off if you have a small business. So when should you care if you hate the owner? If it involves the way the owner runs the business or treats customers. When should you not care? If it involves what the owner does in his private life, unless it's something super extreme. Now, when I expressed this view on Facebook regarding Chick-fil-A, I had someone say to me, how can you think this way? This is pretty much like Hitler. I love the Hitler argument. This is like Hitler, the way they're treating uh, LGBT people. Are you telling me that you would support Hitler running a business? And I said, oh, there, there we go, the Hitler comparison again. I go, okay, this is nothing like Hitler. This is a business that never discriminates, apparently, has never even been accused of discriminating, and that has been donated to charities that actually do good things, but that these particular charities, some of them, have a view on LGBT issues that were mainstream in 2004. 
and they say, well, 2004, you can't, you can't just say everything in 2004 is right. You know, it's still 15 years ago. Still a lot has changed. I said, look, yes, a lot has changed, but 2004 wasn't the dark ages. 2004 was a pretty enlightened time in general. So anything that was mainstream in 2004 cannot be such a terrible injustice that you have to hold it against someone for donating to a charity who still feels like it's 2004. And I'm not even saying I agree with these charities. I'm just saying that if they still have a 2004 view of LGBT issues, which which what they have pretty much, and this is just a charity. I'm not talking. About, I'm not saying you should donate to that charity. I'm saying that if someone else is donating to that charity, and the only fault in the whole thing is that the charity still has views on LGBT from 2004, don't worry about it. That's a stupid thing to worry about. A stupid thing to obsess over. Worry about how this business treats gays. Worry about if this business serves gays, if they hire gays. Well, they do. Do they ever mistreat gays? Never. Okay? Then it's fine. Maybe if they're donating to a charity to specifically combat the LGBT community, but they don't. They're donated to charities that are doing things to help people and just happen to have this view that is more like 2004. So that talk about stretching to find a reason to hate the owner. So you can boycott Chick-fil-A. I just think it's stupid. But when the owner mistreats customers, whether you or someone else, that's a great reason not to go back. In fact, I would encourage that you don't. And sometimes, as I've mentioned, I have had to put an owner to the test, not because I like putting people to the test, but because it's necessary to figure out where they stand. A local small restaurant around me where I generally liked the food. I didn't love it, but I liked it. I was going to it semi-frequently. They knew me by name. I didn't complain. I didn't return things. I did. You know, I was a good customer. They uh, they had a coupon. Of course, it's going to be a, a coupon story with me. But they had a coupon, a small coupon, like uh, off or free dessert, something like that. I brought in every time, and it was a coupon that was printed every single week in something like a Valpac. So a very easy coupon to get. There's tons of them. They're also easy to confuse from one week to the next. So if I have a Valpac from two weeks ago in my house, and I have one that just came today, and I I take the coupon from the one two weeks ago instead of the one today because the expiration date's printed small and and I don't bother to look at it, I might accidentally grab one from two weeks ago, the identical coupon they run every single week and have for their first year of existence, which is what it was at the time. Uh, I, I happen to bring in the coupon with the wrong expiration date. Again, this is not an expired offer. This is something that's a constant offer that's been there for uh, for a year. You just have to have the physical coupon, and, and I, I grabbed the wrong one because they print one every week. Okay, obviously, to a regular customer, you honor that. Now, if I if I came in day after day after day with, with expired coupons, then, yeah, then you say something, say, sorry, you can't use these anymore. But uh, on a one-time basis, I bring the wrong one from two expired two weeks ago on a deal that's still going, on coupons that are readily available everywhere, you let it go, for sure. Well, I got a, like a 20-year-old girl working there who decided to run a power trip on me. And she gets this whole debate with me about why she can't accept it. And she has no authority to do these things. She's just a, She just decides that she's going to give me a lecture. And she gives me all these stupid lectures. I don't even remember what it was, but uh, all these dumb lectures to try to teach me how you know why this is wrong to take and and why this business would do it that way and that other business would do it this way. It was just nonsense. She was ranting to me with. 
and I'm, I'm trying to uh, debate with her about it. She, she's not having it. Well, the problem was there was no manager there. So I had to just accept it. So I said, all right, fine. Fine. Next time I won't bring the expired coupon. Whatever. I'm not happy about it, but fine. So I finished my order, took the food out. I wasn't thrilled about how she treated me, but she didn't say anything like outright rude. She was just very condescending, and she also was really petty with this. Okay, so a week later, I call in to a phone order. just happens she answers the phone. And she either recognized my voice or recognized my order, whatever. Or maybe recognized my name. I said, I'm coming to pick it up. So at the end of the call, she says, oh, and I just want to make sure you understand, don't bring an expired coupon. I go, oh, that freaking bitch, she's, she's actually needling me about this. Like, we went through this very thoroughly last time. And, and she says in a very condescending tone of voice, don't forget the don't bring an expired coupon this time. So I hung up the phone. I showed up. And I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want them screwing with my food. <laughs> so I waited till I got the food. And then I said to her, I want to let you know that uh, I didn't appreciate what you said to me on the phone. It's not like I brought in a second expired coupon after last time. You didn't give me a chance this time to bring in one that was current. And I told you why last time it happened. It's very easy to happen because you print these every week. And the expiration date is printed real small. And I, it's, a, it's a coupon that's the same every week, week after week. So I made one mistake. And you wouldn't honor it. I accepted that. And I thought we understood. And before I could even bring it in, you, you make that nasty comment to me on the phone. So she started going off on me. And she started raising her voice and yelling at me. Well, fortunately, the owner was there this time. And the owner came out. And I thought, hmm, how's this going to go? And he got, he kind of stood and watched. And he witnessed the way she was yelling at me and everything. And then, then he stopped her and he says, whoa, 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 what's going on here? And I said, and so I explained it to him and she said, and she says, yeah, but he's a real rude jerk. <laughs> she actually says this about me, the customer. And uh, he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Go, See, this is exactly what I mean. This is what I mean. And I said, not only that, I'm being talked down to by like a 20-year-old. I said, do you, th- you think this is pleasant for the customer to have a kid here talking down to them and, and uh, condescending to them and, and calling them names? And so, so the owner says, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He said, here, this order here, don't pay for it. Take it. Take it free. It's on me today. Very sorry about this. So that already looked good. Next time I ordered, someone else answered the phone, placed the order without incident, came back in. The owner was the one working the counter this time. He said, hey, I just want to let you know that girl, she doesn't work here anymore. We got rid of her after what happened with you. I didn't even have to report this one. The guy witnessed it himself. But you know what? If this owner had taken her side and said it was okay for her to talk to me this way or didn't do anything or told me that she had the right to chide me like this because I attempted to commit the horrible crime of bringing in an expired coupon the previous time accidentally, uh, I would have never come back. I wasn't expecting free food, by the way. That was nice of him to do, but I wasn't expecting anything free. I just didn't want him. I just wanted to make sure that he was not going to tolerate his 20-year-old employee talking to me this way. I wouldn't want him to let anyone talk to me this way, but especially not a 20-year-old. And he did the right thing. He didn't have to fire her, but I, I wanted to make sure that this was not approved of, the way I was being talked to. So that was kind of a test. He 
kind of made the test happen anyway because he came out. But if he didn't come out, I was going to go to him and tell him. And fortunately, the girl blew up and called me a rude jerk in front of him. <laughs> that was the end of that. He had witnessed it before, too. And by the way, he told me I was 100% right about the coupon, that they would have totally taken it and that he can see how the mistake would happen. And he knows I come there all the time and I'm a good customer. And he said she doesn't know how to treat people. And I said, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I said. So notice after that girl, like I didn't just give up on the place. I wanted to see how the owner would take it. I want to see how he would. Because I know there's, I know there's terrible employees, especially young kids. They they don't know how to treat people a lot of the times, and uh, I, I don't want the business owner to suffer, and I don't want to boycott the place because some idiot kid talks to me disrespectfully. But if the owner's behind that, I'm not coming back. So that that was an example. Except that was a good example of an owner. Editorial number two. Let's get to editorial number two. Totally different subject. This came up actually on the forum. Uh, there's a poster on the forum named Jay Jammy. And he's eh, probably like 60 years old or so. And he's a former attorney. He now works in a, in a different, uh, I think he now works in the cannabis industry, the legal cannabis industry in California. But uh, we've... Met a number of times. He's a limit hold'em player, so I, I I haven't played cash with him ever. I think I think he's more of like a twenty forty player, but and he's not a pro poker player. Um, he actually got to a final table. So he almost won a bracelet some years ago, and uh, he still plays poker sometimes in the LA area. When I see him in person, uh, we get along. In fact, uh, I've gone to a Dodger game with him one time, but. Uh, Sometimes we, we argue on the forum, or sometimes he makes uh, snarky or uh, trollish comments to me on the forum, which is kind of par for the course of the forum. I don't take it personally. But we got into a debate recently on the forum. You can go take a look at it. It's right there in public in the casinos in Las Vegas portion of the forum. It's about the resort fees. And... It's funny because I only noticed his response to me last year very recently. So I, I made a joke that I had to toss and turn in my bed every day for almost a year to figure out what to say back to him. But in reality, I just hadn't seen it for almost a year. But I, I did. I gave it a delayed response, and I knew he'd probably see it because I know he reads that casinos in Las Vegas sub forum. So I'm not going to get into that whole thing. It's just a debate about resort fees. But he said something that made me think... And I wanted to talk about it on this forum because I basically asked him about resort fees. I said, how can you possibly think this is okay? Because he was saying, well, you know, it's uh, it's it, before I click uh, charge my credit card, it shows the resort fees. So I see what it's going to cost and uh, that's it. And I explained, no, but that's not the whole thing because they hide, they hide it in the search results. The search results are based on a base price that uh, you can't really pay. You have to pay the resort fees on the top of that. You don't know how much the resort fees are until you get to the very end of the whole process. And at that point, it's uh, a lot of trouble to start over and look for something else. The search engine results are not honest on purpose. It's not like the search engine's wrong. The search engine is printing whatever information it has. And the hotels are all purposely giving misleading results on what you really have to pay to get that room because there's a resort fee hidden that you don't find out to the very, very end. And it makes it very hard to price shop, and the whole point of it is to mislead. 
So this should be illegal. That was my point. I guess I am telling you the whole story. <laughs> so so he says back, well, no, you, you can see what the price is before you, you actually charge your card. So as long as you can see that, it's good. And I said, yeah, but what's the point? What is the point of a resort fee other than to mislead? There's actually one other point. It's to screw travel agents. But that aside... The whole point, the main point of the resort fees, especially nowadays with some of the travel agents are rebelling against this, is to mislead the buyer, is to mislead the person who wants to get the hotel room, to make them believe throughout most of the booking process that it's a lot cheaper than it actually is. And I'm not talking about government taxes. That's a different story because that's uniform in every market. It's not like the government taxes are higher for one property than the other, where resort fees can be all over the place. But... It's it's also something the hotel doesn't gain from. So this is a resort fee. It's just an arbitrary amount of money. It could be small. It could be large. You never know. Sometimes it can be more than ho- the base hotel price. You're forced to pay it, and you don't know what it is until the very end. So here you go through the whole booking process thinking you're getting one price, and bang, here's the real price, and it's way higher than you thought. Even if you know there's a resort fee, sometimes it's way higher than you expect. $50 resort fee, $55 resort fee, $60 resort fee. You, you know, and that's really bad, especially if the hotel room is, let's say the hotel room is $40 and has a $50 resort fee. That, that's a huge difference. That's not like a $300 room and there's a $10 resort fee. Then you go, okay, it's still in the same ballpark. This can more than double the price. But the whole point of the resort fee is to mislead. And I say I am against scams, I am against dishonesty, I am against anything meant to mislead the customer that makes the customer think that he's buying something he's not, to make him think he's getting a price he's not, to make him think that certain terms that exist actually don't exist. The customer should know everything important and relevant in the transaction up front not after putting them through a whole long process, hoping that they're just gonna they're just gonna deal with it because they already put so much effort into it at that point. That everything should be transparent, everything should be honest, and nothing should be done for the purposes of tricking or misleading people. And that's just honest business practices. And I feel that any business that does things that are not like that is doing something wrong. Now, with hotels, you can't just say I won't stay in a place with resort fees. They've become so common now that it's it's hard to avoid. But that doesn't mean it's right. It just means everybody's doing the wrong thing. And and some places feel forced to do it because if they don't, then they show up worse than the search engine sites because they're being honest about their price and nobody else is. So there's actually a disincentive to be honest here in the way the whole system's set up now. So he said back, caveat emptor bitch, which stands for, which means it's Latin for let the buyer beware. And then he said, you're so funny when some perceived injustice directly affects you, you turn into a socialist and want the government to solve the problem. Well, you guys know I'm not a socialist. You guys know I'm like the opposite of that. But I also am a believer in businesses acting fairly and honestly. And I don't think that's even a political principle. I think that any decent Republican should feel that way and any decent Democrat should feel that way. Everybody who is a fair person should want to be treated fairly and should want businesses to treat others fairly. And this is not political at all. It shouldn't be political. I, I feel that government is needed to solve this. And so so sometimes I'll hear, and the funny thing, this guy's not even on the right. I think he's kind of like center-left politically. But there's some people that 
think that if you want the government to solve any problem, that this makes you a socialist of some kind, which is ridiculous because that would mean there should be no laws, which obviously is crazy. So the government's purpose is really to just make sure that everything's running okay. And sometimes that requires laws to make sure that businesses act right and don't cheat people and don't mislead people. And that's not socialism. That is just having the law be in place in order to prevent people from getting screwed. And that's a lot different than price control or anything like that that's more like socialism. I'm talking about let the business charge what it wants, let the business operate for the most part the way they want. They even have a right to be rude to the customer if they want. But as far as cheating people or misleading people, they should not have the right to do that. They should actually be illegal to do that. And the resort fee is something that is only there to mislead. So therefore, it should be illegal. And I don't feel that this is something the free market can correct because the free market can't correct everything. And resort fees are a great example because unfortunately the free market ended up anti-correcting. It made it worse because more and more people started looking online to compare hotel uh, hotel rates and then would choose a hotel partially based upon the rates and partially based upon the reputation of the hotel and the reviews of the hotel. So they kind of compare them. But they go down a list. So they go down from cheapest to most expensive. So you see something that looks like a, a little dumpy motel. Okay, that's the cheapest, but I don't want it. I don't want to stay in some flea bag motel. Let's move down the list to more expensive. So you, you get down there, and then you start to see hotels which look more reasonable. Then you see they've got decent reviews. You know, Maybe it's uh, on a scale from 1 to 100. They're getting an 88 or something. Okay, that's good enough. And so you go, okay, I'll, I'll choose the first hotel which looks decent from the average review score. That, you know, the cheapest one that looks decent from an average review score in the area I want to go. So you go down the list, cheapest to most expensive until you get to one with an acceptable review uh, rating average. Okay, this one. It's the cheapest and it's got a decent rating. Good enough. And that's the way a lot of people shop for hotels in modern times. That wasn't the way it was 30 years ago. That wasn't even the way it was 20 years ago. It was starting to be. 10 years ago, yeah, now especially. So since online search engines looking for hotel prices have become so common, the Trivago type sites, it is very important to get accurate information from them. And the only way you can have accurate information is if you know the actual price of the room prior to government taxes. Why don't you have to see government taxes? Well, it'd be nice if you could see them, but they don't matter that much because they are the same percentage at every hotel in the market. So if you see one hotel, $130 in Las Vegas, and another hotel, $135 in Las Vegas, it doesn't matter what the tax is because it's the same percentage for both. So the one that's $130 will definitely still be cheaper than the one that's $135. But what about the resort fees? If one of them has a $10 resort fee and the other one has a $50 resort fee, then the cheaper one could actually end up being far more expensive. So it's important that you see the truth when you do these searches so you can really see what's the cheapest and really see what's the most expensive. And the reason the free market can't take care of this is that the free market tried, Caesars in fact tried it, to eliminate resort fees and they got killed. Why? 
because they were showing up lower in these searches because they appeared falsely to be more expensive because they had a $0 resort fee and these other hotels had like a $30, $25 resort fee and they would show up as cheaper when they actually weren't. So that was why Caesars got punished and Caesars said, screw this, we have to charge a resort fee now too and now pretty much everybody does because if you don't, you show up too low in the search results and you don't do well. So the free market, unfortunately has forced this to happen and there's no way out of it unless the government says, "Uh uh-uh, can't do this anymore. And that's the role of government. The role of government is to protect from situations like these where the free market can't take care of it. The free market takes care of situations where, um, where, where the business just isn't good. You know, the business, the product or service isn't good. The price is too high. The employees are rude. That the free market can take care of because people will vote for their feet with their feet and not come back if, if they don't like the experience they had. But when it comes to anything which involves either a mass uh, attempt by the industry to mislead people, even if it's not uh, a matter of collusion, if it just kind of occurs that way, like with resort fees, or something that's just intentionally misleading or scammy, for the most part, the only way to stop it is the government has to pass laws against it. And that's what the government is here for. And that's not socialist. And that's not, that's not overly regulating. And that's not over control. That's protecting consumers from unethical, unfair, and misleading behavior. And I support that. Anyone who says, I always support businesses. Businesses should always be able to do what they want. They're, they're, those are fools. They, they believe that they're big free market proponents, but they're fools. You can't be that extreme. If, if you take that extreme, you're basically giving all businesses the right to scam people or semi-scam people or mislead people. You don't want that. Oh, the free market will take it. No, it won't. Here's the way the free market won't take care of it. Let's, let's say a business rips off 10% of their customers, but they're doing really well otherwise. Let's say of those 10% of the customers, uh, a third of those don't come back. Guess what happens? The business loses about 3% of their customers. They can very much survive that in most cases if the business is doing well. Should that be okay? No. So you can't just say, oh, the free market will take care of it. It won't. So in some cases, if it involves any kind of misleading circumstance, or any kind of uh, a- anything where the customer is finding themselves receiving something they don't expect, paying something they don't expect, uh, being asked to pay something they don't expect after thinking it was a different price. I've always said my rule of thumb, Druff's rule of thumb with dealing with businesses is if most people would be misled by this, then the business is acting either unethically or irresponsibly. If it's just you, then it's probably your fault. I'm talking about in your shoes. I don't mean like you're the first one. I don't mean like it's happening to everybody. I'm saying if in your specific situation, if you put 100 people in that same situation and 70 of them would have had the same problem you did, then it's the business's fault. If five people out of the 100 would have the same problem you did, then it's probably your fault. That's, that's the basic rule of thumb is you look at it honestly and say, did I do something wrong? Or was this very misleading? 
And if it was very misleading, it's their fault. What about the fine print? What about, well, we printed it in the fine print, or, well, it's on page 5, or, uh, well, you should have waited until you got the very end of the transaction. It's right there. No, that's crap. If you're feeling right away as, wow, I expected one thing and then I got another, you're probably right. You're probably right. They're probably doing this on purpose. They're probably trying to trick you, scam you, or mislead you. Usually your first impression of that is correct. Once in a while, you, you, you just miss something, and it's actually your fault. But usually when that happens, there is a reason that things are the order they are, things are the way they are, things are presented the way they are. There's a reason that you're not being told this. And I, I go through that on this show a lot, too. A lot of times, it's, oh, well, as long as it's printed somewhere, it's fine. You've got to always read the fine print. It's your fault. You've always got to get educated. You've got to do your research. I hate that you've got to do your research. No. In a transaction with a business, there shouldn't be research. The research should only be is, is the product or service quality. It, it, that should be the extent of your research, not let me read every bit of the fine print to make sure they're not scamming me. That's not research. Anything important should be stated up front and very obvious to all consumers. If it's not, you're being ripped off. So, yes, the government should protect you there. Okay, that was editorial two. Here's editorial three. And then we're finished. But the trader risky just vanished. We just lost him. I guess he wasn't as awake as we thought. The University of California is going to dump the SAT, most likely. Not certain, but most likely. They've been doing studies on this, and some pretty influential people have decided that it's probably going to be gone soon. So here is an article from Fox 11 in Los Angeles. It says, top leaders at the University of California say they support dropping the SAT and ACT exams from the admission requirement. UC Berkeley Chancellor Carol T. Christ, along with UC System's Chief Academic Officer, Provost Michael Brown, said Friday that research has convinced them that the performance on tests is so strongly influenced by family income, parents' education, and race that using them for college admissions decision is unfair. So they, they haven't done this yet, but you see where it's going. That the chief academic officer is saying that he's convinced that the test is unfair, the test is racist, the test is classist, and the UC Berkeley chancellor agrees. And UC Berkeley is uh, probably the most influential school of the University of California system. It's also the best known one. So I think we see where it's going to go. All right. A lot of you are college educated. Not all of you, but a lot of you are. My demographic here is white males 35 to 60 who are college educated. That's not everybody. We have some non-white people. We have some females. We have some people outside of the 35 to 60 range. But, but most of the listeners are college educated white males 35 to 60. That's what I've seen overwhelmingly listening to this show. I think because I am a white male between 35 and 60, in fact, right in between there, right in the middle, about as much in the middle as you can get. And uh, it would make sense that that would be the group that could relate to me the best. I don't try to get that demographic. That's just the way it's fallen. I actually like when we have a, a varied listener base. I'm not going to do anything to change that, but you know, if to, I, I'm actually happy when we get non-traditional types of listeners here. But anyway, the SAT, 
Let's talk about the SAT. I took it, obviously, if I'm college educated. I took it in the 80s. And before I ever took it, a teacher at my school describing the SAT said, well, the SAT doesn't really test for anything except for how rich your parents are. I remember as a 15-year-old thinking, what the hell is this? And keep in mind, I wasn't very political at 15, but I thought, this is ridiculous. What, is, what does she mean this only tests for how rich your parents are? No, it doesn't. What, what could that possibly even mean? I, I, I thought it tests uh, your ability in, in math and then uh, reading and, and vocabulary. I thought that's what it's looking for. What's this about my parents' education and, and, and income? That doesn't make any sense. Well, 32 years later, I still feel the same way as when I first heard that idiotic statement uttered to me. Now, what were they referring to? They're referring to the facts that those who do best on the SAT are white or Asian and have college-educated parents and have a middle-high-to-high family income. And that those doing the worst are those who are not white or Asian, are from poor families, and have uneducated parents. So, therefore, according to these geniuses at the UC system, that this must be a racist test, it must be a classist test, and it must be something highly biased towards white and Asian people who have money. And this is a case of taking statistics and massaging them to mean what you think they should mean. There's always a problem with giving a test to some demographic of people and then giving it to another demographic of people, seeing a difference in the results of the test, and then blaming the test for the difference. You would think that you'd ask yourself a question. Well, why? Why are these results different? And figure that out. See if there's anything you could do maybe to bring these groups closer together in their overall results. And if you can't, if you sometimes just have to accept that there are some differences in the lives of the people in these different demographics that will cause this to happen and it's inevitable and nothing you can do. And that's not what they've been doing with the SAT apparently, even though they should be. Now, I will agree that these statistics they found are probably true. I haven't seen them exactly in black and white in front of me, but I, I don't doubt them. I don't doubt their findings as to how different demographic groups do on the SAT. But there's reasons for this. Something that is very, very much underrated and underappreciated in education of kids, I'm talking about kids in elementary school, junior high school, and high school, is that the parents' involvement in their kids' education makes a tremendous difference in how they do, especially as they get further along in school. Sometimes in elementary school, a smart kid can just get by on their smarts because a lot of things just come naturally to them. You know, you teach them math concepts and instantly they get it, while other kids who aren't quite as intelligent take, take a lot of teaching. So even with parents that don't really give a crap about school, the parent, the kids can quickly figure out how to read and, and write and do math and get good grades. But, but that doesn't last for very long. Eventually it gets tougher and the concepts become more complicated and you have to study more and you have to have good study habits. And, and all these other factors come in where, where a parent has to be directing the kid to be responsible. And if the kid, if the parent is not doing that, 
or the parent's not valuing education or the parent doesn't have time to do it, then the kids will typically suffer, even sometimes the smarter kids. And unfortunately, this will happen a lot more often in areas where people are struggling financially, in in lower-class neighborhoods, lower-middle-class neighborhoods, where the parents either don't have time to really place a value on their kid's education and follow up what's going on, or may not even care as much about education. They may be say, well, look, I, I didn't get past high school and I'm, you know, I'm getting by. So they never really got to value education because they didn't have it themselves. Or, and as far as race goes, well, there are certain races that are more financially successful than others in the United States. And we could go a whole show, we could go several shows descri- discussing why that is. We're not going to here, but that's just a fact. There's, uh, if you look at the income level by race, there are the, the whites and Asians. And let's talk about California here, since it's about California. Uh, have a higher income substantially than blacks and Hispanics. So we have to av- ignore the race part of it here, because this isn't really about race. This is more about two things. It's about the family income and the likelihood that they have the means to put their kids into coaching classes for the SAT and if they have the time to the time and inclination to follow up what they do in school and also their general value for education because people with higher incomes tend to be more educated and therefore value education more because they have one themselves. So... That's really what's going on there of why the results are so much better for those who are white and Asian and for those that have parents who are more educated and those who have parents that have more money. That doesn't make the test racist. That may say some things about our society. That may leave some room for improvement. There may be some things that can be done to help students from the areas who don't tend to do as well. Like, for example, coaching. Let's talk about SAT coaching. That's where you take a class where they give you various practice SAT tests or past SAT tests, and you can can get used to the format of the test, and they explain how to avoid the trick questions, and they give you various tips on how to take the test better. And I took one of these, by the way. To me, it was a big law of diminishing returns. Like, the first few classes were very valuable, and then after that, it was kind of a waste. But... That aside, it did help some, and those who take such classes will do better on the SAT. And also, I've said, if you just take a number of practice SAT tests yourself without any coaching course, you'll do better because you're just used to the whole format. But something that could be done for students from areas where they don't tend to do as well is get give them some free coaching classes. Have the state pay for free SAT coaching courses in these disadvantaged schools. Fine. I think that's perfectly fine. If, if, if you think families in that area can't afford to hire, uh, to, to enroll their kids in these SAT coaching classes, fine. Provide them for free. That That's one way you can help close that gap. And I'd be for that. But you can't just throw away the tests. You may not like the results the test is giving you, but it's, but these are true results. 
these results mean something. You can't say, oh, this test sucks, we're throwing it away, because we don't like what it's saying. Well, unless the test is wrong, then you shouldn't throw it away. You don't throw away a test just because you don't like the results. Can you imagine if you go to the doctor and take a test to see if you have cancer, and you get it back? I'm sorry, really sorry to tell you this, but uh, we've discovered you have cancer. Oh, no, 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 throw that in the garbage. I didn't want to hear that. That test doesn't count. I don't like it. I don't like its results. I don't want to. As long as I don't believe the test, I don't have cancer. The doctor would look at you like you're a fool. But that, that's what they're doing here. They're they're throwing away a test which is yielding results about disadvantaged areas and the education they get there and their ability to perform on a test like the SAT. They're throwing that away because they don't like the results. It's insane. Now something else about the SAT. The SAT is not an achievement test, meaning it's not about so much what you've learned. It's more about what your ability is to learn. Now, it's not perfect. It's got a lot of flaws. I haven't looked at it recently. It's changed a number of times since I took it 30 years ago. But when I took it, I did find it was too vocabulary heavy. Like in the verbal section, if you just didn't have an advanced vocabulary, you weren't going to do very well. And I thought that was stupid. There's a lot more to good verbal and written skills than vocabulary. Uh, There was no actual writing part. It was just like all multiple choice, which I thought was uh, a mistake. I think they corrected that. But then they – so there there was those problems with the verbal section. The math section had too many trick questions, which didn't fool me. I I got an excellent score. I got an almost perfect score. But a lot of students who otherwise could have gotten the answer right were tricked by a multiple choice question, which looks obvious when it's actually not the obvious answer, so they actually teach you in the coaching courses, if you see a super obvious answer right up front, unless it's one of the first few questions, which are supposed to be easy, if you see one later in the test that looks super obvious, just ignore that answer and don't choose it. So they, they shouldn't have that in there. They should, if it's going to be multiple choice, it, it just, they shouldn't try to sneak trick answers in there. There's some things in there I, I don't agree with. I think the test could be reformed. I think it, some of it has been reformed since I took it. But... I will say that it is not it, it didn't test anything very advanced. In math, if you completed geometry, which is not a very high-level course, then you knew everything you needed to know for the math section. So why didn't everybody who graduated geometry get an 800 on a perfect score on the math part? Because it's not about what you've learned in math, it's about how you can apply these concepts to figure things out for yourself. And if you're naturally very good at math, you're going to do very well in that section as I did. And if you're not naturally good at math, you could study your ass off and you're only going to get a mediocre score at best. Uh, the verbal part's a little bit more study-heavy. You have to study vocabulary words and things like that. But uh, and a lot of that is memorization and, and knowing vocabulary words. And a lot of, The verbal I, I found kind of more studyable and kind of less valuable as far as determining someone's ability to learn. But still, you also can't study your way to a perfect or near-perfect verbal score. You just can't. So I will say this about the SAT, that no matter how much coaching you get, no no matter how much studying you do, you have a ceiling where you just can't get past, where other students can effortlessly blow past you even when they get substantially worse grades than you do. Now, how is that possible? Because they're, they're, they're two different things. At my school, which was a very, very competitive public school, it was one of the most competitive public schools in California, Competitive meaning the other students were, a lot of them were very, very smart. And and some of them very, very smart and very, very hardworking. 
And when you're, they're grading on a curve, it sucks when you have those students in your class. So I was at one of the most competitive public schools in California. And I got to know a lot of the SAT scores. Some of them were voluntarily told to me. Some of them I just uh, found out. I won't tell you how I found it out, but I found it out, okay? So I knew a lot of the scores. Not everybody's scores. I knew a lot of the scores in the school, in my grade at least, okay? And I can tell you this. I noticed that the very, very best scores in the school were the kids who were both very, very smart and very hardworking. Those, they had the tip-top, super excellent top scores. Then there were the very good to excellent scores that weren't quite up to that level. And those were achieved by students who were either a little bit less smart than those ones I just described and very hardworking, or ones who were very, very smart, but not very hardworking, in some cases lazy. Then you had the students who had a good score, and it was a mixture of a few different types. Uh, average students who were extremely hardworking, moderately smart students who were kind of uh, somewhat hardworking, uh, smart students who were kind of lazy. Then you had the average scores. And the average scores, interestingly, some of them were had by some students who were had mostly A's. Some students who were in honors classes and got A's, but they just couldn't break through and get much of a score above average on the SAT. Why? Because these students just weren't all that smart. And nothing against them. I mean, they did great Consider they were doing great in school considering that they just weren't all that intelligent. They weren't dumb, but they just weren't really smart. They were kind of closer to average intelligence and they just worked their way into getting through these classes and getting good grades. But when it came to a test like the SAT, they were stuck. And no matter how much preparation they did and how much studying they did, they just couldn't get much above an average type score. Sometimes a little above average, but they couldn't really break out or do very well in it. And then the low scores tended to be the students who both, uh, who either ones had a learning disability or just uh, weren't, both weren't smart and didn't work very hard. And you know, so It was a, it's a kind of a cross-section all the way up. But I found that if you combined the SAT score with the grades the student got, you'd get a pretty damn good picture of what type of student they were and also whether they would succeed in college, which is the, the whole point of the SAT is, is, is to see who's likely to succeed in college and admit those people and who's not likely to succeed, don't admit those people. So it was an important test. Should it be the only test? No. I mean, it should be the only test, but should it be the only thing they consider? No. You got to look at grades, of course. And you can look at other facts. I always thought the extracurricular thing is stupid, and there's a lot of ways that gets massaged and manipulated, and people lie, and it's too hard to verify. So I, I think that should just not even be considered at all. And the essay thing is a complete joke because the students who do it honestly and write it themselves are at a huge disadvantage compared to the ones who have uh, their parents writing it for them or coaches writing it for them. There, there's no indication the student wrote it themselves. So why even have it? I've always thought that should be totally eliminated. And notice that's not being discussed here. The UC system's not saying, hey, we're not going to have essays anymore. Why? Because they want the touchy-feely essay about how the student's going to change the world, blah, blah, blah. It makes them feel good. They read, they go, oh, this is a well-rounded person. Look at their essay. That's the crap that should be eliminated because that can be manipulated too easily by these rich people that you claim you don't want to have the advantage. But they don't want to do that. They want to eliminate a test which is uh, meritorious. And what I found is looking at the scores, yeah, 
We've got a real good picture between the grades and the scores together. Who's smart and hardworking? Who's smart and lazy? Who's hardworking but kind of average intelligence? Who's below average intelligence and lazy? Who's average intelligence and, like, not hardworking but not lazy kind of in the middle? Like, you could kind of get a really good picture of it by just putting these two together. And this was very helpful for colleges because colleges, of course, they want to take the students who are really smart and really hardworking. But they also may want to take a chance on the student who didn't get that grade of grades but has an excellent SAT score. Say, hey, you know, maybe this person will mature when they get to college and they will do okay. This is someone who obviously has a lot of intelligence. We might actually like to have this person here even though they didn't take high school all that seriously. So maybe we'll take a few of these types. And maybe we'll take some of these hardworking types who were able to get A's even though they couldn't score well on the SAT because they, they've shown that they can overcome that and, and, and do well anyway in school and we, and we admire their the hard work they must have put in to get this far. So let's take some of them too. But at least they could see the type of students they were admitting. Is this foolproof? No. Can you tell every student from every, you know, when you compare these two numbers of the SAT scores and the grades, can you can you know for sure what the student's like? No. Uh, does it sometimes get it wrong? Yeah, of course, especially because sometimes these students change when they get to college and they're away from their parents. And what was once a great student, they start goofing off or screwing around or not doing their work or not showing up to class or... Uh, or, or getting involved in, in drugs and alcohol and everything changes. So, yes, uh, a lot of stuff can change. But based upon what they see in high school, I, th- I think those two together are a very good uh, metric. And then so then there are these achievement tests you can take and other things that uh, would give even a better picture. I think those are the valuable tools to for an admissions office to use to decide who to admit. The stuff that's useless are things like the essay, extracurricular activities. That stuff's all a bunch of crap because it can be fabricated or uh, written by somebody else too easily. And it's impossible to verify a lot of it. But notice there's, there's no talk about that. That's just completely being ignored. Instead, they want to get rid of the SAT, which is supposed to be racist and classist and all that. But if you still don't agree with me, think about this situation. Let's say we get rid of the SAT, which is going to happen in California and maybe other states will follow. So the SAT is gone. Let's look in the near future in California. SAT is gone. Now what do they use? I, I assume they're not going to replace it with a different test. If they, if they say, look, the SAT it's it's outdated. It's we don't like we don't like certain things about it. We're gonna we're gonna do a new standardized test. Okay, fine. If you think another test is better, use that. No complaint from me there. But it sounds like just no test. It sounds like it sounds like that's not going to be part of it anymore. Just no standardized test anymore. So so what do you do? Even if you think this is a good idea, even if you don't like the SAT or you think it's flawed, or there's some people I, I post on the forums, people who chimed in that, uh, like, oh, uh, my sister, she was a great student, she was smart, she just couldn't do well on that damn SAT and it hindered her. She, she eventually got into a, a decent college, but it was tough, and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, you have a personal bias because uh, your sister happened to be one of these outliers who was smart and hardworking, and got A's, but somehow just couldn't do well in the SAT. And there are students like that. I'm not denying there are ones like that, but it's not that common. So, but let's say we get rid of it. Okay, let's just say we get rid of it and there's no standardized test. First of all, grades are being inflated at different schools, so the school looks better. There's also a different standard. I mentioned my public school is one of the most competitive public schools in California. So when everything was great on a curve, I was at a disadvantage compared to students at other schools which weren't as competitive because if you put me at one of the other schools with, with fewer brilliant students, I'm going to do better on that curve doing the exact same way on this exact same test. 
So you already have things like that going on. You have schools that are inflating grades. There's there's no uniform standard for grades, so they have to always be taken with a grain of salt. I'm not saying they're not valuable. I'm just saying that you can't just use that alone. So you've got that big issue. And then you get a bunch of applications of all these students who have high grades. Well, what do you do? How do you differentiate them? How do you know which of those students with the high grades to take, especially from all different schools where you don't know if the grades are inflated or not? You don't know who are the really smart ones among them and who are the kind of average intelligent ones that manage to work themselves into good grades but really don't have that much as far as uh, raw intelligence. Wouldn't you like to know that as an admissions officer? Wouldn't that be useful to know? In fact, wouldn't that be really important in some of the more competitive and tough majors? Wouldn't you want to know that where maybe a student who could get A's in high school is not going to be able to cut it in college at a tough major? Wouldn't you want to see their SAT score? But you can't anymore because there will be no SAT score needed anymore to get into these schools. So how do you tell the difference? If you're for this decision or upcoming decision by the UC system in California, how do you tell the difference between the brilliant student with a 4.0 and the average intelligent student with a 4.0? Shouldn't the colleges know this? Shouldn't they have a way to tell this? And then even more importantly, perhaps, what about the students without a 4.0 or without a 3.8 or even a 3.5? What about the student with a 3.0? Well, how do you tell the difference between just the mediocre average intelligent student with a 3.0, who you really don't really want at your competitive school, and a really smart student with a 3.0 who just didn't work very hard? Wouldn't you want to know among those students without the great grades who happens to possess a lot of intelligence and maybe take a chance on a few of those? Now you can't know anymore. Now they all look the same. And that's a huge problem. You need more metrics. And they're taking away a very important metric. Not a flawless metric. Not a metric which screws a small percentage of people who just don't test well on it. Not a metric that has uniform results across all classes and incomes and races and parents' education, etc. But nevertheless, a valuable metric that on the whole does give you a good picture of what's going on. And if it really still bothers you so much that people who don't have as much money or not white or Asian or without educated parents, maybe their parents do have a lot of money, but they're not past a high school education and don't really care about education too much. And as a result, their kid doesn't do as well. Instead of complaining about how that's unfair, find solutions for how you can help these students do better on the SAT, like the free coaching, like maybe attempting to encourage the high schools to really and the high schools, the junior high schools, the elementary schools to really, really make the parents understand how important it is to get involved. Maybe even in high school, just send letters to the parents. The SAT is not something that you should take for granted. You shouldn't just let your kid take it and see how they do. Here's what we suggest to really improve their score. And give everybody the opportunity to have their parents understand what's at stake and what to do to maximize their kid's chance to succeed. 
Now, there has also been mentioned recently that the SAT should be dropped because of the recent scandals where celebrities and other very rich people were bribing their way into their kids getting into college or, in some cases, paying people to take the SAT for them or paying SAT proctors to change the answers to the correct ones before the tests are submitted for scoring. So shouldn't this be another reason we should remove the SAT? No. Now, this is what it says in the article before I respond. The fairness of the tests also has come under renewed fire in the wake of a widespread admission scandal in which wealthy parents are accused of paying bribes to cheat on their children's exams. Okay, that did happen. That's unfair. That's terrible. And they need to clamp down on this. They need to have better security during the exams. And they need to make examples of the people caught doing this. I agree with all that. But, but, you know what this scandal did prove? This scandal did prove that no matter how rich you are or how famous you are, that you could buy all the coaching in the world, and if your kid just doesn't have the ability, they will not be able to do well in the SAT. Otherwise, these celebrities wouldn't have cheated. They would have bought all the coaching for their kids. And I I thought these rich celebrities, I thought their kids are at a huge advantage. What happened? How how come uh, Lori Laughlin's kid couldn't score super high in the SAT? They had so much money. Why not? They, they have every advantage in the world. How, how come they couldn't score high? Why? What about Felicity Huffman's kid? How come, how come her kid couldn't score high? Why? She and Bill Macy, they didn't have enough money or enough privilege? Of course they did. The reason the kids couldn't score high in the SAT is because there's only so much you can do through coaching, through all these other means other than cheating that no matter how much money you have or how much coaching you buy, if your kid just isn't smart enough to score really high in the SAT, they won't. I'd say that's pretty fair. I think we have examples here that no matter how rich and privileged you are, you just can't do it. And that's why the parents started resorting to cheating. The cheating proves that this is something you can't buy your way into. And then you can stop the cheating by just tightening the security. And maybe you can't prevent it completely, but you can stop a lot more of it. And I don't think it's all that widespread, by the way. There, It needs to be stopped, but there's a lot of corruption in college admissions that we could go on forever about. This is just one example that's come to light recently. There's a lot of corruption in college admissions. I mean, a tremendous amount. But the solution is not to get rid of the SAT. Jessica Howell, vice president of research with the college board, which owns the SAT, defended the use of standardized tests. It said she said that at the Berkeley Forum that they merely reflect underlying social and educational inequities. Correct. Correct. So. Let's focus on that. Let's focus upon how to improve education in areas that are disadvantaged and how to get the parents more involved and even see if there's services you can give these students to help them do better if they're serious about doing well in the SAT. 
I think that would all be great. By the way, it's not always more money that you throw at the problem. A lot of times people think just fund these schools more, it'll all get better. No. A lot of times it's not about money. A lot of times it is about a lot of other factors which are much more complex and difficult to solve. But that's a whole different topic. But, you know, this is why I have a hard time voting Democrat. I know that some of you guys who listen to this show, a lot of you, are on the left. Or at least not on the right. And that's fine. And I'm glad you're still listening. I'm glad you don't hate me. Glad you still want to hear what I have to say. I have had some compliments, though, from some people on the left who listen to this show who told me that uh, at least I, I lay everything out in a, in a logical and uh, reasonable fashion even if they don't agree. And it actually makes them think sometimes. I go, that, that's all I can ask for. I'm not trying to convert everybody. But this is why I can't vote Democrat. This is why I can't support the left is because of things like this. Because they, they take something, they want to do something good. They think this isn't fair to black people. This isn't fair to Hispanic people. This isn't fair to poor people. The SAT is just another hurdle they have to get past that they have such a hard time. Why why, why do we keep giving more and more advantages to, to, to the already successful white and Asian people? So to them, it seems like a no-brainer to remove this, this biased test that helps the, the rich people and the white people and the Asian people. And, and then they try to take an action they think is correct, and that is to remove it, and then they don't bother to stop and think, wait a minute, this isn't the right thing to do. This is removing a test that's providing you a result that is unpleasant to see. And the answer is to fix what's wrong that is causing this unpleasant result, not to hide from the result. And so many times I see out of Democrats and out of the left that there's a very altruistic and good-hearted reason behind what they're trying to do but then they do the wrong thing, which makes things worse. And I see that over and over. And that's that's why I can't support them. A lot of times, what result they're going for, I agree with. A lot of times, the problem they are claiming they want to solve is a real problem. And it's one I think should be solved. But then if you go about solving it the wrong way, which will just worsen it, I can't support it. And this is a good example. It's like, let's say my right hand's been hurting a lot recently, and it's really bothering me a lot. And it's hard to figure out what's wrong with it. And I go to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, I have a solution. How about we just amputate your right hand? It won't hurt anymore. And I go, I I don't know. That doesn't sound like a good solution to me. I won't have a right hand anymore. No, but you're not going to have pain anymore. Isn't that our goal, to get rid of the pain out of your right hand? Haven't you been trying for a long time to get the pain out and you just can't? Let's amputate it. And, and that's often how I feel the left approaches things. Is they, they, If you approach something with the wrong solution, they'll make it worse. That even if you're solving one problem in a small way, you're, you're creating a much bigger one. And, and everything the right does isn't always correct, and I see that. And sometimes I'll disagree with your approach or solution to things. But uh, things like this just make me scratch my head and go, how are they not seeing that this is wrong? 
And I see things like this far too often. So, when people say, oh, how can you still vote Republicans these days the way Republicans have been? I go, well, this is why. <laughs> this, this is the type of thing that uh, makes me not even consider voting the other way. And, and yes, you may say, well, what does this have to do with Democrats? The, the people who are saying all this, the people on these uh, University of California boards that are coming to these conclusions, these are all liberal Democrats. If you don't believe me, go look it up. They are. You're, you're not going to have one Republican coming to this conclusion, at least not one real Republican. You may have a guy who voted for Reagan in 1980 who's since gone way left and still says he's a Republican, but you won't have any actual Republican with conservative positions or even center conservative positions um, coming to this conclusion. This, this is totally like a, a left conclusion. So it's just that type of thing. It just leaves me scratching my head. And, you know, I don't think you're a bad person if you if you think this way. And I'm not going to hate you, but I, I'm going to say this is wrong. This is incorrect. And I, I it doesn't make any sense to me. I see what you're going for. I see the solution you're trying to get to. I see the complaint, but the solution the solution's wrong. And so often that's exactly... I, I read a lot of websites that are from the left. I will bring up a lot of websites, the Salon and the Huffington Post and, uh, and, and a number of others I will read. Mother Jones, I, I will read articles on these sites, especially... Articles that are shared by people on Facebook that are on the left, and then I'll see, okay, I want to see what it has to say about this. Or on Twitter, I'll, I'll see a lot of this stuff there, where even if I don't go to the site normally to check it, I'll see an article from there, and I'll bring up the article and read it in full. And then, as I'm reading it, I will try to understand what the other side's point of view is, and why they are thinking this way, and what their goal is, and... If they might have some good points I haven't thought of before. And occasionally I hit on one. I, occasionally I'm reading something from the left. And I go, oh, you know what? I hadn't thought of this before. Okay, that kind of changes my mind a little bit. And, uh, I don't usually radically get my mind changed, but I'll, I'll sometimes think, okay, there's, there's more to this than I thought. Okay, this is more complicated than I thought. This isn't as cut and dry as I thought. Like I'll sometimes go through it and think to my, myself that. Sometimes I'll also read an article and go, this is, this is totally misleading or this is totally wrong or this is totally framing this thing in an incorrect fashion to get to a conclusion it wants. And uh, that's sometimes what I come away with, but I, I always give it a chance. I always give it a chance and think critically and try not to come in with a tremendous bias. I can't come in with no bias, but I can come in with a, at least a somewhat open mind. And, and I try to do that. And if no matter what side you are politically, you should read stuff that was written by the other side, especially from, what seems to be at least somewhat reasonable people on the other side. Don't go reading, if you're on the left, don't go reading right-wing stuff from crazy extremists who, who don't represent the typical member of the Republican Party. And same thing if you're on the right, reading leftist stuff, you can find crazy stuff there too, written by those on the extreme left who don't really represent the views of most on, most on the left. So you got to find ones that seem to be more mainstream and preferably ones written by those who do have the ability to sometimes stray from their own party lines and look at things critically. And 
I encourage you to do that. Because I do that. And that uh, sometimes you'll see on the forum I'll post some article from a leftist source or a uh, video from a leftist source, and that's how I find them. So I watch them. And sometimes I'll even find things on the web that that's like right-leaning websites that I go, this is trash. Like, I'll read it, I'll go, this is so misleading, this is such BS, like, they're they're totally leaving such and such out. Like, I'll, I'll see things and go, this is fake news. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not really presenting the correct picture. This is being written so people who are on the right read it and go, yeah, yeah, I totally agree, but it's, it's, not, the, it's not correct, it's not right, it's not giving you all the details. And I don't like things like that either. I find them manipulative. I want to, I want to know everything, good and bad. I want to know it all and then figure it out. And that's what you should strive to do too if you don't do that already. And I know we just had Thanksgiving, so a little late for this advice, but I just thought, you know, there shouldn't be families divided over politics. It's just stupid. I, there's family members that don't talk to each other anymore. Not in my family, but there's family members that don't talk to each other anymore because of political disagreements, which is ridiculous. Well, that's the end of the show. And I remember reading an article about this. And it was about a woman who was on the left and her father was on the right. And he did seem to have some kind of old school and somewhat ignorant viewpoints. He wasn't just on the right, but he also had some viewpoints that were antiquated and not correct, frankly. But you know, she wasn't talking to him for many, many years. And then towards the end of his life, she started to come around and talk to him again. And then she wrote all these nice things about him you know, after she spent some time with him. And then he, he ended up dying not too long after she started seeing him again. And she wrote some very nice things she discovered about him, that he always really loved her. He always really cared about her. That he always did all he could to make sure she had a good life and was always supportive of her. That even though she was a far-left Democrat, that he accepted that and didn't hate her for it and didn't judge her for it. That was her that had been against him for this. And I thought, okay, good, she's, she's getting it, she understands. But then the rest of the article then went on to attack her father for being so ignorant and so terrible and that the, the whole point of the article was like that her father's a piece of crap but he was her father and she has to still love him and you should love your piece of crap father too if he's like that. I'm going, no! You just said the guy was a great guy who, who did so much for you and just thought differently politically than you. It's not like he was a jerk or abusive. She said he was a great dad that he cared about her so much and did so many things for her but she went away thinking she went away telling everybody be nice to your dad because eventually he'll die and uh, even if he's a piece of crap you should love him like I love my piece of crap dad I'm going this girl so does not get it <laughs> anyway good night we'll be back next week probably on Friday check twitter.com slash poker fraud alert and shalom <laughs>